Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, the True Planetary and Galactic History Herstory and True History Herstory of Nasara. Blessed be everyone, infinite blessings on this sacred Saturday. We're going to go ahead and proceed with our opening meditation. And then we have some special activations for ourselves and humanity here today. So take a nice deep breath. Go into your sacred heart center. And as you do, call forth emergence and integration of your soul of your higher self, of your monad, your mighty I am presence. And let us affirm, please repeat after me, I am the soul, I am the light divine. I am love. I am will, I am fixed design. We call forth the full emergence with our mantra, with our monad, with our I am presence as we do the monad mantra as well. I am the monad. I am the light divine. I am love. I am will. I am fixed design. We call in all of our multidimensional being. And we acknowledge that at the level of the I am presence, our planetary Christ presence, we are one with all of humanity. So let us invite them in now. We do this by affirming, I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with the I am presence of every man, woman, and child. I am one with the I am presence of all my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. Take a nice deep breath as we connect heart to heart. I am to I am, cosmic heart to cosmic heart to every man, woman, and child. Inviting them in for this sacred ascension work. As we recommit ourselves to being the bridge between heaven and earth. The anchor for the new golden age and the open door that no one can shut. Feeling a shimmering golden light coming through our pillar of light, anchoring us directly from source into the center of the earth, into Mother Gaia's heart. This beautiful golden light, a golden light of peace, overlaying the golden yellow 
of divine wisdom, enlightenment, and illumination. Breathe as you anchor this in, and we give thanks for this opportunity to serve. Calling in all of our multidimensional being through all time, space, and dimension as we connect and ask to receive fully for each and every one all soul extensions, planetary, and galactic. All of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage, our ancestral lineage, all the generations past and forward, our spiritual lineage, our soul families and soul pods. We welcome for one and all, all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame our Ascension Council and Mission Council. We welcome at this time all of the kingdoms and their assistance, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the diva kingdom, the elemental kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature, the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. We welcome all of the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim. All of our angelic healing teams. All of the ascended masters, the brotherhood of light, the sisterhood of the rays and rose, the order of Melchizedek, the radiant ones. All of the enlightened masters, all of the divine mother emissaries, divine father emissaries all of the planetary and cosmic hierarchy of light and their healing teams. We welcome all of the healing teams from the Galactic Federation of Light, especially those that we work most closely with, from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, from Venus, all cosmic galactic universal healers that can be of service. We welcome the assistance of the entire company of heaven, asking Mother, Father, God to overlight all that we do and magnify, magnify, magnify it 10 billion times, 10 billion fold, individually and collectively for the highest and best of all concerned. As we work with this beautiful golden yellow ray, with the exquisite frequencies of the metallic gold overlaid upon it. We ask to fully integrate our mighty I am, our holy Christ self. Please repeat after me. Mighty I am presence. Take command of my outer self this day. Take command of my every thought and feeling, spoken word, action and reaction, produce your perfection, 
and hold your dominion within me. Put me and keep me always in my right and perfect place. And through me do it perfectly. So be it and so it is. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. So we call upon that beautiful golden ray. The golden yellow ray of illumination. Asking it to enter our crown chakra. Calling in this frequency. And all that we do in every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of our orc field. Multidimensionally. We call in all the rays, all the flames, all the universal laws and ascension waves to work with us here today. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and evocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level in divine water for each being. And through every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of our orc field, multidimensionally, through all time, space, and dimension, we ask that all that we receive be received by Gaia and all upon her. Through all of her chakras and meridians and layers of her orc field, through every ley line and song line, through every portal and vortex and monument and sacred site, every place of power, every stargate, every city of light, through the grid system, the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids, all of the multidimensional grid system, through every molecule of soil, molecule of air, molecule of water, and molecule of fire. We call upon this to be magnified in divine order individually and collectively. We're calling in the Mahatma energy to overlight all that we do. As we continue up this spiral of evolution along with Mother Gaia, as she takes her rightful place as Freedom Star. Working with us right now is Lord Kutumi. He's bringing forth that gold and yellow ray to assist us with our wisdom, our discernment, our illumination and enlightenment to help us to understand the laws of universal creation. Bringing in that frequency of gold to fine-tune our perceptions, assist us in distinguishing between projections of illusion and the true higher reality, to allow us to become wisdom, all of our knowledge transforming into wisdom, to always make the highest, most clear, and most positive choices that will assist us in manifesting greater perfection, harmony, and love into our lives. 
Take a nice deep breath. As we absorb this multidimensionally and ask to clear and dissolve the veils and illusions of duality, enlightening and healing the separation that is caused through ignorance and identification with the mind. We ask this to be healed individually and collectively for all. As we ask for the enlightenment of an awakening of universal love within ourselves, and to have the courage, willingness, and ability to consciously direct this love energy into all areas of our being and be the vehicle to share this with the earth. Take a nice deep breath, breathing the golden light more fully into your heart center now. With each exhale, exhale you, breathe this out as golden white light all around your head and your crown area. And you can see, you can sense, you visualize and know this golden light is unfolding your entire head and crown area with this beautiful, glowing, magnificent radiance. Breathing in the gold with each breath in and exhaling the golden white light as these frequencies grow stronger with each and every breath. Breathing in the golden light into your crown and your head and feeling your head surrounded and illumined in this beautiful, warm, golden glow. And now as you exhale, you release this golden light all around your body. You feel your aura permeated with this shimmering, iridescent golden light. In breathing the golden light into your crown, hold it for a few seconds. And again, add a touch of light to the golden light. As you exhale, you fill your aura with a shimmering and white radiance. Again, you see, sense, feel your entire being shimmering in the golden white radiance of ascension. You begin to see in the distance in front of you a transcendent crystalline golden white ball of light as this ball becomes closer to you. The form begins to move and as the form gets closer it starts to unfold into a magnificent temple of crystalline white light with an amazed iridescent golden aura surrounding it. 
in front of the temple is the, an open entry filled with a radiant golden light. There is a tall staircase that leads to this entrance, and your focus is on the golden light of this open door. Slowly begin to mount the many steps that lead to the open portal of light. As you near the entrance, you see in front of you a radiant being of light that is so brilliant, you cannot distinguish its form or features. As you pause in the entrance, your entire being is magnetically charged with the same radiant light essence as the shimmering being in front of you. There are beautiful spirals of iridescent gold and white light all around your body, spiraling faster and faster all around you, transforming your entire physical body into living electrons of liquid gold and white light until your entire body becomes a transparent body of shimmering light. You feel a powerful, permeating presence of love all around you, as well as within you. You realize that the same brilliant gold and white light and love energy that is around you is also within you now. You feel so very safe and secure to now enter the temple. As you move closer to the radiant being of light in front of you, you recognize that this beautiful being is wearing a golden crystalline crown of radiant jewels. Each gem is glowing and sparkling with the light rays of the rainbow. As you look into the eyes and face of this radiant being, you begin to recognize this beautiful being as your very own radiant God self. As your golden I am presence extends their arms to embrace and welcome you, you slowly open your own arms as you move closer to embrace each other. As you embrace the golden white liquid light of your own I am God presence is interpenetrating with your luminous light body filling it with a new crystalline substance and life energy you have not felt before. As you merge with your golden eye and presence, your body takes on all the shimmering iridescent colors of the rainbow. Feel the presence and power of universal love and intelligence expand within your heart and crown. As you are reunited with your true self, just take a moment to absorb this. As you step back and open your eyes, you see that the radiant light being in front of you has dissolved and dematerialized. In front of you now is a tall, beautiful, crystal-framed mirror. And as you look into that mirror, you see the same light being that you first saw in the open doorway. As your hands move upward towards your head, you realize there is a golden crown on top of it. It is the very same crystalline crown that you saw on the being in front of you earlier. 
as you step closer to the mirror, you recognize that this is your true self that you are looking at. Tears of gratitude and joy fill your heart as you see your new radiant true self reflected in the mirror in front of you. As you recognize your own crystalline reflection, you realize that you and your radiant I am God presence have completely merged into one being, one body, one mind, and one heart. This realization brings you great joy and exhilaration as you feel completely empowered and recharged with the elixir of eternal light and life. As you step closer to the mirror, you reach out to touch it, and there is nothing to touch. It is all an etheric substance of light energy. An inner guide guides you to step through the mirror. As you do so, you realize that the mirror is yet another interdimensional doorway to yourself. As you step through the mirror, you pass through a softly lit tunnel of warm golden yellow light. At the end of the tunnel is a sky blue light. And you step out of the tunnel into the blue light where you slowly come back into your physical body where you are now sitting. As we call forth Gaia and Sandalvon to assist you in integrating this divine experience, We ask that your I am presence and the masters of the golden ray assist you, assist each one of us and every man, woman, and child in anchoring this light ray into our physical reality. Please join me in affirming, beloved mighty I am presence, beloved master Katumi. Archangels Jophiel and Christine, beloved Elohim Cassiopeia, please anchor within my physical, mental, emotional, and etheric body the presence, qualities, and benefits of the golden ray of illumination. Expand my capacity for understanding and mastering the laws of creation and universal intelligence. Guide me to perfect my discernment so I can make all my choices in clarity and wisdom. I am now enfolded in the electronic light substance of the golden ray. I am God illumination. I am God wisdom. I'm the enlightenment within the heart and mind of God. I consciously accept this now. Manifest, manifest, manifest. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. 
beloved I am. Take a nice deep breath. As we call in the other aspect of this golden light, to bring forth the golden rays of eternal peace and abundance. The golden rays of eternal peace and abundance from the causal body of God are now flowing through the cup of my consciousness into the heart of every evolving soul. This golden light is pulsating with the frequencies of the fifth dimension beyond anything humanity has ever experienced. Contained within the essence of this flame of eternal peace is God's infinite abundance. And contained within the essence of God's infinite abundance is the flame of eternal peace. I breathe in deeply. And I become one with this golden light as I enter again the secret place of the most high living God within my heart. As I enter this sacred space on the holy breath. I am open and receptive to the impulses pouring from the heart and mind of God. The hour has at last arrived and the divine fiat has been issued by my mother, father, God, for the divinity pulsating within my heart flame to be given full liberty and freedom of expression. My I am presence rejoices in this divine edict and will now give me every possible assistance in manifesting the patterns of perfection from the causal body of God on earth. I become a keeper of the flame of eternal peace and abundance in accordance with my divine destiny. My earthly bodies are brought into perfect balance and latent powers encoded within my heart flame are released. The abilities I have developed over eons of time that will assist me in co-creating the new earth are brought into a balanced state of true mastery. The immortal, victorious threefold flame within my heart begins to expand and expand. The blue flame of divine power from my Father God empowers the golden flame of eternal peace and abundance in the hearts of all humanity. The pink flame of divine love from my Mother God directs the flame of eternal peace and abundance through every heart flame, and floods the earth to bless all life. The yellow gold flame of wisdom from the sons and daughters of God Goddess enlightens every mind to the divine truth that eternal peace and abundance are inseparable aspects of God's perfection. And all is well. I realize these are days of great acceleration due to the influx of divine consciousness that has been flooding the earth. The vibratory action of every facet of life is being stepped up the maximum that cosmic law will allow in every 24-hour period. The golden flame of eternal peace and abundance 
now pouring through my heart assists me in maintaining balance through this process. It allows me to experience the bliss and joy of this activity of light involving Earth's ascension into greater perfection. I am now reaching into a new octave of my godhood, and my mother, father, God are able to easily move through me. My eyes become blazing rays of light through which the light of God blesses all life. My hands become mighty conductors of God's healing power. My lips become the instruments through which God's words are formed and directed into the physical plane of earth. My feet walk the path of light. My life force now becomes the vehicle. Now becomes the vehicle through which God enters the world to love and serve all life. I realize and accept my unlimited to do whatever I desire in order to establish and expand God's perfection in my world and the worlds of all humanity. Through my thoughts, words, actions, and feelings, I am a mighty balancing activity of light pulsating through, in, and around all life on earth. And now we pray. In the name of the infinite presence of God, Goddess, I am. I call to my I am presence and the I am presence of all humanity. As one voice, one heartbeat, one breath, one energy and vibration of pure divine consciousness, I affirm. Beloved, I am presence, unfold me now in God's peace and abundance. As I become an eternal golden sun of this divine light and reaffirm, I am an eternal sun of God's peace and abundance, now made manifest and permanently sustained by holy grace. I am an eternal sun of God's peace and abundance now made manifest and permanently sustained by holy grace. I am an eternal son of God's peace and abundance, now made manifest and permanently sustained by holy grace. And so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. And we affirm, I'm reclaiming the infinite flow of God's abundance. And the new earth is becoming a tangible reality in my life. I now accept God's abundance as my divine birthright. It is now time for me to manifest my financial freedom. And the God, God a supply of all good things. This will provide the necessary sustenance and support I need to fulfill my divine plan. As I assimilate this truth, the divine intelligence blazing in my heart, 
exposes the fact that all of the beliefs I ever, ever had that were based in poverty, lack, and limitation were merely illusions. The supply of all good things, financial freedom, opulence, and abundance are God's gift to me and to all of the sons and daughters of God Goddess. Prosperity consciousness floods into my mind and heart, and I see new innovative ways to create prosperity in my life. Through my I am presence, I accept and expect the infinite flow of God's abundance in my life now and forever. I know the ebb and flow. The in-breath and out-breath of my life force is a universal law. And so in return for God's gift of abundance, I willingly and joyously agree to share my abundance with those who are striving to co-create the new earth. This is my gift of love that I am giving back to God, Goddess, in appreciation for my gift of life. As I give, so shall I receive. I'm at peace with the concept of sharing my money and my abundance with others, knowing full well that God's abundance is infinite. The fear of scarcity from my human ego no longer manipulates me. My I am presence is in control. And I know that by continually sharing my money and my gifts of abundance with those who are working to fulfill the divine plan, I open the door for perpetual flow of abundance into my own life. This is a universal law of life. It is the law of this circle. And so it is. The golden flame of eternal peace and God's abundance is now blazing through every particle of life as it bathes the physical, etheric, mental, and emotional strata of Earth. This activity is forming a powerful catalyst for God's abundance, which is empowering awakening humanity to joyfully accept our financial freedom. With the assistance of the entire company of heaven, I now seal and permanently sustain this activity of light. As I breathe in deeply, I expand and expand the divinity within my own heart flame and the divinity within the heart flames of every man, woman, and child. Together we create a mighty chalice of light that cradles the sweet earth in all her life. Now is one breath, one voice, one heartbeat, one energy, vibration, and consciousness of pure divine love, I affirm. I am open and receptive to God, Goddess's abundance, and I joyously receive and freely give my wealth. I am therefore eternally blessed with financial freedom, opulence, abundance, and the God's supply of all good things. Through my newfound prosperity consciousness, all of the financial sustenance I need to fulfill my divine plan is now flowing into my life daily and hourly. 
I am the divine image of God, goddess, manifesting infinite abundance in my being and world. And for the children of God, goddess, everyone, everywhere, in God's supreme name forever. Wherever I am in the universe is is a constant outpouring and release of God's life and light, God's transfiguring divine love, God's eternal peace and abundance, God's truth and freedom to all I contact every day in every way. I so decree it and accept it done. Through the power of God, Goddess, I am. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for all the blessings of this day. We give thanks for all of the dispensations and gifts of the beautiful golden yellow ray of enlightenment, illumination, and divine wisdom. And ask to work with that, with the golden ray of eternal peace and infinite abundance. Always making the highest choices for ourselves and for all concerned. We give thanks for these blessings and dispensations. We give thanks to Master Kachumi and all of the wondrous beings that we have worked with here today. We ask for this work to be sealed, maintained, and sustained in divine order for each being individually and collectively. Again, we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. And so, dear ones, I hope you enjoyed our activations here today. And I invite you to do further work to bring heaven to earth. Each and every Sunday and Monday, joining us for the Ascension Meditation and Activation Call. Again, it's February 1st. Will be the 12-year anniversary of the calls. We invite you to be a part of the team bringing heaven to earth through this work, through our prayers and evocations, our visualizations, our activations for ourselves and all humanity. We begin at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time, again every Sunday and Monday. We have about 25 minutes of greetings at 10 after. Tar and Rama join us for a brief update. And then at 9.30 Eastern Time, 6.30 Pacific Time, we begin our work in earnest of anchoring heaven to earth, of transforming individually and collectively, of bringing all humanity up into the higher realms, The phone number is, this is a teleconference call, so it is a phone number. And if you don't have that number, let me give you the main number. It's area code 
425-436-6260. Again, area code 425-436-6260. The access code is 946-7441-POUND. 946-7441-POUND. We'd love to have you as a regular working with our family of light in this transformation process. There are numbers. There are international numbers. You can even access it through the Internet. If you need that information, please contact me. I'll give you my email address. It's Cheryl, C-H-E-R-Y-L, Croci, C-R-O-C-I, all one word, at AOL.com. We'd love to share with you any updates. Make sure you have all the numbers to access the call and have you join us doing this sacred work that we are so grateful for. So thank you, thank you, thank you. I am so grateful for your presence here. So grateful that you joined us for this meditation. As I pass the talking stick filled with the most amazing, amazing golden light, both in its golden yellow ray form, the golden ray of infinite peace and prosperity with the rainbow white light, the Mahatma energy containing every frequency that we could possibly need. So with sparks of light, iridescent spirals of light, I pass the talking stick to you, my dear friend, Rainbird. My dear sister, Rainbird, it's Time to take the passing stick. I pass it along with infinite blessings to you and to everyone out there. Thank you, Cheryl. I'll take that talking stick. <laughs> with gratitude, what a beautiful talking stick. Sparkly all over with all that promise of that was bringing in that divine peace. I'm, I'm all for it. And I like the iridescent rainbow light, too. So thank you for your div- <clears throat> divine service. As uh, it's always just so significant to start our day, our week, our day this way. And um, so I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are listener supported radio program. And it's just us chickens that make it happen. <laughs> so here's how we do it. Uh, each week we need uh, $300 for services with BBS radio. And we're also assisting Tara and Lama with their needs. So as you wish to contribute to our account at BBS Radio, you want to access that by going to bbsradio.com and click on Radio Station 2. And then as you scroll down, you'll see all the different programs on the menu. And so on the menu, you want to find the icons for the programs on Thursday night, the night at the round table with the panel. And also, at the 6 o'clock hour, you click on that icon that takes you to our account with CBS. So, you can make a donation there in any amount. Thank you for taking that action. 
Now, Friday at the 6 o'clock hour, and these are Pacific times, um, you'll see the hard news with Tara and Rama on Friday nights. Uh, and that icon there will take you to our account. And it's the same as with this program, the true history, history, and the Sarah, like Galactic Origins with Tara and Rama at the 1.30 hour. And any of those icons just take you to our account. So lots of gratitude for your contributions and all the other ways that you show up in your life. So thank you, thank you, thank you. So, and we're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs and um, and the car. <laughs> the the shuttlecraft, the blue sapphire, is in need of a tune-up. And E.T., the mechanic, is requiring $180 to do that job. So we're grateful for those those funds to show up. And then also at the end of the month, Rama has a doctor's appointment with Dr. Frederick for his shoulder, and he needs $180 in his pocket for that. So those two items are happening, and the tune-up is important. And so is Rama's arm. So let's make that happen in a big way. And then also they have $300 in bills. And so that would be with the Dish Network, 156.53 cents. And then with Vonage, 49.49. And then with Geico, 85.89. So that all comes up to the $300 will cover it. And then they also need um, regular living expenses too. So a couple hundred dollars for that. And that brings it up to $860 that they're requiring. And so lots of gratitude for your generosity and for pitching even in a little bit. Is that what you can do? It's a good time to do it so that we can make sure these things get taken care of. Um, on the 13th is when the uh, Dish Network, the $156 one is due. So that's a, it's coming up, I think, um, like Tuesday or something. So... Anyway, lots of gratitude for your attention to this matter. Here's how we make a, a contribution to Tara and Rama. Go into your heart space, see what is yours to give, and then go to rainbowroundtable.net. And on that homepage there, you'll see uh, the menu grid. Click on that, and now you'll find the donate link near the bottom of that list. And so as you click on that, that'll link you to Rama's. PayPal account, and um, so there you can make a donation of any amount using your bank card. So thank you for taking that action. If you have your own PayPal account, you would want to put in um, Rama's email with PayPal to access the friends option. So Rama's email at PayPal is Coran K O R A N nine 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 four nine at Hotmail. Dot com, And there's pretty obvious how that works. So um, thank you. Thank you for taking that action. Either way, it's perfect. We're so grateful for your contributions. And um, so much gratitude to Tara and Rama for all that they do. And, and all, all the information and they bring us and how we get together and do our work together and that where two or more are gathered, we know what happens. So we, we can accept responsibility for our lives and do our service this way. So lots of gratitude for that. 
Um, so we also have a, a little fundraiser, uh, Fremark site, which is, um, an important place to work with your abundance and also to get um, some amazing access to amazing products. So here's the website where you would join to set up your own account and also to look around and see what you like, how you like it. So HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash www.shopfreemart.com forward slash T-A-R-R-A-M. And that's the username, T-A-R-R-A-M. So as you get there, so account number 7,000, just making sure you're in the right place. We know it's the right place with that that Saint Germain number there. So, Miss Sarah now, and I'm packing this coffee stick. But first, I want to say 13 thank yous, honey in the heart, long life, no evil. And here's this coffee stick, Tarot and it is just full of those flames and sparks of, of that, that golden flame of divine peace and the iridescent rainbow, all frequencies are in there, and it's just got all kinds of little people on fairies and feathers and menahunis and gnomes and hobbits. So, greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes the talking stick. Greetings, all you commanders, eagles, and angels. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Um, there's so much positive energy today. And it's the eighth. And that number of this day represents Lord Maitreya. I always remember his uh, qualities by calling Maitreya Maitreya of gold. The golden ray is very connected with Lord Maitreya. And eight is also the quality of manifestation. As above, so below. So, uh, and it's interesting because they're honoring in a eulogy manner our brother Harry Reid, Senator Harry Reid, former Senator Harry Reid. Once you're senator, you're always a senator. But um and I just was gonna do my best to share Barack Obama was Barack Obama and Harry Reid were best friends. And uh Barack gave gave the eulogy today and it was awesome. <laughs> That's, I guess, how we can say that, huh, Rama? Yeah. But uh, you have some stories to tell about what you've learned first uh, from your folks. Um, so I'm passing the talking stick to you. Getting very close to the end. I got to a new book, huh? Yeah. I got a text message from Sweet Angelique the Cat. And she was saying that there are 
many things going on across the planet. She's in France at the moment, and it, it is a scene with what's going on with the drama. Uh, I, I will call it the Borg Nanites. And this 5G frequency they're messing with with the people and the planet. And they're very insidious, yet the light of the sun coming in, the one, the atone, is more powerful than any 5G technology or Borg Nanites than the dark side can create. <laughs> and... Uh, there are stories out there. There is a world tennis player who's being incarcerated. Uh, let's say he's, you know, being forced to stay in a hotel in Australia because he didn't have the right papers to come into Australia and play tennis in the next few days. Not that I'm, you know, a big tennis fan or sports, but this is, it is about how the fascist state on planet Earth is moving closer and closer to, you know, where are your papers, Weinhund? <laughs> Not pretty, but they're playing with it, and it's pretty scary stuff. And this guy has to go to court on Monday, and they're kind of talking about deporting him from Australia. And where do we go with this? But it's, you know, the continuing drama of the fascist state trying to curtail people and... Let's say, you know, it's the will of the empire, not the will of the freedom. And um, there have been things going on in Palestine and an issue happened in Tehran that had to do with the uh, drama where... The Iranian government are putting sanctions on the people that killed General Soleimani. And Su Su Soleimani, I think is how you pronounce it. Yes, excuse me for mangling his name. No, it's okay. It's just a, one vowel. Change. Yeah, Mr. Trump, Mr. Pompeo, uh, the former defense secretary are all being sanctioned by Iran. And I don't know where this goes into the physical reality yet. They also said, um, sweet Angelique, the cat said that they're, you know, they have inner, they have issued international arrest warrants for Donald Trump and his family and the top people in his administration dealing with Iran and place of violent fire. There's a lot of things going on that have to do with 
what's in our midst. And the fact of the matter is Iran has had nukes for 12 or some odd years. And the only issue here is the deep state and the false country called Israel that has a problem with Iran. That's the big deal, because the United States bows at the feet of Israel. Israel dictates to the United States, and whether folks know it or not, it's the 51st state of the empire. Not a pretty picture, but it is the real news, and they're all going down, in spite of the fact that they... uh, Continue to do what they're doing and blaze the violet fire. This is the year of the white rose. And I know Lady Masternata is a very good diplomat. And I'm still in training to become the captain. I passed the ducking stick. Okay. So... What we really want to say here is that um, the dark side has already lost. Yes. And um, I can play, uh, I mean, uh, Max Kaiser was as clear as a bell that the dollar is completely dead. Dead as a doornail, uh, as a matter of speaking. (laughs) Uh, yeah, and they're manipulating. <laughs> they're manipulating the price of silver, which is not a good thing. So, what's the value of silver today? Uh, <laughs> it could be twenty-eight bucks. I got to look on there. I'm not sure. Oh, yeah. There's some kind of deep trouble. Uh, media are keen to dramatize and exaggerate the story. Okay. It's a story today. Um, there was a, 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 a lot on the news on RT as well. Yeah, things were happening in Tigray and Africa, and this is all about the deep state trying to take the exotic minerals from Mother Africa, which is not okay with the universe. I'll just speak for the universe. They had a debate on RT um, between a man from Africa and another man from the British Parliament. And there's another story that NASA or some private corporation, I'm not sure which, but they want to launch a uh, craft, some kind of unmanned spacecraft, to go to an asteroid called Psyche. And this asteroid... Let's say they want to mine the asteroid and the, uh, the minerals on this asteroid could, uh, be worth more than, you know, the 
quote unquote price of the planet. And this is where I need to say cosmic. Oh yeah. How many gazillion dollars worth it was? I can't remember. I printed it out, but it's like, it's insane. Yet, <laughs> this is where I gotta say, even though, you know, these life forms here on this planet bless their hearts and more love, they want to go and mine the asteroids. Yet, see, that's already old story because What's coming into our abilities now is we can instantly manifest things. Yes, precipitation. Precipitation instantly. Yes. You don't need to go and invade someone else's turf. It's an interesting name, this asteroid called Psyche. Right. It's one of the Greek gods who... Let's say she knew how to use the magic of all the various realms. And uh, I don't exactly remember the whole story of Psyche, but it's a fascinating one because it is about coming back to wholeness. I'll just say that. Yeah, um, I don't know why. I think you should send this to Penny, and then she can put this up on our website. It's called Seven Superior COVID Treatments That Are Being Suppressed and the Clinical Data That Proves That That's the Big One. Yeah. This is many, 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 many pages of research that they have been doing while the mutterings on mainstream media are covering all this stuff up, they don't care to reveal. Because they're not done killing us yet. <laughs> mm. So how many pages? 30. 39. 40 pages. Yeah. 41 pages. But I would still send this in. Okay. For educational purposes, it's yes. a masterpiece. And oh yeah, the Dalai Lama. I still Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama. We shared that on Thursday with everyone, and now we're uh, having um. Okay, the topic of of the debate on the RT, not guilty court verdict for statue topples, topplers sends shockwaves across the United Kingdom. And uh, they did their little toppling. Uh, yeah, they t- took a statue down, and I think it was of a slave trader, right? Yes, he, he, his name is Colston, his last name. Yeah. C-O-L-S-T-O-N statue toppled during Black Lives Matter protest in 2020. So uh, it's a year plus ago. Oh, and I did hear something today. I heard Chris Hedges on uh, David Barsamian's website, uh, IndieMedia.org, 
And um, Chris Hedges was talking about how they uh, trashed Dennis Kucinich, and it's about the corporate deep state that runs both parties. That that is, if you don't do what either side wants, you end up in uh, no man's land. In a trash bin. Yeah. You might say verbally anyway. Yeah. Dennis Kucinich is one of the ambassadors from Andromeda. He doesn't talk about it, but he is. Yeah, he's and talked about it directly with us. That was many years ago. Yeah. He came to Santa Fe and we were, we were there. Yeah. What's her name was there too that lives in Abiquiu? Uh, Out on a limb. Shirley McClay. Shirley McClay. <laughs> oh, God. And she, she knew is, all about it. And she is a friend of Hillary's and blazed the violet fire. I'll leave it there. I don't know if that's still true. Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> no, she's got, she's not that dumb. I hope not. <laughs> but uh, you gotta walk very carefully when you are in those close quarters with those power yep. people. Yeah. And I don't know. I haven't seen or heard hiding her hair of Shirley McLean for ever. Have you? No, not recently. So anyway, these two people uh, in uh, England, uh, this happened a year plus, almost two years ago, but uh, it was a white male judge in the UK that gave the not guilty verdict in the court uh, for statue topplers sending shockwaves across the UK. In other words, uh, doing that white racism got a blow from a white male judge. Yeah, that's... <laughs> uh, it, it's... You know, we've got to get past all of this stuff because it's not okay to be trading human beings. That's not what we are designed to be, ever. And so it is. But I think, what should we do now, Rama? I think I should play um, Barack Obama giving his eulogy in honor of Harry Reid. I think we'll do that. And then keep up, Joe. Yeah, and then we'll do Deepak Chopra. Let's see. Okay. Uh, just know that the dollar is dead and buried and all the games that you can play. And there's this wonderful story, and I don't think you know because we shared it from a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Stacy and Max went to El Salvador, and El Salvador made Bitcoin their legal tender for the whole country. And for the first time, you know, they got out from under the dollar. And the United States has trashed that country, murdered people, trained in the school for the Americas. You know, people from that country where they trained them and armed them and paid for the whole thing for those people from that country to go back and slaughter their people. Yeah. In the most vile ways. 
basically we all pass every test when we witness this kind of stuff and uh, let it all go, huh? It's really time to let it all go. Okay, just a moment, Tito, here. It's this one, I believe. Okay, we're going to turn up the sound. Turn up Z sound. And we will start. I missed a very tiny bit of the beginning of his talk, so you'll notice that. Let's see. Just a second. Friends and former staff, it's a great honor to be with you today to pay tribute to my friend Harry Reid. Now, to be clear, and as Chuck mentioned in his remarks, I suspect Harry himself would not have wanted to sit through this thing. <laughs> Harry did not like being the center of attention. <laughs> it made him a little awkward. He was uncomfortable when people said too many nice things about him. But as he looks down on us today, Harry is going to have to suck it up. <laughs> because few people have done more for this state, this country, this <laughs> driven, brilliant, sometimes irascible, deeply good man in search life. I first met Harry in 2005 after I'd been elected to the Senate and Harry had been elevated to become Democratic leader. And I was the sole African American in the Senate at the time. A mixed kid with a funny name. And given how different our backgrounds were, I did not know how well Harry and I would hit it off. He was older, of course. His kids were grown. I didn't know what kind of music he liked, but I figured he didn't listen to Jay-Z. <laughs> On the issues, he had a reputation for being a little more conservative than I was, reflecting the politics of his western state. So he invited me to his office for a chat shortly after I'd been sworn in. There was not a lot of small talk. In fact, there was not a lot of talk at all. He asked me what committee assignments I wanted. I told him. He said he'd see what he could do. Half the time his voice was so soft I could barely hear what he was saying. Afterwards, my senior colleague from Illinois, Dick Durbin, asked me how it went. I said, man, I don't know. Uh, the whole conversation lasted maybe 10 minutes. He did not seem particularly uh, pleased with my taking up his time. Don't worry, Dick said. If Harry didn't like you, it would have only lasted five minutes. <laughs> 
That was Harry. As has been observed, uh, Harry was not a schmoozer or a backslider. He did not regale you with long, drawn-out stories, and he did not appreciate long, drawn-out stories. Despite the years he'd spent in Congress, despite all the power he wielded, his reputation as being the consummate Washington insider, what I came to realize was that Harry always remained something of an outsider in Washington. Which makes sense, given the remarkable path to the Senate that he had taken, a path that was at least as unlikely, if not more unlikely, than mine. Others have mentioned Harry's extraordinary journey out of Searchlight. Tiny desert town, an hour away from just about everywhere. How Harry had to hitchhike more than 40 miles each way to Henderson and stay with relatives just to go to high school. I put himself through college and law school, moonlighting as a uniformed Capitol Police officer to help cover tuition and support a young family. Fair to say, it was not easy. There must have been times where he felt doubt about achieving his dreams. Like the time when his car broke down and he walked into the dean's office to say that he wasn't sure if he could afford to finish school. As Harry remembered it, the dean looked him up and down and said, Mr. Reed, why don't you just quit? <laughs> that dean did not know Harry Reed's character. Like others who would later underestimate the man, hardship had forged a steel in Harry. A fighting spirit that explained his success in the boxing ring, despite being significantly undersized. He likes to talk about his boxing. No, Brian, he wasn't a great athlete. He wasn't big and strong like some of the guys I went up against. I had two things going for me. Take a punch. I never gave up. It's about right. That same dogged determination marked Terry Reed's political career. He lost his first Senate race by just 600 votes. Six months later, he ran for mayor of this town and lost in a landslide. But Harry did not give up. He got himself a seat in the House. Then the Senate finally became Senate Majority Leader. And let's face it, he enjoyed every minute of proving doubters wrong again and again and again. Sometimes the people who motivate us the most, Harry would later say, are the ones who believe in us the least. So yes, being tough, being a fighter, was one of Harry's singular characteristics. Apparently, uh, once a, a staffer handed him a 
some draft remarks in which uh, he was supposed to refer to himself as a former boxer. And uh, Harry crossed out the word former. <laughs> <laughs> he was 70 years old at the time. But there were other aspects to Harry's character that helped explain his extraordinary achievements. Qualities that at this particular moment in our history seem especially relevant. First and foremost, Harry was a pragmatist. At a time when so many Americans crossed the political spectrum, apply strict purity tests to our politicians, demanding they toe the line on just about every issue in a time when so often compromises portrayed as weakness. Harry had a different view. He didn't believe in highfalutin theories or rigid ideologies. He thought most people make decisions based on their life experience, based on the immediate needs of their families, based on their own self-interest, no matter what they may tell themselves. And as a result, Harry met people where they were, not where he wanted them to be. And he was willing to cut deals, even with folks he didn't agree with or particularly like. I heard Nancy Pelosi say she never heard Harry say anything bad about any of his colleagues. I don't know about that, Nancy. <laughs> but he wouldn't work with him. I love Nancy, but I... <laughs> but he wouldn't work with them. If that's what it took to move things forward. In a battle between perfection and progress, Harry always chose progress. That pragmatism made Harry adaptable. When he first got to Washington, Harry's voting record wasn't so different from those who represented his state in the past. Holding traditional positions on issues like gun rights, immigration, reproductive health. But as Nevada and the country changed, as Harry met more and more people from different walks of life and realized their struggles weren't that different from his family's have been in searchlight, Harry's views on some of these issues changed as well. He didn't consider that a weakness. He understood that he wasn't always going to be right about everything. He knew how to listen and to learn. He was humble enough to admit when he had to change his mind and grow. And by the way, speaking from personal experience, it helps when you're married to somebody who's wiser and brighter than you. I know something about that. After Harry introduced a bill repealing birthright citizenship in the 1990s, for example, Lander pointed out that her own father had been a Russian immigrant. Later, Harry would say, I came to the realization 
that I was way off base. I'm so glad she righted the ship. Now, of course, there are plenty of politicians who change their positions just because they want to get reelected. They've got their fingers out to the wind. They're interested in claiming to power for its own sake. But for Harry, the whole point of holding office, the whole point of wielding power, was to actually get things done on behalf of those he represented. During his time as leader, that is exactly what he did. He got things done. Without Harry, we would not have passed the recovery act, helping to prevent another Great Depression. Without Harry, we wouldn't have saved people's jobs, helped people stay in their homes. Without Harry, we would not have passed Wall Street reform, reigning in some of the worst abuses in the financial industry. Without Harry, there would be no Affordable Care Act. People forget that there were many times during the debate over health care reform when it looked like nothing was going to get passed. But Harry, working with Nancy Pelosi in the House, working with then-Vice President, and now, uh, now President, my partner, Ms. Fight, Joe Biden, Harry refused to give up, maneuvering and applying pressure like only he could. The deals Harry made to get that law done didn't always look pretty. They got votes. Whenever I would object to a change he wanted to make, whether because of some policy concerns or worries about the optics, Harry would tell me, with some exasperation in his voice, Mr. President, you know a lot more than I do about health care policy, okay? I know the Senate. <laughs> he was right. Harry did know the Senate better than just about anyone else. More importantly, he understood why the work we were doing that. Growing up, Harry's family didn't have health care. He told me he didn't even know what it was. Harry's brother broke his leg. He stayed in bed and waited for it to heal. Mm. His father needed a tooth removed. He yanked it out himself. Harry remembered those times. He knew what that was like. So when Harry put everything he had into passing the ACA, he didn't do it to burnish his own legacy. He did it for the people back home and families like his who needed someone looking out for him when nobody else was. Harry got things done. And here's another thing that set Harry apart. He was always, unfailingly, himself. That may not sound exceptional, but in Washington, it is an exceedingly rare quality. Harry was the first to admit he wasn't 
the most charismatic or politically correct speaker. After a press conference, he'd sometimes go up to a staffer and say, okay, tell me everything I did wrong. <laughs> but Harry knew who he was. And he had the distinct advantage of not really caring what other people thought of him. In a town obsessed with appearances, Harry had a real vanity deficit. He didn't like phonies. He didn't like grandstanding. He was proud of the fact he didn't own a tuxedo. When he had to go to fundraisers, he would try to get out in under 10 minutes. And apparently the only White House congressional picnic Harry ever attended was for his son Key's benefit. Key wanted to impress a girl he was dating at the time. He and uh, Miley ended up getting married, so Harry grudgingly admitted it was worth the sacrifice. Hmm. Finally. For all of Harry's toughness, all his hard-nosed views about politics, Harry loved his family, loved his staff, and Harry was a true and loyal friend. During my time in the Senate, he was more generous to me than I had any right to expect. He was one of the first people to encourage me to run for president, believing that despite my youth, despite my experience, despite the fact that I was African-American, I could actually win, which at the time made one of us. You wanted Harry in the foxhole with you. His willingness to fight by my side to stick with me even when things weren't going our way. My poll numbers had gone down. Some Democrats thought it might be prudent to maintain a healthy distance from me. His willingness to be there, fight, last throughout my presidency. It's a debt to him that I could never fully repay. I remember toward the end of my time in the White House, Michelle and I invited Harry and Landra over for dinner, along with Joe and Jill and Nancy and Paul, Chuck and Iris. And during the meal, Harry was his usual, curmudgeonly self. Uh, occasionally, he'd offer an opinion on this or that, mutter about food was pretty good. Um, but generally... <laughs> He was keeping his own counsel. But at the end of the night, those who, who were there, I, I suspect, will remember this. I sure do. Harry suddenly asked for everyone's attention. Listen, he said. Everybody here knows that I don't show a lot of emotion, okay? 
That's just how I grew up. I just want to say that I'm really proud of what I've done with this president. That I love this guy. And then, without any warning, he leaned over and kissed me on the cheek. Oh, my God. I think it's fair to say that we were all surprised. (laughs) And I laughed. I said, well, thanks, Harry. I love you too, man. And I put my arm around him, which I think was too much for him. (laughs) Because he said, well, okay then. It's past my bedtime. And with that, he and Londra headed for the door. (laughs) Pragmatism, adaptability, a premium on getting things done, lack of pretension, and abiding loyalty. That's what Harry Reid represented. A man of old school virtues. There are qualities that are in short supply these days. Yet, it seems to me they are precisely the qualities our democracy requires. Harry understood we don't have to see eye to eye on everything in order to live together. And be decent toward each other. And that we can learn to bridge differences in background and race and region. He knew that our system of government isn't based on demanding that everybody think exactly the same way. In fact, it presumes that in a country as big and diverse as ours, people rarely will. We can still work together. Or he may have been a proud Democratic partisan. He didn't shy away from bare-knuckle politics, but what is true is that I never heard Harry speak of politics as if it was some unbending battle between good and evil. Because he knew what was true for himself was true for everybody that we're all a bundle of contradictions. We all have our flaws. We all have our blind spots. But despite all that, it was possible for us to affirm our collective humanity because that's what made America great. Once we both left office, I didn't see much of Harry. But we called each other on the phone from time to time. He'd tell me about Landry. He'd speak with great pride about his kids, his grandkids, and all that they were doing. He told me about his illness and the treatments he was going through. And 
always keeping him busy. And at some point during those calls, he'd usually mention somebody he'd run into who would thank him for getting them health care or save their job. And particularly in recent months, maybe knowing that he didn't have much time left, he'd allow himself a hint of nostalgia. Talk about how together we've made a darn good team. We've done pretty well for the American people. As I would start to reply, yes, he would cut me off. <laughs> okay then, Mr. President, he'd say, hang up. Hmm. The whole conversation would last about five minutes. But in those five minutes, he'd communicate more some folks doing a couple hours. That's who Harry was. A man who knew what was important and didn't believe in dwelling on what wasn't. One former colleague explained it by saying to Harry, goodbye was an unnecessary word. Might not have been necessary for Harry, but it is for us. Goodbye, Harry. Thank you for everything. Nevada has never had a greater champion. The Senate and the country benefited from your extraordinary leadership. I could not have asked for a better, truer friend. Sure did love you back. That's it, everybody. What an amazing, wonderful eulogy, everybody. So we're going to do, tell everybody what we're going to do now. Um, this is uh, a way of miracles, right? <coughs> yeah, I'm getting there. The way of miracles. It, this is blending lessons from traditional Western medicine and ancient holistic systems. And Deepak Chopra's in this, Bruce Lipton, and many others, Dr. Mark Minkola. Viewers discover how to harness the power of healing by exploring how the energetic properties of food, thought, and emotion affect immunity, chronic inflammation, and the genetic expression of disease. As East meets West and ancient systems cover coverage with cutting-edge science, we are finally understanding the way of miracle healing and forging a path into the future of medicine. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. We're going to do this. This is an hour and 22 minutes, everybody. Here we go.
it's coming. The true message of the way of miracles is that my life and the lives of the people that I work with represent a story that underscores the point that people are more powerful, more capable of doing wonderful things and making miracles than they're presently aware of. The Buddhist said, as we think, so we become. So if you want to become a miracle maker, you have to start thinking about yourself differently. The past 35 years, I've seen 60,000 appointments. I started my practice in 1982 with the notion that I was going to be helping people lose weight. I'm thinking simple basic nutrition 101. Surprise, surprise, people started coming in right away with problems that I felt really badly about. I felt so much compassion for so many of these people that needed help. So I decided I was going to give it a try. As far as I knew, nutrition couldn't do half of what I ultimately found out that it can do, but it was a process of discovery one person at a time. So my name's Kate. I was 29 years old when my husband and I decided that it would be an ideal time to start our family. When it didn't happen immediately, we sought help from doctors and became increasingly more heartbroken and frustrated that we had not met with success. At such a young age, um, I was told by doctors that I had um, diminished ovarian reserve. I asked for a referral and was connected with a reproductive endocrinologist. They discovered immediately that I had a thyroid issue. That triggered something to me immediately. I'm 29, I'm not able to get pregnant, and I have thyroid issues. Why is this? The next layer of testing that I did with the reproductive endocrinologist revealed that I did not have the ovarian reserve that a typical 29 or 30-year-old had. And when I asked them about that, I was told that it was bad luck, that I had just drawn the short straw, and that was the way that it was going to be. And we could get over that through IVF treatments, but that was simply the way that it was. And perhaps that was a genetic component. I went through many failed cycles at the first practice that I worked with. I will never forget the day that I wrote that my doctor said that I was an anomaly. I looked across from her at the table one day and I said, shouldn't I be pregnant by now? And she said, absolutely. The average person is pregnant by now. That was crushing. In addition to that, I had started seeing an acupuncturist because I was really looking for any avenue of medicine that was going to help me be successful. That's how badly I wanted this family. And she noticed that after my treatments, I would get hives sometimes where the um, needles were. And when I saw her again, she said, I want you to try going gluten-free because there is a link between skin rashes and hives and things like that and a gluten allergy. Going gluten-free, first of all, it, it eliminated my hives. But second of all, my thyroid function came, came back normal. That was when I was like, I need to, I need to pursue this avenue of my health a little bit more seriously. And that's when I connected with Mark. The first time I met Mark, I joined him in his office and I filled out a questionnaire about the food that I eat. I told him why I was there and I was skeptical. So I didn't give Mark a lot of information. I wanted him to prove to me that he knew what he was talking about. To this day, I think the most remarkable experience I've ever had regarding epiphanies is the epiphany of my compassion leading me to the idea of nonverbal communication, opening up an energy field between my patients and myself that taught me everything I needed to know about them and more. So he muscle tested me. He asked me a series of random questions. Are you cold? Which I, I knew was linked to my thyroid, but I didn't tell him I, I had a thyroid issue. He asked me if I um, sometimes got viral sores, and then he showed me a diagram of my body and said that my fertility issue was with my ovaries. I hadn't said anything about that. I told Mark I wanted to have a baby, and I couldn't, 
but I didn't tell him that um, the doctors had identified that I had low ovarian reserve. So from muscle testing me and asking me three questions that indicated to me he knew exactly what was going on, my jaw was practically on the floor. There's so much going on in a human being, so much going on that's, that's nonverbal. I'd feel that, I'd sense that, I'd perceive that at, at deeper sensory levels in my own being. I was learning things that I didn't know I had access to. But I opened up my heart instinctually and got back their, their answers instinctually as well. He told me that I had like a retrovirus that was wreaking havoc on my immune system. He told me in that very moment what foods I could eat and what foods I, I had to avoid. And then he put me on a bunch of supplements. He told me, don't do any treatments in the next three months, but give me six months and I guarantee you will be pregnant in six months. So I went home and that day cleaned out the cupboards, bought all the supplements, did my research. You know, I was nervous about taking all those supplements, but in the research that I had done, I learned that Mark was putting me on things that my body needed and should have been getting and just wasn't because of modern day food and what we do to the food that we eat. So I checked back in with Mark at like the three month mark and um, and he said, like, I think you can, you know, start a treatment now and, and go about your treatment. After three months on that diet, I had a completely different response. So prior to the diet and the supplements with Mark, I was producing seven eggs that were resulting in two embryos that could be transferred back into me. Three months later, I produced 17 eggs that resulted in 10 viable embryos to work with in order to achieve a pregnancy. I'll never forget my doctor walked in the room too, like after those results had come out and he just looked at me and he said, who are you? I can't believe what has happened. It did happen and it happened right shy of the six month mark that Mark had promised. One of the things that Mark would do when my husband and I were meeting with him is he would actually call us mom and dad. When you would leave a meeting with him, you would say to yourself, he believes this is going to happen to me. And he keeps telling me that I need to believe this is going to happen for me as well. And that was transformational for us. So there was the food and there were the supplements, but then there was also this piece about just remaining positive and um, believing that this would happen. Probably the best visit I've had with Mark was when I was able to bring my daughter in and, and meet Mark. And he looked over at her and she looked at him and she just let this ginormous smile out for Mark. And it was just one of those really special moments for me. And I think for Mark too. He said to me, the baby that people said wouldn't exist smiled back at me today. Early on when I first started off, I was kind of surprised to hear that so many patients were having such a hard time with, with Western medicine. I thought to myself, that doesn't sound like what I was raised to understand. And I expected this highly technological, advanced system of medicine to, to be consistently errorless and to be efficient and to be capable, at least capable. But for me to find out that so many people were being mismanaged and getting sicker was an astounding reality for me. I couldn't believe it. I thought to myself, well, they have the technology. They have the money. They have the slickness, if you will. I don't have any of those things. But what I can make up for is compassion, concern, interest. When I work with somebody, I'm just positively determined to make sure it's going to happen. So I had patients that are stacking me up with issues that I was unfamiliar with. There were miles over my head, but it didn't stop me. One of the most incredible things that I stumbled on with whole systems medicine was this interconnectedness. There are all these different energy zones in the body and different acupuncture zones, meridians, if you will, and there are different ways to address the imbalances of organ systems because of the interconnectedness of energy. Western world, we tend to think of those things as all separate. A kidney is a kidney, a liver is a liver, but they're all actually part of one electromagnetic family. 
Within the context of Ayurvedic medicine, food is, is one of the major forms of medicine. These are 4,000-year-old systems, so they had 4,000 years to work out the knots. How can you not embrace something that's been that well experienced? Everything is energetic. Everything. We're energetic. All our foods are energetic. The reactions we have with our foods are energetic. There's a system of energy here that says either good things are going to happen or bad things are going to happen with energy. So by eating a certain food, it supports your energy system. You're feeding your wellness, your, your ease. You're feeding your healthiness. With negative foods, you're actually feeding your disease, your sickness. So I think it's important to realize that virtually everything we think, everything we eat, everything we drink, every sip, every bite, every encounter, virtually everything we do is energetically tied to this reality of universal chi, life force. This idea that life force can be managed in order to make life better, that's really the basis and foundation of my work. My name is Adulio. About eight years ago, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's. My brother had it. Yeah, we saw his brother with the symptoms that he had, and I noticed the similarities in my husband. Our neighbor has Parkinson's. My former boss had Parkinson's all roughly a few years maybe before you, but their symptoms were a lot worse than yours. And then you started catching up to what they were going through. Well, I used to work extremely, used to do a lot of walking. I used to like stumble over my feet, sometimes fall. So he put me on uh, cinnamon pills. They helped a little bit, but not much. We'd all be walking along a group of us, and I'd turn around like, where's my husband? And he'd be lagging behind, trying. I could see the effort in him trying to reach us, and he couldn't. And that's when I'm like, well, this is really not good. And Doris, our close friend, knew Mark from previous situations, and she suggested we see him. And at first, we're like, we're still sticking with that position. He's got to do something right. And it started just getting worse and worse. And the swallowing was the scariest part. Yes. When he would be eating, he would always choke on his food. And they kept saying, well, we'll try something different. We'll try something different. And it just wasn't working for him. That, too, made me make the decision to go see Mark. I had my doubts, but it's getting worse. Uh, What what can I lose? Where your brother ended up, you didn't want that to happen to you. No, I didn't. He did kinesiology on him and told us exactly what he could and could not eat. Brought those little tube things and touched me with stuff where I can eat on my arm. I was like, who is this guy? <laughs> I was like, this ain't gonna work. No way. Mm-hmm. And it worked. He told him, 21 days, you are going to see a difference. We're both like, okay. So he said, when we left that day, I am determined to go and do what he said. And I'm like, okay, we'll see. When we got out of the office, we went to get the supplements right away. I went out, bought the organics and all that he needed. He lost 30 pounds in those 21 days. And I'm like, you are a different person. His movements, everything just, it was like, this is unbelievable. So like they say, you are what you eat, it's true. Yeah, it's like a miracle. I think you have to be careful about the concept of turning diseases into a bunch of labels, purely for the identification of a protocol that has a matching pharmaceutical drug or two. In the case of the bilio, viral inflammation was causing the symptoms that were mimicking symptoms of Parkinson's neurodegeneratively. Symptoms are the language of the body. The symptoms lead you to the source. Listening to the symptoms and not shutting them off, in my opinion, is a much better idea. When I go to my neurologist, they can't believe how well I'm getting. I walk two to three miles, three times a week. And it feels great before I couldn't do it because I used to like stumble over my feet, sometimes fall. Or even before I tie my shoes, I'd have like a hard time making a ball and tying it. I've been there for like the longest time. But now, no problem. We're dealing with human beings that are like universes under themselves. Complex, deep, 
it's important that we understand that to just give somebody a label is to disempower them. I want to empower them by giving them answers so that they can take care of their own situation at home. The way he's going now with how he's improved, if he didn't do that, I don't know how much longer he would be here. With what he's doing now, he's going to be around a lot longer. What exists before the physician? What exists is a body, primarily a body with some symptoms that need to be understood. And this is such a partial, small partial understanding of what this human being is before the physician. Helping medicine remember and come back to its roots is to help kind of heal current biomedical sciences and the practice of medicine. And these roots are the traditional whole medical systems. They've been at it a lot longer for millennia, typically, and they had enough time to figure out what a human being really is beyond the physical body. Ancient civilizations have always talked about the power of thought, for example, in affecting our consciousness and affecting our health. And through tools in psychoneuroimmunology and neuroscience, we now know that our belief systems greatly affect our health, and that's actually influencing our endocrine system and our central nervous system. It's affecting the patterning of energy and information in our bodies. And that's why the way that we think, the way that we feel, has such a powerful role in impacting our health. Orthodox medicine looks to quiet the symptoms. It's directed to the, the point of impact of the disease, the discomfort, the, the pain, the suffering. Somebody would go to a traditional Western doctor for a migraine headache. The doctor would give them a medication that would actually deaden the nerve endings so that you couldn't feel the inflammation in your head. It's still there. But you can't feel it. My way of dealing with that holistically would be to say, let's find out if it's the liver that's causing the problem. It could be a high concentration of indoles and phenols and different chemistries in the liver that's causing liver inflammation. It's sending this message to the body, to the head, in the form of pain called a headache. And it could be a food allergy or food sensitivity to wheat, to dairy, to any one of the number of possibilities. To me, the most important facet is to understand the dynamics, the physics, if you will, of the disease, to get to the root of what's causing the pain, the suffering, and to be able to work systemically within the context of imbalances that are existing in those systems. I don't want to just shut the pain off. You're not correcting the imbalance. And we could ask the question, does the current medical system, as it's commonly practiced in the U.S., foster, uh, does it mirror whole-person medicine? where a physician really has enough time to query the person, how they're doing, you know, their home life, their, their emotional life, and just you know, their physical life and symptoms, and we just don't see enough of that. My name is Michael, and I experienced sudden hearing loss. At first, I wasn't sure. I really didn't know about the severity of it. I didn't know if it was water in the ear from swimming at the beach, or I don't know what it was and was subsequently diagnosed with autoimmune sensory neural hearing loss. That was what I was told. Your immune system is out of whack. Your immune system is attacking your body, so we need to calm down your immune system. Treatment was um, prescribed steroids, and after a period of time, it seemed to work. And then about, I'd say, four or five years later, the hearing loss came back again. Again, was prescribed steroids. This time, it wasn't working quite as well as the first time. Call my doctor and say, hey, um, what's going on here? What's this, what's this supposed to kick in? How long is this supposed to take till I get my hearing back? And the response I got was, well, 
it's not coming back. You know, it might not come back. You know, it might might actually get worse. And the goal of this this treatment is to help stabilize where you are and try to keep it from getting worse as much as possible. It's not going to cure you. We actually don't know. But we have limited number of drugs, limited number of options to try. The only way we know if any of this works is if you tell us. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, aren't you driving the bus? The message was to learn to live with it and manage it. Hearing aids, uh, they talked to me about doing a consular implant. And I actually got hearing aids. Even with the hearing aids, hearing was still not not great. I was still having difficulty in conversations talking to people. I'm having a meeting, talking with someone in you know, a business setting, sitting across the table. I couldn't understand them. I couldn't hear them. It was, it was not manageable. So I said to the doctor, you know, I called him up, said, look, this isn't working, and we got to do something else. I tried managing it, and he said, sorry, there is nothing else. And I just realized that, you know, it's time to change course. You're not driving the bus anymore. Give me the keys. And that's when my first encounter happened with Mark. This chance happened. Mark moved into my building. He was just two offices down from me. I had heard about him from a number of sources, people telling me their experience, personal experience. In that first meeting, we spent about an hour, did his readings, his energy readings, muscle testing, asked me questions, interviewed me. Meanwhile, I'm sitting there with hearing aids and listening as best as I can. And then he says to me at the end of the hour, here's the problem. Your adrenal gland and your spleen, I think it was. That's the problem. That's the root of your problem. Here's how we're going to fix it. And he prescribed a diet and certain supplements, homeopathic approaches. I said, all right, well, listen, you can't eat X, Y, and Z. And I guess it's, it's easier to think of what I could eat because a lot of things were crossed off. And he says, if you do this, here's how long it's going to take. Here's the result you can expect. And when you come back here, you're not going to be around those areas. And I said, wow, okay. And I walked out of that office thinking to myself, I'm driving the bus. There's 600 different lymphatic filters in, in the main body. They filter germs, bacteria, viruses, allergens, endotoxins, constantly filtering these poisons out of the body. You want them to flow. You want them to move. Back to the idea of flow. If they back up, things get problematic in the head, the eyes, the nose, the throat, etc. That's exactly what happened to Michael. His hearing was backed up because of the fact that his lymphatic was swollen with a lot of debris that wasn't being filtered because the spleen was weak. Through an exposure to environmental mold, the mold had entered my body and become fungal. So what he was doing was cleaning that out. It was an adjustment for the diet, but it was very impactful. Hearing started improving, I would say, within a couple of weeks, probably. Yeah, then after three months, it was... I had actually, like I said, got rid of the hearing aids. I didn't need them. As a result of following Mark's protocol, I now have 90 to 100% of my hearing back. It is a maintenance as well. It's not the quick pill that we're all programmed to say, oh, you're one and done. But it's easy. It's a lot easier than you think. It's, it's actually very empowering. You know, it's a, it's a simple question. Do you want to be a slave to your palate and you want to be a master of your health? And I think most people will choose the latter.
basically science was predicated on the science of Isaac Newton's physics, which recognized the world or universe had two parts, a physical and an energetic realm, and that whatever was physical would be affected by physical things, and energy not being physical would not affect it. This led to the first separation in medicine of the separation of mind from body. Biology in, in the West, in fact, since the 17th century, has been modeled on the machine theory of life. The heart's a pump, the brain's like a computer, the eye's like a camera. They're mechanisms, they're machines. But the mind's got nothing to do with any of this. In fact, according to the mechanistic theory of life, the mind doesn't do anything at all. It's a kind of illusion or that hovers around the physical activity of the brain, but it doesn't really influence the brain because that's impossible in a mechanistic worldview. So when you think of mind and matter, it's two different things. Already you've broken simple laws of physics, laws of conservation of energy and matter, laws of thermodynamics. Lifting your hand has to be preceded by an intention. The hand can only lift if the hand and the intention and the source of the intention are the same entity. If they're two different entities, the hand won't lift. We have been steeped in an era of what we call materialism in medicine and science. So what does that mean? It basically means that we have been fed a belief system that we are separate and that we are only physical and that consciousness arises from physical processes such as brain function. Western medicine is missing the boat with half the equation of reality, which is energy. Castilian material love. That fundamental split is kind of an illusion of the reality of the whole person. So in that sense, Western medicine as it's currently practiced will never really be able to address the totality of healing of a human being. What does the word physical mean? Well, it comes from the word physis, which is the Greek word, which means nature. In fact, at the time of Newton, they called scientists, what we call today scientists, they called them natural philosophers. So physics is really about nature. Today, though, it has degenerated into something that says, well, it's material, it's something that's concrete, that's something that uh, I can touch, etc. Et and we know from physics that actually the touch that we have or feeling the boundary is an illusion in the sense that actually it's just electromagnetic forces. Atoms, which were supposed to be the smallest particle in the universe when physics was being created, turns out that they looked inside and they found there were smaller particles. Oh my God, there are electrons, protons, and neutrons. So there are smaller physical things. But then the revolution came and they said, well, what are those small things made out of? What's an electron or proton made out of? And then they come down in some kind of metaphysical world like quarks. I go, what does all this represent? It turns out there is no physical structure inside the so-called particles that create an atom. The atom is an illusion of matter. It's not real, it's an energy vortex. It's all like a nano-tornado. Einstein taught us E equals MC squared. Nobel Prize for, for teaching us about the theory of relativity. Energy and matter are interconvertible and transferable. Do you understand E is equal to MC squared? So you say, well, on one side you have E, energy, on the other side you have M, matter. So Einstein said matter and energy are equivalent to each other. Are you going to call it matter or are you going to call it energy? So maybe a better term is mass energy. One word rather than mass and energy. In 1931, Werner Heisenberg won the Nobel Prize for teaching us that energy makes up 99.999% of reality. 
We have our five sensory connections, our three-dimensional tendencies. So we're only able to see and perceive and, and connect with and communicate about and understand what we see and what we can touch and what we can feel. We don't go beyond that. So in modern quantum field theory, the only reality is vibrations of energy. Those vibrations of energy are called quanta, they're called particles, condensed forms of energy. Matter itself is made up of fields and energy. Energy is what makes things move, act, have activity, and fields are what give shape or form to the way the energy is organized. And if we take a step further, it starts to clarify a much bigger picture, that we are electromagnetic beings, we're energy beings, that everything is energy. Diseases are energy, viruses are energy, bacteria are energy. There's a process, there's a dance that takes place between our energy and the energies around us, within us. When we lower our frequency, our energy, our, our verb, our life force, we run the risk of lowering our electromagnetic frequency into a range that harmonizes with viruses that are capable of affecting our neurological beings. Albert Einstein's very famous quote comes right here. The field is the sole governing agency of the particle. Energy is the sole governing agency of matter. Energy is the force that shapes matter. We've excluded energy from all the sciences because they were Newtonian. It doesn't mean Newtonian science is wrong. It's just a small subset of a bigger science called quantum physics. And quantum physics is the energy universe that we live in. One thing that a number of healers say, regardless of their healing tradition, is they talk about information that is stored both within the body and outside of the body. The biofield is a set of interpenetrating and interacting fields of energy and information that guide our health. So you have kinesiologists and energy healers talking about how they can get information about a person's history, their memory, even their emotional state from informational fields around the body. What's the definition of field in physics? A simple definition? Invisible moving forces that influence the physical world. I go, well, this is amazing because ancient word spirit is invisible moving forces that influence the physical world. Quantum physics is giving us the insight that spiritualists had always talked about without a scientific foundation. Now, there's a science of energy. My name is Elizabeth. I had breast cancer in 1996. I went off on vacation, found something hard, and basically was filled with dread immediately from my first um, encounter with that lump. Within a couple of weeks, got the diagnosis, yes, you have breast cancer. It had to be um, chemo for six months and radiation for uh, three months. Then I, had, I first had a lumpectomy. And after the lumpectomy, in my heart, I felt that I was, it was gone. I felt like that's where I should end. But I was very fearful. I had two young girls, kindergarten, second grade. So I began the chemo, dreading it feeling like it was just the wrong, wrong thing to do. By the end of the six months, I was um, physically a wreck. It really took a toll on me. I um, felt so unwell in every way I can possibly describe. And I, I had no energy. I was nauseous. I felt weak. Um, eyelashes, eyebrows gone, hair, just to see the impact all over my body physically. But inside of me. Um, I just felt like I was 
a walking dead person. I had the life sucked out of me. I tried to stay on track in my life um, for my girls. So I would go in and help in the classroom as much as I could. But I just remember sitting in those little chairs in the kindergarten room and trying to do something with a child and just like, oh my God, just trying to get through the process and, and be up for them and be myself. Um, but it was hard. It was hard. When the six months were up, my daughter in kindergarten um, had a friend over for a play date. It was the very first time they played together. I didn't know her. I didn't know the mom. But when her mom came to pick her up, she pulled out an appointment card and handed it to me. And she said, this man can help you. I have an appointment with him next week, but I cannot make it. And if you were to try to see him, it would be months down the road. He has a, a long waiting list. So here, take this, go see this man next week. Uh, I had no idea who it was, why I was going, but I went. I just felt it was a strong message. I needed to, I needed to pursue this. So when I went to that appointment, um, my very first time meeting Mark, I can't even describe how different that appointment was from any doctor's appointment I'd ever experienced before. It was just a whole different world of talking about health, your body, disease, energy, your spirit. He just wove everything together versus just talking about your body and what drugs we're going to put you on next. There's a more meaningful experience that's taking place just based on the talk, just based on the conversation. So the minute you come in, you're feeling that you're being addressed at a deeper level in ways that you don't even address yourself, perhaps. He taught me things that I just had no idea were a part of wellness, like your pH. It's often too acidic, and that's the environment in which cancer cells thrive. And disease in general, cancer included, is an obligate anaerobe. That means it doesn't like oxygen. Disease can't live where there's oxygen. But by the same token, sickness manifests quite readily where there's not an alkalinity and not a lot of oxygen. Sugar produces a very strong acidosis in the body. Sugar, 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 sugar. I've been a sugar holic since I was a child. So that just made so much sense. He's an off a hair analysis and that um, yielded a lot of information about what was going on in my body in that moment and what we needed to do to bring ratios back into balance. And in that appointment, I just learned so very much. That was the beginning of my feeling empowered. Like I have a role in being well here. So we worked on my diet, worked through supplements and food to um, get me healthy again, make me feel like myself again. And I trusted everything he said. I took everything he said. And within a few weeks time, our family was going off on a ski weekend with uh, another family, our best friends. I was going with them, but I was just going to be staying in the lodge, not skiing, obviously, because I was had no strength or energy or the wherewithal anywhere in my body to do that. But when we got there, um, the first morning, everyone was going off to ski, and I, I thought, it's gorgeous out there. I actually feel pretty good. <laughs> Maybe I'll try this. So I got some skis, went out on the bunny slope, and... I just took off. I just, I said, I gotta go. I gotta try this. I, I think I can do it. And I did. And I literally was going down this hill singing and crying. Just filled with joy because I was back. I was back. It took a few weeks. That's all it took. 
eating properly, eating the right foods, taking the supplements that oh, brought me back to life in no time. It felt like a true miracle. It truly did. Healing is you breaking through the walls of limitation. It's building confidence. It's, it's building determination. It's reaching beyond your grasp. It's, it's, it's breaking through the thresholds that are binding you unconditionally. Every now and then people ask me when they learn I had breast cancer, how long has it been? And I do the math and it just amazes me. It's now been 22 years. There are all kinds of aspects of the biofield that we already know about and that we measure. So, for example, we can place electrodes in our head or on our heart, and we get these electromagnetic readouts, right, from EKG and EEG, and those tell us about our clinical condition, our heart health, and our brain. So those are aspects of the biofield. We can even study the biofield of cells. We can look at electromagnetic readouts of the cells, and we can look and see how using electromagnetic energies affect cellular health. That's pretty well known and studied, and it's really a booming area in regenerative medicine, for example. When we put electrodes across the body, which is done in hundreds of thousands of times every day in doctors' offices, you're measuring current flow. And whenever we have a current flow, you create a magnetic field. Every time the heart beats, it also produces an electromagnetic field. The heart's the largest source of rhythmic electrical energy in the body. So the heart's magnetic field can be measured with today's equipment about three feet from the body. We've actually proven and published now in peer-reviewed journals that the magnetic field of the heart is carrying emotional information. We currently have about 75% accuracy in knowing what the person's feeling, whether they're conscious of it or not. We are energy beings. And the biofield is the energy field of our bodies. And it's an organizing field. I believe that all of the chemistry and physiology of the body is controlled ultimately by the biofield. But still, the consciousness or the mind is the master of the biofield. And the biofield we see as a bridge between the mind and the body. Your energy field has the consciousness. It thinks. It feels. It's part of your living force. We're designed to react energetically to everything. It's part of our neuromuscular defense system. So again, if, you, if you're sitting at home relaxing and you hear a shot go off in the neighborhood, you're going to jump. That's part of your neuromuscular defense system trying to protect you. Our bodies are designed to react not just to those circumstances and those fashions, but everything. If I have you raise up your arm and I calibrate you and I say, look, if you hear negative images, negative thoughts, your arm's going to be weak. If I give you positive images love, happiness, you're going to get strong. In the same way, we can actually call out foods, wheat, dairy, and get you to react and respond. You line up 100 people, they're going to have different positives and different negatives. That's the beauty of everybody's energy field. Because you are a conscious, living, dynamic awareness. You and I are fields of living awareness. So we're tapping into that field of living awareness with intention. That's how we find out what's going on with the body. We tap in energetically, find out what kind of systems are breaking down and how we can build them back up and balance them. If somebody gets a migraine headache or a stomach ache, they're not thinking about energy. They're thinking about their physical properties. My head hurts. Your head, to you, is something material and physical. But I challenge people to think that when you get into the why, why does your head hurt? You start to move into energy. So your headache might happen because you ate a food that's causing an inflammation. That's the transference of energy. So again, 72% of all disease is inflammatory. But 99.999% of all activity is energetic. Inflammation is, a, is happening at an energetic level. 
My name is Helena. In 2009, I started getting headaches. My vision started getting worse. And I went to see a doctor. After MRI, she said, well, there is bad news. Uh, you have meningioma, uh, brain tumor, size of walnut in your head. And after I went to see a specialist, he said, there is nothing we can do besides surgery. There is two types of surgery. One, they go through your nose, and the other one... They open your skull. And since my tumor was too big, they couldn't remove it through the nose. They had to open my skull. The surgery was done. I think it was perfect. My vision came back after I was totally, completely blind. And uh, I started seeing again. I was very happy. I was very happy for a year. And about a year. And then my symptoms started coming back. I went to see a doctor again. And he did MRI, and he said, well, there is bad news, tumor come back most of the time, and it starts growing again. I asked, why? What is the reason? Why is it coming back? Why is it growing again? And he said, nobody knows. And at that point, I said, no, it's not coming back. It's not growing. I'm not going through second surgery again. And I start looking for some other ways and a friend of mine recommended me to see Dr. Minkola. At that point, I was ready for anything, just not to go through surgery again. My, my first appointment with uh, Dr. Minkola was surprising for me, actually. And he put his finger right here and then started pushing my hand down and asking questions like wheat, sugar, dairy. And every time my hand fell down, it meant that I, uh, I can't eat particular food. In order to avoid surgery, I need to change my diet and go strictly with everything what Dr. Minkola told me. I would have to come every month so he can adjust my diet through muscle testing and change some supplements. We all have a genetic map when we're conceived, and there's mutations on our genetic maps, potentials and possibilities for disease that can manifest in accordance with our hereditary patterning. But these can't express unless there's something to trigger them. Things like sugar and allergies like wheat allergies end up driving up the arachidonic acid levels, which drive up the leukotrienes and the COX-2 hormones. Many diseases follow this pathway of inflammation. My headaches start disappearing and I start feeling better. I think came back to normal life. And after about two years, I went to see my doctor to do MRI. He did MRI and he said, listen, I don't know what you're doing, but keep doing it. Your tumor is shrinking. It looks great. And he got very excited with my results. I've been tumor-free for nine years now, and I keep following diet. Sometimes I cheat a little bit, but in general, I follow Dr. Tinko's recommendations. The diet works, supplements. I think this is a miracle, the food, energy. It's incredible to know that with changing diet, you can shrink tumor and feel great again. Coming from a physical point of view, which is physics, of course, quantum physics, we quickly get to the point of what is the mind and how does the mind interact with, with matter, what is called matter, and what is the nature of reality. 
So these are deep questions, but they really come down to what, in fact, any human being experiences, which is our own mind. So when we talk about health, a lot of times, particularly in the West, we really mean health of the physical body. However, as the ancient Greeks first said, you know, you can't have a healthy body without a healthy mind. There's two little words, internal and external. When somebody has a bunch of problems like headaches, rheumatoid arthritis, stomach aches, whatever the case may be, we want to know if the lion's share of those problems, if most of those problems are, are being caused by something internal or external. Internal is spirit, emotion, thought. External is cells, tissues, organs, the body. So we want to make sure we have a distinction here. We know the difference between the internal self and the external self. Our culture has kind of programmed us to think of ourselves and associate and identify with ourselves from the perspective of physiological, the idea of external, as I would call it, cellular. We don't spend a whole lot of time going internally, but relating to the concept of self from an internal perspective. We don't understand emotional IQ or emotions. We don't understand spirit very well. We don't understand so many very powerful, powerful components of self that have a great deal to do with disease and healing. Now, one of the key messages of the Way of Miracles is that people have a very powerful internal self. People have a very powerful spirit. People have a very powerful emotional self, a very powerful mental self. These unseen, invisible, extrasensory components of self that, that exist beyond the, the parameters of the five senses are the missing link to human greatness. So there's two types of medicine. Prevention. Intervention. When it comes to acute disease, trauma, accidents, interventive medicine is essential. When it comes to chronic disease, chronic ailments, the expression of genetic weaknesses, etc. That's where holistic medicine shines. Every disease has a causal root. Every disease. Inflammation is going to push the buttons. Stress and tension is going to push the buttons. Trauma is going to push the buttons. Any of those circumstances, they're capable of triggering a lot of those genetic realities. Most people have been programmed with a belief about genetics. And in that science, we talk about something called genetic control, that the genes control our physical traits. But then we also went on to say that genes control our behaviors and emotions as well. And that leads to an understanding that we are victims of our heredity. Whatever is running in my family, I can anticipate that I shall likely express that as well. In contrast, there's a revolution, and the scientific revolution is based on a science called epigenetics. Epi means above. I said, well, what should I say above? I said, well, the environment. But then all of a sudden I say, yes, but between the environment and ourselves is a mind. <laughs> and so the mind not just reads the environment, but it also provides an interpretation of that environment based on our programming and learning experiences. Epigenetics can change the readout of the genes based on the signals from the environment. I can create over 3,000 different protein molecules from the same blueprint based on epigenetic control mechanisms. Since it's based on the environment and our perception of the environment, those are things that we can control. Genetics gave us the belief we were victims of heredity. And epigenetics turns the table because epigenetics says we are masters of our genetic control because we can control our perceptions we can control our environment. 
You know, about 50 years ago, the field of psychoneuroimmunology didn't even exist because in Western science, we didn't even believe that our mind and our emotions could affect our physical health. But that has changed dramatically. And over the last 50 years, we've not only learned that the brain is connected to the immune system and the hormonal system, but our emotions affect us deeply. More often than not, the root of disease is energetic. It's emotional imbalances that cause physical sickness. It's grief, it's anxiety, it's unresolved. So emotion that's unresolved puts us in a stress chemistry state that triggers the psychosomatic response, bridging from immaterial to material. The mind and the body are one thing. They're one field of energy. There's more chemistry that's produced in your brain than there is in the downtown pharmacy. As we think, so, so does our body go. The nervous system is perception, reading the environment. But the mind is an interpretation of the perception. When the brain interprets through the mind that this is a stress, it's usually time to engage what is called fight or flight. I got to get out of here. I got to save my life or I got to engage. I got to do something. I said that engagement involves arms and legs. When we're at rest and at peace, the blood flows principally into the viscera and into the head where we nourish the organs that keep us healthy, maintain our bodies, and just watchdog of how the system is working. Stress hormones cause the blood vessels in the gut to squeeze shut. That pushes the blood to the outside. It shuts off maintenance of the body. The immune system is one of the most energy-using systems in the body when it's working. Stress hormones shut down the immune system to conserve energy so we can use that energy for fight or flight from the exterior threat. And then there's a last one, which I always call insult to injury, because the blood vessels in the forebrain conscious area squeeze shut. That pushes the blood to the hindbrain, which is reaction, reflex, no thinking, response. And so... The three effects of the stress hormone, shutting down the growth and maintenance, shutting down the immune system, and it shuts down intelligence because thinking is too slow in an emergency response. In today's world, stress is 24-7, 365. We were never physiologically designed to have that interference with growth in the immune system and intelligence for long periods of time. So now it turns out up to 90% of illness on this planet is directly connected to stress. All the while, while we're being raised and we're moving through our earlier period in life, there's a soul that's observing silently all of our life process. We touch upon it from time to time. We get closer and then further away. The challenge is to lock into it, to identify with it as source, as true self. We have a conscious mind that processes 2,000 bits of information per second. We have a subconscious mind that processes 400 billion bits of information per second. The conscious mind is in the moment, thinking about life, solving problems. The subconscious remembers everything. You could take a drive from here to New York. You look at a license plate. You look at a tree in the distance. That's stored forever in your subconscious mind. Superconscious is entirely different. It's referred to spiritually as the Atman or the Brahman. It's higher thought. It's elevated thought. It's limitless thought. To attain that higher consciousness is ironically a matter of doing less, not doing more. We can develop and become aware of superconsciousness through a lot of meditation, prayer, going within ourselves, operating at a deeper level beyond our mundane level of consciousness. Most of us live in beta brainwave states. Stress, stress, stress. Stress can be dealt with in a variety of different ways. 
one of the most important ways is deep meditation. Meditation, prayer, yoga, dance. There are a number of different ways, but really the key is simply to drop into an awareness of the subtle in every moment, letting our minds quiet and really allowing ourselves to feel deeply in our bodies. You start to quiet the mind through your meditation. You move into the meditative state, which is alpha, and things start to slow down. When things slow down, possibilities open up. You start to move closer and closer into the superconscious realm by calming our nervous system at a deep, deep level, by cultivating peace. Cultivating peace means you don't embrace negativity. You don't get stuck on it. You move past it. It's the question of whether you're controlling your mind or your mind is controlling you. My name is Elizabeth. I basically just grew up a really sick kid. I was in and out of children's hospital multiple times per week for periods of time growing up. Always had a cold or some sort of virus or flu or scarlet fever or mono. I had like pre-diabetes or was pre-diabetic, um, hypoglycemic. When I was 18, I was a freshman in college. I woke up one morning with debilitating pain, like truly debilitating. I went to the ER then and eventually after lots of tests found out that I had pancreatitis. Doctors were not sure why at first. They did more tests and tried to figure it out and eventually they found out that I had an atypical form of cystic fibrosis. I just read a lot of stuff about typical cystic fibrosis and how life expectancy can be very young, mid-30s, younger. That was just, I would say, a tough time in general, starting to think about these things so young and wondering what was going to happen in the future. Another doctor that was really significant during this time was my GI. I remember one of the first questions I asked him after I got diagnosed, will I still be able to study abroad? Like, is this still possible? And I was all excited. And he kind of paused. And I remember he looked down at me and he was like, we'll try our hardest to get you over there. I just kind of realized this is serious. My mom made an appointment for me with Dr. Mancola, who was recommended to her by a family friend of ours. My mom and I came prepared with like my massive file. And I remember being like, do you want to see my blood work? <laughs> it's like, no, I don't need any of that. Elizabeth was a little bit of two different issues converged. Her pancreatitis, of course, had a lot to do with carbohydrates, starches, sugars, processed foods. I think that her Atypical cystic fibrosis is more correlated with a lot of the stress that she was under, as well as her diet, which had to be largely an anti-inflammatory diet as well. He gave me a list of foods and he said, basically, eat these foods and eat, don't eat these foods because these foods react well to your body and these foods don't right now. The things he was telling me to cut out were things like wheat, gluten, dairy, soy, corn, yeast, vinegar, nuts, seeds. Yeah, we walked out, I think, kind of unsure if I was really going to stick to his protocol and if it was really going to work. And then, oddly enough, I woke up the next morning with pancreatitis and had to go to the hospital. I realized in a big way that I have a pretty high level of responsibility when it comes to my health and decided to follow Dr. Mancola's recommendations to a T. Once I kind of got a ways into following the protocol, realizing that I could get healthy and was getting healthy and was healthy, it really made me realize that I and we have the capacity to heal ourselves 
I was like, why is not everybody shouting this from the rooftops? All this time, my body was trying to talk to me. It was almost like it spoke a language that I didn't understand. It suddenly opened up all of this space to explore other things. Like, how can I become even healthier? And how can I not only make my body healthy, but how can I make sure my mind and my spirit are healthy? We worked spiritually with her quite a bit, trying to get her to understand that she didn't have to carry her stress in a daily nervous system that was peaked. A lot of people just don't edit their stress, they carry it. And I think that we talked to her a lot about changing her whole chemistry at an emotional and a mental level as well and not, not accepting that stress. Eventually, a couple of years later, really, I did kind of look back and realize, like, I'm living the way that I was told I wouldn't be able to live. I think that moment happened while I was studying abroad. You could say, like, maybe proving my GI doctor wrong, who seemed to not have a lot of faith in the possibility of me going over there. The biggest thing that this whole journey has given me and seeing Dr. Mancola has given me is a new relationship with myself and the way that I interact with myself. There is some level, I believe, of the divine in all of us. I think we're here to recognize that in each other. Emptiness, clarity, openness, flow is the direction we need to start operating our minds in. And to understand that we can apply it to making miracles. Miracles are exceptional. They're extraordinary. In order to produce extraordinary possibilities, we need to use our extraordinary machinery. There's nothing more powerful than the superconscious mind. Regeneration is inherent in all life. And this enables the ability to recover from diseases, wounds, and injuries. We have it, of course, in wound healing. You get a cut or a scratch, and then it heals itself. The skin heals up. The human body is actually not a thing, but a process. And it's a process of recycling. The blood is being regenerated all the time, and the intestinal lining and the skin is continually being replaced. So this ability to heal and regenerate is just intrinsic to the very nature of life. Humans were healing and regenerating and recovering from diseases long before doctors came along or even shamans. In fact, everything that's alive on the planet today has had ancestors that have survived for several billion years. Otherwise, none of us would be here. So we rely on this intrinsic healing capacity of the body. And the healing capacity is influenced by nutrition, environment, it's also influenced by emotional and mental factors. Your consciousness is translating your experiences into chemistry, and that chemistry could be chemistry that supports health or chemistry that supports protection. So we find ourselves in a mutual exclusive situation. Am I in growth or am I in protection? I say, well, then it's based where your thoughts are. We've been very interested in the phenomenon of gratitude, uh, particularly in our cardiac patients. It's really been remarkable in the sense of the literal power when you help a person activate and engage in some of these foundational, I consider them attributes of the soul itself, and bring it more as a daily activity and practice and perception in their life, they change. Uh, spiritually get healthier and depressed mood uh, reduces, their fatigue level reduces. We've done a lot of blood work on these patients looking at traditional biomarkers of cardiac function. These go down dramatically, which... Normally it doesn't happen, but 
But for example, we had a group of patients randomized keeping a gratitude journal. And we asked them every day, please write down two or three things that you're grateful for. At the end of those eight weeks, the patients who had been assigned to gratitude journaling had about a 24% reduction in the inflammatory load as we measured it. And the patients who continued as usual care, they either stayed the way they were, or they got a little bit worse over those two-month periods. So this is very powerful. When we're feeling things like compassion, love, gratitude, kindness, we naturally go into more heart coherence, which is if you look at it on the graph, it's kind of a sine wave-looking rhythm. But to have that rhythmic pattern means a lot of beneficial things had to go on inside of our body for that to occur. So it's reflecting not only increased synchronization within the different parts of our brain and nervous system, but synchronization between our blood pressure rhythms, our heart rhythms, our respiratory rhythms, the heart and brain, they get majorly more synchronized. So it's we now know many hundreds of studies later that this is an optimal state when you're feeling frustrated or anxious or overwhelmed or these types of feelings the heart's rhythm, the pattern of it, becomes very chaotic looking. So that is literally reflecting a lack of synchronized activity within the brain and nervous system. And I think that's why a lot of people call them negative emotions. And when people are depressed, and that's a common feature typically of cardiac disease, uh, depression itself tends to be a phenomenon of contraction in the world. People feel more and more isolated. But gratitude as a practice is, is an opening. It's a willingness and a reopening out to the world around them, and that's what the patients would report. While we talked about what fear does, releasing the stress hormones into the system that readjust the physiology of the body, we also have to recognize that love also releases chemistry, but totally different chemistry than fear. Love releases wonderful chemicals such as dopamine, pleasure. We release vasopressin. That makes the partners attractive to each other, so that holds that bond. The bonding is from oxytocin released in love, which says connect with this source of love and growth hormone. And that name is obviously, it causes the growth and maintenance of the system because love is the chemistry of health. Stress is the chemistry of protection. So I say, well, then I'm changing the environment inside based on the consciousness. The fundamental common element has to do with connectivity. The average person lives a life of perceived separation from other people in their environment, uh, from the world itself. And I think since that is a fundamental illusion, the presence of that illusion in the person's psyche is always a bit of a strain and a stress as the time goes on. The mind is not the brain. The brain is a biological form that lives inside your skull. It's like a heart, a liver, a kidney, and a gallbladder. But the mind is a very different property. It's an infinite property. I always like to say that the brain is somewhere, the mind is everywhere. We have an understanding that consciousness, which is controlling our biology, is in our head. We put wires on a person's head, it's called electroencephalograph. I'm reading brain function. I say, yeah, but where is it? It's inside the head. And electrical activity is conducted to the skin. That's where the electrodes pick it up. There's a new device called magnetoencephalograph, not EEG, MEG. And this is mind-blowing. The probe doesn't touch the body at all. The probe is out here, and they're reading the consciousness activity of your brain. Stop. <laughs> the point is this. Your thoughts are not contained in your head. You are broadcasting your thoughts into the field. Many of us have had experiences of being around someone where we left feeling really charged up. 
or the opposite, we felt drained. My emotions actually go beyond my skin. They affect others. My thoughts actually affect the field of energy around me and can affect others. When we're in the heart coherent state, loving, compassionate, kind states, several studies are now showing that that actually has a lifting effect on the others within our field. So our nervous systems seem to be exquisitely tuned to the magnetic fields produced by other people. Everything made out of energy is interconnected because energy has no barriers. That means everything in the universe is part of the same energy. (laughs) And that means no separation. Ancient medical systems were based on spiritual traditions that understood the interconnection between spirit, earth, the elements, our bodies, and our emotions. They are all connected. Now, this may seem, you know, really like, how does that work? But basically, they had worked out these systems really well. And what we experience is pain, depression, is really due to a lack of harmony within ourselves and our environment, right? So it's really based on a different cosmology. From a biofield point of view, the biofield is basically giving us information about our sense of harmony with ourselves and our environment. So when acupuncturists talk about stuck energy or an energy healer says, you know, you've got energy stuck in a particular chakra or a meridian. What they're talking about is an imbalance in the system that you know, needs to be moving towards harmony. And so the more we pay attention to these subtle aspects of being, the energetic feelings that we get from everything around us, from our emotions, our thoughts, our interactions, the more we're realizing we're not separate. My name is Diane, and I've been a patient of Mahatman Kohler's for 36 years. One of the main issues that we addressed uh, during those 36 years was my being an addict. I gave up alcohol when I was 26, and I went on to bigger and better things, uh, thinking nothing. I didn't even think I was an addict, really. And I'm in the music business, so in the 70s, cocaine was it. It was great to have it. It was. I was powerful. I was... I could give it to everybody and celebrate. And I was told that it was not an addictive drug. That's not true. And for the next eight years after I started, it was it was pretty much a living hell. I functioned. I worked. I did all the things you do. But spiritually, I was just getting broken down. I was going to a therapist. I was very messed up. And I didn't feel well physically. And he said, there's only one person I know for you to go to. And I was so desperate, I didn't care who it was at that moment, I thought. And then I walked into his office, and um, I left saying, I'm not going back there. He's, he's just not a good fit for me. He's too arrogant. So I went back to therapy, and I progressively got worse, mentally, physically, spiritually. And um, the physical aspect was getting horrible, and the therapist said, uh, I can't help you if you don't want to see Mark Cola. you got to go. And I walked in. And I told him I didn't like him. I told him I thought he was arrogant, but that I was desperate and I needed someone to help me. And I sat there with my arms like this the whole time in fighting mode. And he looked at me at one point and he said, I'm here for you. Forever, whatever, doesn't matter. You can be whoever, because I said, I'm not giving up cocaine. He said, that's okay. That's okay. I'm here for you. And that was it. So when a patient like Diane comes in and sees me, I just made it my number one obligation not to go to her spirit, but to go to my soul. Because if I go to your spirit, I'm going to go down with you. Part of the reason energy is contagious is because you're coming from a place that's not source. So the person that's with you is not in source. Guess what? You're not going to be in source. So by the same token, 
Diane comes in. She's in broken spirited mode. I'm not going there. I'm going to my soul. I'm going to ground both of us. There's a contagion there that's more powerful. When I went there, I strictly went there for physical purposes, I thought. But there's something about him. When you walk in his office, he knows who you are. Not your mind, not your story. He knows the essence of your being. And right away, the, the healing starts. I was living thinking, well, I came from messed up background. And I blamed it on everybody. And, and, and I didn't know what the root of it was. So self-contempt is something that's been programmed in our lives. We tend to feel shame, doubt. We tend to feel negative feelings about the concept of self being deserving. I would say, I want you to picture yourself as a child. Go home and search through all your photographs. Find yourself as a five-year-old kid, a six-year-old kid, and look at that picture of that five or six-year-old. There's two things I want you to look for, deservedness and innocence. After years and years of living in this world, we tend to lose the innocence. We tend to lose the sense of deservedness. We associate our deservedness with our innocence. So can we associate deservedness with the loss of innocence? That's extremely important. Can we forgive ourselves for growing up? To really overcome dis-ease, we have to be willing to embrace and forgive ourselves for being adults and to love ourselves at a core level. Not at an ego level. Not, we, don't, we don't want to love ourselves conditionally. I'm not talking about loving yourself because you won the lottery. I'm talking about having a core love of that child that was five and six years old that's still living in your heart. He would do that work on me to go in and, and really nurture myself. So I was able to reflect on the kindness that I do have, the tenderness, the, the, the love. And all he wanted me to do was instead of putting it all on the outside was to take it in and put it on the inside. I got off the cocaine, didn't drink, but sugar was the essence of an addiction that, again, I was a little kid. I'm three years old. I had a tooth pulled. They gave me a lollipop. I did something else. I fell down. A doctor gave me ice cream. So to me, sugar was nurturing. It was loving. And little did I know what it was really doing to me also. I was getting progressively sick again, just filled with mucus to a point where I thought I had pneumonia. It was horrible. And I lived like that, and I thought I was dying, and he kept saying, Diane, you've got to give up the sugar. you got to give it up. Addiction is compensation for hurt. I have a hole in my heart that doesn't heal. Addiction takes sugar, love, money, whatever, from the outside and attempts to patch up that hole in the heart, which lasts for a short period of time. To heal the heart from the inside out, is to occupy your own heart with your consciousness, to venture and journey into your own heart, to admit the pain, to acknowledge the pain, to confront the pain, to feel the pain, all the way through. That pain transformed things in me where I have been reconnecting with letting go of the fight. Some people can be addicted to substances, they can be addicted to behaviors. I think control is one of the most powerful addictions that I see every day. One of the most powerful healing agents. When people finally get clear about the fact that by letting go, they support flow and not resistance. I would cry a lot. I would feel. And I didn't even want to feel. I certainly didn't want to cry in an office, you know, like that. But that's his magic. That's one of his magics, that he can just penetrate the heart.
And eventually, I, I had a very uh, profound spiritual experience. Uh, it just hit me between the eyeballs to get on my knees and ask God for help. And I gave up sugar. I haven't had sugar other than some food or in eight or ten years, which is a miracle. I knew I could go somewhere where somebody unconditionally cared about me and was willing to hold the space until I caught up with it. I didn't have Mark and Cole in my life, and I just went to a psychiatrist, a regular one, or I went to a regular doctor. Not putting them down. Everybody has their purpose. But in my life, I don't think I'd be here today. We misidentify with the persona, the mask, the after, as you mentioned, Greek drama or tragedy or comedy. They were wearing masks. As an actor, we wear a mask. Let me propose that as human beings, we are what is known as human nature. It's a mask. When you take it off, that mask, what is behind? We're programmed in this culture and in the Western world to believe that self is a personality with an ego. And self is all about value that has has to do with performance at a certain level, I guess I'd say. Having a, a doctoral degree in health, all these things make me more attractive to myself. But if I don't have those things, or if I lose those things, then I'm suddenly not worth my own love, my own attention, my own care. And I'm not feeling loving. I'm not feeling complete. I'm not feeling whole. So I think it starts with a re-identification of self, not as an ego, not as a personality, not as a cellular being, but as a soul. It's much easier to love a soul than it is an ego. A lot of people that I counsel get in their own way and don't don't really know it. They're not, not totally aware of it. But there's a lack of faith in self. There's a lack of love in self, a lack of belief in self, a lack of willingness to accept power. It kind of intimidates people. Little old me having power, I don't know if I trust that. I don't know if I deserve that. The fundamental thing that really all healers say, that really is the common denominator of what healing is, it's not about curing. It's not about ridding ourselves of something that we don't want. It's turning towards that which causes us suffering and holding it in a space of love. And what they're doing is helping us open to that space of love. And fundamentally, it's for us to love ourselves because everything in the outside world is a reflection of our inside world. Healing in part on the level of the mind is to be able to um, have a deeper understanding of the expansiveness of our own nature. You know, there's a field of uh, what's called transpersonal psychology which endeavors to understand the different features and times when, when, when that phenomenon can occur. If a person has this belief that they are their thoughts or some specifics of their environment, and something happens, whether it's a beautiful sunset, for example, where they just go a little bit beyond that current identity they believe themselves to be, and they find there's something, they're a little bigger, or they encompass more than they thought. That's a transpersonal phenomenon, as it's called. And so many realms of healing, I believe, attempt to induce these effects. We need to understand that we're capable of tapping into an inner self that's a higher self, emanating from the soul self, a higher self, more than capable of performing miracles. What is that invisible, formless, infinite entity that knows itself as the experience that we call the visible or the material. What is that? And do you know it? Do you know who or what you are? At the ego level, there's separation. There's compartmentalization. 
it's a super conscious, higher level, the Atman level, the Brahman level. There's only one. There's no more than one. Healing is the return of the memory of wholeness from the fragmented mind to the whole mind. And finding out that you're a timeless being having a time-bound experience. In the Bhagavad Gita talks about the soul that is impervious. The arrows can't pierce it, the swords can't pierce it. The spirit can be broken, the heart can be broken, the body can be broken, the mind can be broken, the soul can't be broken. For four years we planned this documentary and to my mind we were thinking in terms of bringing patients in that had gone through remarkable, miraculous recoveries. I never dreamt for a minute that I'd be involved in that process. Unexpectedly, I contracted Lyme disease and lo and behold, it just pulled the legs out from under me. I lost my balance. I started to have tremors. I lost my strength. The pain was just indescribable and it was so difficult for me to to, to contend with because it seemed to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And it was worsening for four years. So one night I fell, hit my head. I was on the floor for 14 hours, unable to move. I was paralyzed. To be isolated in your own mind, not knowing to what extent you're paralyzed, has a way of just isolating you within your own soul. There's talk about meditation being a process where you get into your into your core self in the form of pure consciousness, awareness, not thought. When I say my soul self, I landed in this place of pure awareness. I just wasn't able to think in that place, which is exactly what I needed. There's a point at which we make a decision to live or die, where we can cross over the line. I'm convinced that our spirits can commit us to the other side. And at that point, I had to walk to the end of my life in my mind and see who I was and what I wanted. So I had to make a decision as to whether I was willful about living or willful about not living anymore. I went to the edge of that cliff and I came back. And I finally was was rescued off the floor. There was a 10-day period where I was unable to walk, unable to move. I had to be carried to the bathroom because I didn't know that I'd ever get my walking back. I never knew that I'd get my strength back. I thought I was permanently, perhaps permanently paralyzed. And that's a, that's a hell to live through, not, not knowing. So I finally had gone to the hospital and spent four days in the hospital and then a week in a rehab. They weren't sure that I was going to be able to walk either. Their determination was I wasn't going to get better. I was going to stay the same or get worse progressively. My first week in the rehab hospital, I was in the gym every day walking with walkers, doing the exercises I was given. And they were shocked at how much time I spent there and how hard I pushed. I was determined to create my healing energetically impose the most powerful energy that I could to heal. To me, everything is energy. Energy is about frequency. It's about vibration. In the truest sense, I believe that disease begins with dis-ease. The dis-ease in my life started long before the symptoms of Lyme disease. And dis-ease begins with a certain level of self-ignorance. There's a place deep within that has to be connected with, that keeps us well, that keeps us from being dis-eased. I found that place in the bathroom floor after about 14 hours. Embracing miracles automatically insinuates that you have to embrace the difficulty, the sickness, the stress, the thing that brought you to a potential miracle. Holism is always happening. We're always exposed to both sides of the universal process, yin and yang, dark and light, pain and joy. You need to embrace the whole and make a decision to embrace wholeness as it is, not as we'd like it to be. 
Part of my miracle recovery is all about being unified between mind and body, coming from the soul and merging all parts of self in unity. I don't do anything against myself anymore. Everything has to happen in flow. There's a certain level of BS that we go through in this world. I had a lot less of that going on. Consciousness interacts with everything because consciousness is everything. Because its very nature is to create. We fall into the trap, our own trap. It is our own trap. I want to emphasize that. People say, no, it's not my trap. You know, somebody created for me. My parents created. Okay, maybe somebody created for you. But now, who are you? You're repeating the trap of somebody. It, ultimately, it is your own trap. You're trapped by your own mind. The baseline of our embracing of a reality at a cultural level comes from our downloading, our programming. I'm not strong enough to make a miracle. I'm not powerful enough to make a miracle. Somebody else can make miracles. I can't. The Buddha can do that. Jesus can do that. Muhammad can do that. I can't do that. That's a mistake. That's a big mistake. Making a miracle is a possibility. But it begins with seeing it. It begins with accepting the possibility of being very real. One of the aspects of that formless, non-local, infinite being is that it can modify itself as intention. So intention is inherent in consciousness. So as a culture, we're at a place, we've arrived at this place where we desperately need to think in terms of possibilities, infinite possibilities, if you will. We need to think in terms of reformatting our ethos in a way that is not skeptical or doubtful, but rather expectancy-oriented. We're the creators of miracles. I think it's not a matter of waiting for miracles anymore. It's a matter of rolling up our sleeves and taking up the creatorship of miracles. Consciousness is creating our life experiences, and biology now demonstrates it at the level of our experiences are manifest by this nervous system, which are broadcasting it in the field, affecting what's going on outside, affecting what's going on on the inside. Change your thoughts, you change your biology. Change your thoughts, you change the world you live in. Sickness, illness, disease, long-term fights, long-term stress produces really negative walls of energy, and they get thicker every day. They don't go away. You just, you're just kind of sucking it up, showing up for another day of life. It's another day of unhappiness. People have such thick, locked energy fields to convince them that they have the power and the, and the potential and the likelihood, the certainty even, of healing, of breaking through the threshold, putting a slit in this wall, splitting it apart and walking through it. Yeah, I can't, I can't cross the threshold because I don't have enough money. I don't have enough money to get divorced. I don't have enough money to buy health food, organic food. I don't have enough money, strength, and time in my life. I'm too old, blah, 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 blah. There's never an excuse. And there's never anything in the way in your way but you. And to take that step to say, I'm breaking through. No ifs, ands, or buts. No conditions. No conditions. We're not going to wait until it's sunny for this to happen. We're doing it right now. We're trying to help bring medicine back to its roots and medical roots prior to the advent of what we call the biomedical model in the West or allopathic medicine. We're trying to cultivate the understanding of the importance of those elements of the whole person and to bring them into 
the practice fully of medicine and the importance of the emotions, the importance of the psyche, the importance of recognizing the spiritual nature, we could say consciousness nature of the person. That is when healing can occur. East is east and west is west. We've learned about material life here and they learned about energetic life over there. I think it's time we bridge the two and actually started to kind of make a wholeness out of it. And I think it's all about the holism of life, not the, not the compartmentalism. When we move from the model of pathogenesis, okay, the study of disease and getting rid of disease, to a model of salutogenesis, a model of healing and harmony, where we recognize there's a disharmony within us. So instead of trying to get rid of our pain or get rid of our depression or our anxiety, we're actually looking towards it and we're saying, what's here? Can I hold this space for a minute and allow what needs to come up to come up so that it can transform into the next step? And that's where harmony is restored and that's how healing really is happening. Healing is a unique process. And I want to say that healers are everywhere. There's a healer in everybody. There's a healer within all of us. So to address each other from a deeper place, to address our own lives from a deeper place, is a, is a way to heal the planet. What do you say? Trust the force. <laughs> Listen to that silence this, these folks talking about. <laughs> in between the silence, in between the moments, you'll hear it and it's, you just gotta slow down, sit down, shut up and feel it. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. It'll hit you upside the head faster than Tony Soprano. <laughs> I guess that's pretty fast. Hold on. That's pretty fast. <laughs> well, we're going to jump now to something. Uh, George Nury is interviewing a gentleman named Dr. Harley Rothbart. And... It's called Accepting Miraculous Change. 
So Dr. Harley Rothbart has seen many miracles in the course of his work as a pediatric physician. Tegan. Even describing how viruses can be miracles. Founder of the Miracles Project. He is even describing how viruses, uh, excuse me, he is even describing, yeah, how viruses can be miracles. Founder of the Miracles Project. He is dedicated to shining a light on the power of wonder and contentment in the world. In this inspiring conversation, Dr. Robert describes his views of good and evil, his personal spiritual journey, and how we can change our perspective to find the capacity for miracles in adversity. Good time for that. Ready, Rama? Yeah. Here we go. This is 42 minutes. Hmm. inspirational writer, if you will, ah, is very different than my first career as a evidence-based clinician and scientist. You've seen miracles in your life, haven't you? I have. That gap between scientific knowledge and what's really out there is where there's room for God. Who creates the miracles? Is it us or are we tapping into something? The capacity to create miracles exists within every one of us. We don't know who's going to be affected by what we do, but people are going to be affected by what we do. And that's where we can create miracles. We got the power. So welcome to Beyond Belief. Dr. Harley Rothbard is back with us, an internationally renowned infectious disease specialist. He's a pediatrician, a parenting expert, a speaker of all things great, and an educator. He's a professor and vice chair emeritus at the University of Colorado School of Medicine, author of more than, get this, 175 medical and scientific publications, as well as at least five books for general audiences. How many books do you have out there? Five or more? Six now. That's what I thought. Thanks. My God, they keep coming. (laughs) And the name of the latest book is? No Regrets Living, Seven Keys to a Life of Wonder and Contentment. We're going to go through some of those seven keys, but Harley, how have you been? Thank you. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I had a chance to speak with you on the radio, and it's nice to see you in three dimensions. We had great response to you when you were on Coast to Coast. Thank you. Just absolutely stunning. Thank you. How did you get involved in the field you're in today? Well, my uh, my current career as a sort of inspirational writer, if you will, is very different than uh, my first career as a evidence-based clinician and scientist. And it really began um, about 40 years ago with two parallel motivations. One of them was the death of my dad. Uh, my, my dad was uh, a concentration camp survivor, a European immigrant, and um, he died uh 
tragically, of pancreatic cancer at a very young age, before he had a chance to meet my wife, to know his grandkids. Um, but I also did not have a chance to know him as well as I wish I would have. I, um, I don't know what his worldview was coming out of the camps on God, on fate, on the Messiah. Right. Um, and, and I, I'm sorry I didn't ask. I was in the go-go years of my young adulthood and there just wasn't a lot of time to sit down and talk. And the second motivating factor was that, uh, also 40 years ago, I took care of a child in the intensive care unit at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia, who, uh, for all intents and purposes, was dead. Um, he was in a prolonged coma and was never going to come out of it. Then he walked out of the hospital fully recovered. My God. Exactly. And those two um, events led me to ask colleagues if they had had similar miraculous or unexplainable, unforgettable clinical experiences. And that resulted in a book five years ago called Miracles We Have Seen that I wrote. And it was a collection of 85 essays from the most respected physicians in the country describing cases that they could never forget, the outcomes that they could never have predicted, miraculous cases. And those essays were filled with a, the dilemma of faith versus science, of belief versus medicine. And I wanted to expand on that. And the No Regrets Living project that I then undertook was to try and further explore the relationship between faith, God, and evidence-based medicine and science. Is there a mixture between the two that makes it work? Yes, I, I believe, and I, and I use that word, um, uh, it selectively. I believe that science is evidence for God. Now, I'm an evidence-based, right. an evidence-based physician, evidence-based scientist. I believe in the Big Bang. I believe in science. I believe in the science that I generated in my laboratory for many years. I believe in that science. I believe in it unless and until it's proven wrong. And we think back to the time of Hippocrates, who had the theory of the four humors and the four temperaments, which now as scientists and physicians, we laugh at. And someday we may laugh at the theory of the Big Bang. We may laugh at the theory of virus origins. But for right now, I'm a believer in science. But I'm also a realist. And I appreciate all that we do not learn from science, everything that we'll never learn from science. And there, that gap between scientific knowledge and what's really out there is where there's room for God. Absolutely. And it's, it's so refreshing to hear this come from a man, a man of science because that doesn't happen a lot. Hearing myself talk and trying to project what my colleagues are hearing when they hear me talk, uh, it might sound a little kind of uh, ethereal, a little mystical. And I do have a mystical uh, sense, but I'm, I'm really firmly rooted in science. And there is nothing, nothing about anything that we know about science that disproves the existence of something greater out there. I don't, I use the word God. Everyone else has a, can have a different, a different explanation, a different term. 
But there's something else that's out there. There has to be because there's so much that we don't understand and that we'll never understand. There's a Gaia program called Sacred Power. And Caroline Mace talks about the modern nature of God. How we understand the nature of God is undergoing the most significant transformation in the history of humanity. Hi, I'm Carolyn Mace. And we can't talk about sacred power without talking about God. Never before has humanity experienced this level of disengagement from religious traditions or the very question of the existence of God. Now, think about that. Think about that. The fact that for the first time in the history of humanity, a vast majority of people are questioning the existence of God. For every choice, there's a consequence. What's the consequence of high percentage of people in a society questioning the existence of God? And I'm not speaking to you from the position of, let's say, fundamentalism where, or Armageddon, where I'm warning you that the fires of hell are going to come raining down because <laughs> I don't believe in any of that. I just, Good. <laughs> I'm talking pure mystical law that there's a cause and there's effect. There's action and there's reaction. And that we live in a universe where our thoughts and our collective consciousness holds together the world that we live in. So when a high percentage of the population begins to question the nature of God, what happens to the collective, the global, the different pockets of society? Anger, division, and disdain at traditional religion's inability to keep up with the needs of a modern devotee has only encouraged people to become very distant from religions that they've been connected to. She's basically telling us, Harley, as you've said, that there is a God. She is, and she's also asking a critical question that I'm going to try to answer. And that is, what happens, what are the consequences of people and increasing numbers of people not believing in a higher power, in something greater than ourselves? And the consequences are in the newspaper every day. In the newspaper every day, we are confronted by um, evil. Evil. We are absolute evil. And um, I, I mentioned it earlier the consequence of not believing in God is the Holocaust. It is genocide around the world after the Holocaust and before the Holocaust. It's mass shootings. It is a disregard, a disrespect for our fellow humans. Why? Because we don't feel as if we're answerable. We don't feel as if there is a consequence to our actions. And that is ultimately the the consequence of of more and more people not believing in something greater than ourselves. We are not the be all and the end all. I've always wondered about somebody who goes into a factory or a work environment, shoots it up, kills six people, then kills themselves. Right? Mm-hmm. Why did they do that? Why don't they just end their own life first and get over with it? Right. I think it's uh, there's a combination of factors there, and, and I'm by no means expert in, in mass shootings, but 
I do um, spend a lot of my time dealing with human nature. Yeah. And I, I think that people are desperate for an impact. And if they have no other recourse to creating impact, they choose an impact that satisfies them and then they're done. Then they end their own lives. And I think people have to find one of the keys of, of the no regrets living concept is people have to seek purpose in their lives. And people who have purpose in their lives don't go into factories and shoot people. No, they don't build gas chambers. People who have, they, and they don't commit suicide. People who have purpose and they love life. They love life. They have meaning. They have reason. They have, they have goals and they love people and they love people. I mean, I, well, you talk about the Holocaust, uh, before Hitler and the Nazis started doing what they were doing, they were welcomed by many U.S. corporations Absolutely. and bankers and individuals. They thought this guy was a great leader. What the heck happened to him? How would he, how could he go through that and change the way he changed to become so evil? Uh, I'm a pediatrician at heart, um, and I believe that evil originates in childhood and that uh, something happens. Something happens in childhood, and it, there, are, there are exceptions. Uh, there are horrible exceptions of people raised in loving households who end up doing evil things. But because they're, maybe they're born with some deficiency or something. But I think, like you, you're created to be evil. I think there is a childhood opportunity to um, uh, choose good or choose bad and choose helpful or choose evil. And that opportunity is oftentimes um, influenced by the household that kids grow up in. They grow up in a loving family. They don't turn into Adolf Hitler. You've seen miracles in your life, haven't you? I have. Give us an example. Well, I'll, I'll tell you the story of uh, uh, there are medical miracles and then there are everyday miracles. I'll give you a medical miracle. Uh, Alcides was at the time a 37 year old window washer in Manhattan. He was washing windows on the 47th floor oh, of, a, oh. of a skyscraper and uh, the platform that he was working on broke. Oh my God. And he fell 47 stories. Oh, he was taken to New York hospital, Cornell medical center, straight down, straight down. Boom. Nothing in the way, just hit the ground. Uh, he was taken to New York Hospital where the surgeon in charge of the, of the trauma unit said, why are you bringing him here? This man is dead. 47 dead. stories, you can't possibly survive. In fact, the same surgeon, the same critical care specialist, had published a paper of a man who survived a 19-story fall because that was the farthest that anyone had ever fallen and, and, lived. and still lived. And lived. And still lived. Yeah. In fact, if you fall three stories, there's a 50% chance of death. Three, from three stories high, a 50% That's chance about, what, of death. 30 feet, something, something like, like that. that. Exactly. This man fell 47 stories. Oh. Um, he's now take, driving his kids to school in Arizona. He's walking on charity walks. And his surgeon said, if you believe in miracles, this surely is one. Now, that's on the medical miracle side. That's one of the 85 stories in the Miracles We Have Seen book. But let me let me ask your viewers to look out the window that they're closest to, whatever window they're close to. And I want you to find something in that window, in your view, 
that humans have created. And I challenge you to find anything that you see through your window that humans have created. We haven't created the tree that you're seeing. We haven't created the river that might be running near your house. So you'll say, well, we created the car that just drove by. And Mm -hmm. I'll say, but with what? What materials did you use to create that car? Where did the steel come from? Iron. Where did the iron come from? What have we as humans created? Right. Miracles are everywhere outside of our window. A hummingbird is a miracle. A hummingbird (laughs) can flap its wings 80 times per second. 80 times per second. (laughs) It can fly 35 miles an hour and it can dive at 50 miles an hour. Now, can I make a hummingbird? No. I can't make a hummingbird. I can't even understand a hummingbird. (laughs) A hummingbird is a miracle. And I'll say something now that's heretical, George. I believe viruses are miracles. And why are viruses miracles? I've studied viruses in the lab now for 40 years. I can't make a virus, but a virus can infect a cell and within a matter of a few hours create one million progeny virus, one million other viruses within a cell until the cell gives up and explodes and those viruses spread to all the neighboring cells. And that's why we are so desperately ill when we get certain virus infections like COVID, for example. Viruses are miraculous. I can't make a virus. I'll never be. And even if someday I can make a virus, I would ask, what is the miracle that gave me the ingenuity, the creativity, and the brain power to be able to create a virus? I haven't done it yet. But if I can someday, that too will be a miracle. James N. Prague, the medium, talked about miracles being commonplace. Let's look. I really think that people have to understand miracles more. And I think if they did, they would realize that miracles are part of our everyday life. And we can have miracles in our life if we just work with that energy and we come to that awareness. We come to that sense of mindfulness. Yes? So um, how many people here in the studio audience have experienced miracles in some way or another? You have, you have, you have. Right. We all have. Yes? But do we acknowledge them? Yes? Sometimes we don't acknowledge them because we want to... You know, we're right there in front of us. We know this is a miracle has happened. But I think miracles can happen in little ways. I think in subtle ways they happen as well. I think what a miracle is, is really confirmation of the divine. Yeah? I really believe it's confirmation of the divine. And I think a miracle happens every single day within the body. The cells change, die up and grow and reproduce. And I think as we look around us and every day we experience a brand new day, I think that's a miracle. I think it's just God showing God's self. Yeah. And I think that we are all that God energy. And I think we can have miracles and miracles are a part of our everyday existence. As long as we take the time to be mindful about who we are. You agree with him? Absolutely. And I think that as a physician, I am more acutely aware of the miracles of the human body that he alluded to, right. um, perhaps than, than other people. And I'm also a patient. I had quadruple bypass surgery six years ago for, for heart disease. And um, I, other than the scar running down my chest, somehow my body managed to heal from that. That's a miracle. But it's also a miracle that when I get the tiniest paper cut, the tiniest paper cup, cut, my body mobilizes first responders <laughs> to come to that paper cut and heal it. Miraculous. 
absolutely miraculous. And we are living miracles, and it's our opportunity to look out the window, as I was saying before, and recognize the miracles that are outside of us as well. It is amazing. The body is just an incredible machine that fixes itself, takes care of itself, if you take care of it. That's right. And one of the um, concepts of uh, uh, no regrets living is the responsibility to heal. And that includes healing ourselves. That includes taking care of our bodies, as you just said. Um, and uh, and then our bodies take care of us. Now, not always. I mean, we still have not gotten to the point where we can overcome all the diseases. My dad died of pancreatic cancer. Um, to this day, that was 40 years ago. To this day, pancreatic cancer is still worse. It's still the worst. It is the worst. And we haven't gotten there yet. We haven't, we haven't been able to heal and cure, but the, the legacy of medicine and the ingenuity that we have been imbued with is that someday we will. Someday we will cure pancreatic cancer. I'm confident of that. I was at a restaurant with my producer, Tom Danheiser, several years ago. And we ran into Patrick Swayze, the late actor, yeah. who died of pancreatic Absolutely. cancer. Yes. And I said, Tom, go up and get him. Let's get him for the show. Yeah. And so Tom, you know, went up there, was very polite. And Swayze was very, very cordial. You know, most people don't sure. want you coming up to their table. And I understand that. But Swayze said, sit down. Let's talk for a little bit. And they had a little discussion. We didn't know, and I'm not sure Swayze knew at the time sure. that he had pancreatic cancer, but he died a couple of years later. Yeah. Once you get it, you can't fight it, can you? Well, the survival during my dad's era 40 years ago was about a year yeah. um, once after yeah. diagnosis. Yeah. My once dad lived 13 months, and now the survival is a little bit better, uh, perhaps as long as two years on average. But it's it's uh, compared to the progress that we've made with other cancers, it's still dismal. But but every time we have faced as a society apparently incurable diseases, apparently unstoppable pandemics, when we have been faced with horrific natural disasters, terrible man-made accidents, somehow we have managed our trajectory as humans is upward. Somehow we have managed to overcome so many of those that I am optimistic. I am optimistic. You are very optimistic of humanity, aren't you? I am. And, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you this sort of um, perverse basis for some of that. You can't be optimistic reading the newspaper. It's impossible. You can't, and nobody even reads the newspaper anymore. You can't be optimistic reading the news or hearing are the there newspapers <laughs> not for long my family is my wife my kids are addicted to the game of thrones tv show right oh, no. i can't stand a lot of people are a lot of people are. i haven't even watched it right well i i walk by the tv when it's on and i am horrified by the by the brief interlude that i have with what's going on on the screen and i can't I can't imagine what they see in it, but <laughs> historians tell us that the reality of medieval history is not that far different from what's being portrayed on the Game of Thrones. That is, that's true. Mankind, humankind, humanity was in an awful place not that long ago, centuries, but within the scope of, of human existence. And when we look at our civilization today, and the improvement 
I mean, we stop at stoplights now. We stand in lines <laughs> waiting for things. We don't routinely stab ourselves, um, stab our, the people who are standing in front of us in order to get ahead in line. That's <laughs> Game of Thrones. Most of us don't. Most of us. That's, you're right. We've talked, we've talked about some of the evil that still exists, but in general, humanity is on an upward trajectory and you have to look at the big picture. You have to look at the, at the entirety of human history to appreciate it. But in general, we are on an upward trajectory. What do you mean by no regrets living? When I was a um, medical student in the late 1970s, I took care of a uh, 50-year-old man, and t- take care of is the wrong way, wrong way to express it. Medical students don't do much providing of care, so we have a chance to do a lot of talking to our patients. Right. Observation. Observations. So I spent a lot of time talking to this 50-year-old man um, who had been diagnosed with a terminal disease and had only months to live. And the entire conversation was about his regrets, was about what he had not yet had a chance to accomplish in his life, who he had not yet had a chance to express his love to, um, places that he had not yet traveled, people to apologize to. People to apologize to. It was a recognition that he can't do it over, that the time was done, and um, he had great regrets. And from that day on, I began trying to live my life with fewer regrets. And again, the culmination of this, those seven keys that we talked about at the beginning to achieving no regrets or at least fewer regrets. No regrets may be a little bit of a hyperbole. We, we all have some regrets, but we can get past most of them and we can prevent most of the future ones. And you know the old saying, woulda, coulda, shoulda. Woulda, coulda, shoulda. That's and uh, there's a... Uh phrase that I used to use, of all things said of tongue and pen, the status of which, what might have been. What might have been. That's exactly right. You have to move forward. You have to move forward. And the way to do that is um, in (laughs) key number six, and that is to seek self-forgiveness. We have to, when we think about woulda, coulda, shoulda in the past, what we wish would have been, we have to recognize that there was a context, that the decisions that we made, the actions that we took, all occurred within the context of that day. We are now living with the outcome, but we have to remember that we made the decisions in that context. Yes. And in that context, we may have made the wrong decision, but it was a decision that we made, and now we have to learn from that, we have to move beyond that, and we have to do everything we can to prevent the kind of regret that we had in the past from recurring. I used to beat myself up years ago for decisions I made yeah. that didn't turn out the right way. All of a sudden, I realized, wait a minute, I just learned from this. Right. This is an experience that has helped me, not hurt me. Yeah. And that's the way I live these days. And it's made a tremendous difference in my life. I have to predict that it's eliminated some of those woulda, coulda, shouldas, those regrets. That I don't have say that past. anymore. Exactly. And that really is, that's the key. The self-forgiveness key of no regrets living is that we have to, we have to begin to acknowledge that we're not perfect. Uh, we are human. And that by acknowledging that there are going to have been mistakes, there may be mistakes in the future, but we've learned how to cope with them. Jack Canfield, of course. 
Chicken Soup, of course, was on Gaia's master class program talking about finding one's purpose in life. Soren Kierkegaard, who was a Danish philosopher, a theologian, psychologist, said, God has given each of us our marching orders. Our purpose here on earth is to find those orders and carry them out. Those orders acknowledge our special gifts and talents. And so each of us has marching orders, and you know what they are because they're encoded in you as your talents. And when you're doing that talent, you're feeling the joy we talked about earlier, so that you enjoy being our guidance system. Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was an American philosopher and a poet, said, each man has his own vocation. His talent is his call. There is one direction in which all space is open to him. Think about that. When you're doing what you're supposed to do, doors open. If you push through that first level of resistance, you open up, then things start to soar. It's like if you've ever been in a plane, you think you're never going to take off, and then all of a sudden you do, and it's working really hard. But once you get up to 35,000 feet, it coasts. It uses a lot less fuel, and you get, you know, you're coasting along up in the jet stream and so forth. And that's what our life is like. We have to be willing to do that thing, which is easy. We're going to get some rejection to test if we're really committed. But if you stay passionate and committed to it, then what starts to happen is you get to coast a little bit. Spot on, huh? Spot on. And that really, seeking purpose is uh, the other part of, of key number six. And um, and in addition to Kierkegaard and, and Emerson, I'll, I'll quote Viktor Frankl, who was a psychologist and the founder of what's now called logotherapy. And he wrote a seminal book called Man's Search for Meaning. And in that book, he said that once we have purpose in our lives, um, we live longer. And in fact, scientists have subsequently proven that. They've, looked, they've looked at at the impact of purpose, the impact of having meaning. And they find that not only do we live longer, we live healthier, and we can even defeat cancer. We're less lonely and we're less prone to suicide. And all of that is because we have found purpose in our lives. And, you know, we are the only species on Earth that has to seek purpose. Other species are instinctively purposeful. They procreate, they protect their young, and then they do it again. And they protect themselves. And they protect themselves. And But we have to go beyond that. Humans are, are empowered to find a purpose beyond instinct. And when we do that, when we recognize our purpose in life, we actually can act more instinctively toward it because we know the direction that we're headed. Absolutely. I mean, there's there's no question about having purpose, having direction in your life, and moving forward. That's right. Yeah, and it and it leads to no regrets because if we know where we're going – even if we haven't been there yet, even if we have those woulda, coulda, shouldas in our life, but we know where we're going now, we are less re- less regretful of what we haven't yet accomplished because we know what we have to yet accomplish. Uh, when you look at all of this and put it together with a person in his life or her life, it's a dramatic change. It makes them like life a little bit better, doesn't it? Yeah, it's the subtitle, it's the subtitle of the book, and that is uh, Keys to a Life of Wonder and Contentment. If I look out the window and recognize the, the power of something greater than me, the responsibility that I have toward that greater context, the potential for reward and punishment, and I'm not even talking about reward or punishment that may come down from above. I'm talking about the sense of reward and the sense of punishment that we have 
when we do something that we know is good and we do something that we know is bad, that immediate sense of reward for doing kindness, that immediate sense of punishment for being cruel, we recognize that. And if we can establish for ourselves reward and punishment as a truism, that we are truly rewarded and punished by every action that we have, we will have fewer opportunities to regret because we will be choosing reward instead of choosing punishment. Was there an episode that helped shape your no regrets philosophy in life? Well, there have, there have been, there have been many, but I, I have, uh, I always uh, regretted the opportunity, not taking the opportunity to travel um, to a destitute part of the world to practice medicine. Many of my colleagues did. They went a troubled on, area. A troubled area. They went to with doctors, doctors without borders. They went to hurricane ravaged or earthquake ravaged parts of the world. They would spend 30 days helping to construct a clinic to um, to help eradicate malaria. Um, sure. My colleagues did this. I spent my career in the intensive care unit taking care of the sickest kids uh, in Colorado. And I didn't have the courage to do what my colleagues had done, and that is to leave my comfort zone. And um, I regretted that. And then I came to terms with it. And I did what I mentioned before. I recognized the context, the stage of my career, the work that I was doing here that I felt was important, the family that I would be leaving behind with young kids to go abroad to do obviously good, to do good. But um, when I recognize that context, I realize that regrets can be overcome. Past regrets can be overcome by acknowledging uh, the situation that we're in and by comforting ourselves by the alternative good that we are trying to do. Well, look at the good that you did for the people that you helped in these ER rooms and places like that. That was what I ultimately told myself. And I, um, I you know, I was worried that as a, as a specialist, as an infectious diseases doctor, that I didn't have the general pediatric skills that my colleagues who went with Doctors Without Borders had, that I wouldn't know what to do with the routine stuff anymore because I was taking care of such sick kids. But then I told myself, but you're taking care of such sick kids. Somebody, somebody needs to do that, not just, right. not just go to Haiti. And so I, I learned to live with that regret. What about evil? Where does evil fit in on some of this? The um, the third key of no regrets living is to heal. And as a physician, that's paramount for me. Um, healing ourselves, healing our patients, healing our, our friends and family. But I think we also need to heal society and to heal the world. And each of us has a part in that. And the greatest need for healing is the need to heal evil. And it's hard to believe that we can do that. And there's a lot of evil out there. There's a lot of evil out there. And it's it's those horrible news stories that we talked about a moment ago. How can we possibly believe that we can heal evil, that we can prevent the, the Genghis Khans, the Adolf Hitlers, the Joseph Stalins? How can we prevent the shooter and the skyscraper in Las Vegas who fires down indiscriminately onto a concert? Um, how can we heal that kind of evil? And I'll, I'll give you an example of how I think we can do that. Uh, the example comes from Whitwell, Tennessee. It's a, a rural population of 2,000 people. 
1998, they were teaching their middle school kids about uh, the Holocaust. And they, the kids learned that some Norwegians would clip a paper clip to their lapel as a silent protest against the Nazis. And so these kids thought, what if we collected paper clips in commemoration of those who were killed? And they set out to collect six million paper clips for the six million Jews who were killed. And then ultimately 11 million paper clips for the gays, the gypsies, the the disabled who were also killed by Hitler. They received paper clips from George W. Bush, from Bill Clinton, from celebrities across the country and across the world. They collected 30 million paper clips in Whitwell, Tennessee, because fifth grade students learned about the Holocaust. People donated artifacts from World War II, including an authentic railroad car that had been used to transport victims to concentration camps, which is now a museum in Whitwell, Tennessee. Now, the key thing about Whitwell, Tennessee, is that as far as anyone knows, there was never a a Jewish family living there. There was never a gay family living there. This was a a community that learned from its children. The adults learned from the children. And that, from child to adult, is how we prevent evil. The human mind does a lot of things. Uh, On a TED Talk, Charles Bennett talks a lot about being prepared with scientific breakthroughs of a prepared mind. The prepared mind. Louis Pasteur talked about the prepared mind. It's the key to scientific discovery. Prepared mind also is chance, as you mentioned. Prepared mind is a person or thinker who's out there has content and also has taste the opportunities, Louis Pasteur said. With that, Louis Pasteur is is one of my heroes. It's it's a hero of every infectious disease doctor because Louis Pasteur was the grandfather of all germ treatment, of the germ theory. Pasteurization, the term pasteurization comes from Louis Pasteur. He's a personal hero. He's a hero of many of us. But the one concept that has stuck with so many people who are not infectious disease doctors is that Um, Chance favors the prepared mind. Discovery favors the prepared mind. And that ultimately is the, the true evidence of something greater than us. We have been, as far as we know, other species have not been as well imbued with the capacity of our brain to overcome the greatest challenges of the world. Oh, huge, huge. And our prepared minds have cured many cancers, have cured many incurable diseases. Our prepared minds have made airplane travel safer, automobile travel safer. There was a 7.5 magnitude earthquake in Alaska a couple of years ago, and there was essentially no damage. There were no lives lost. Why? Because our prepared minds now know how to build Earthquake-proof structures are there. prepared there. There, not yeah. sadly, not everywhere in the world. But the prepared minds are capable of expanding that to everywhere in the world. We now have hurricane warning systems. We have tornado warning systems. We have safer cars. Our prepared minds have advanced society so dramatically that I do believe that those prepared minds are going to teach us, as the example of Whitwell, Tennessee 
are going to teach us how to cure, how to heal the world from evil. Dr. Rothbard, we started talking about miracles on this program. The person who fell 47 stories and lived mm-hmm. and things like that. Who creates the miracles? Is it us or are we tapping into something? Well, um, the first key to no regress living is, is belief. And for me, the answer to your question, George, is that um, miracles are not accidental and miracles can be man-made, but they're man-made because humans have been given the capacity to create them, because we have been given the capacity by something greater than ourselves. Miracles come from outside of us, oftentimes using us as a vehicle for, for transmitting it. There is um, something called the law of sensitive dependence on initial conditions, better known as the butterfly effect. Yes. And the butterfly effect says that the flap of a butterfly's wings in one part of the world with infinite subsequent events can lead to a tsunami across the world because those infinite inflection points along the way can build and can change something. Nowhere better is that seen than what happened in Wuhan, China, where an event in one part of the world spread to literally shut down the entire world, the planet, the planet. That was the butterfly effect, the law of sensitive dependence on initial conditions in extreme. The capacity for miracles, the capacity to create miracles exists within every one of us when we flap our wings. When we flap our butterfly wings, we have the capacity to spread that effect across the world. We don't know who's going to be affected by what we do, but people are going to be affected by what we do. And that's where we can create miracles. Will we ever have a planet of love and happiness where people take care of people instead of wars and famines? Well, again, you asked before if I'm an optimist or a pessimist, and I, I'm, I am an optimist. Um, I think we are better now than we were during the Game of Thrones. I think we are more loving and more kind and more thoughtful now than we were uh, during the Holocaust. Most of us. Most of us. Um, <laughs> yeah. Are we ever going to all be that way? I hope so. I'm also a student of human nature, and, and I recognize that there is that evil that evil on one shoulder, whereas good is on the other shoulder, and and we have to figure out a way to to defeat that the bad shoulder. Um, so I, I I wish I could say the answer to that is obviously yes, but I'll put an asterisk on it and I'll say yes. I think we will ultimately get to that world if we don't destroy ourselves first. If you were talking to a group of kids, ten years old, who just wanted to know about their future, what would you tell them? Well, I have the opportunity as a pediatrician to do that a lot. And I tell them that each of them, each of the children in that room, has the chance to be a factor for good in the world, to be a um, a creator of miracles. And that each of those kids, we depend upon each of those kids to make our world a better place. We've had failures My parents' generation had even more failures. Our grandparents' generation had even more failures. We are getting better, but we depend upon the future generations to carry that forward. 
Doctor, thanks for being on Beyond Belief. George, it was a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Remarkable talking about just living your life without any regrets. Mm-hmm. It's something to take heed and live your life by. I'm George Nori. Thanks for watching Beyond Belief. <laughs> Oh, good time to start on the new year with this kind of uh, heart traveling. I think that's what we've been doing. We've been heart traveling. Yeah. Yeah. You have something to share with everybody before we take our break, Rama? I could just say that we all are a miracle being right here at this time on this planet. There's no accident. It is perfect divine timing. He was talking about the butterfly effect, the quantum field. There are more of us on this planet right now asking for, let's say, that, (laughs) invisible hand so to speak to show up and change things yet we are the ones doing it with consciousness and that that moves tremendous amounts of energy and uh, all I can just see is Master Yoda levitating that ship out of the swamp. <laughs> In Empire Strikes Back, we got the power. I passed the talking stick. Okay, that's a good thought to take a break on, everybody. So we will do that now, and we will be back with music of the spheres, you might say, and... Our brother Richard and Tanya Gabrielle and Kay Pacha and Aloha for now. Thank you so much. This is food for the new year. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Namaste. For moments. That was the Diva Primal Krishna Das and Snatnamkar River Ganga. As the river Ganga, Ganges River, still flows, India still lives. It's a big deal. I passed the talking stick to you, Richard. Yeah, Richard and Tanya's 15 minutes and Kepacha's 43 minutes. No, 28 minutes. Sorry. We passed the talking All right, all right, all right. Well, today is the 8th. It is. Today, January, and uh, in eight more days, we'll have a full moon. But anyway, tonight, mm-hmm. we've got Mars. Is it? What is that? Oh, man. 18. Mars, 18 Sag. And Uranus, 17. And everything else is between those signs. So Capricorn's got Venus, Sun, and Pluto all together there. Mercury's moved up to eight. 
Aquarius, and it's now conjuncting Saturn, which is at 13. All right. And Jupiter is at 3 Pisces. The other night I saw in the sky, it was very pretty, Jupiter, moon conjunct Jupiter, in the, just after sunset, very nice. And then last night, you could see the moon and Jupiter together just as easily, but they were like 15 degrees apart, right? Moon moves about, how fast is the moon moving these days? Let's see here. The moon is moving at uh, just under 13 degrees per day. And uh, so we had moon conjunct Chiron this morning early. And uh, Neptune's still moving in there. Uh, 20, 21, 21 Pisces. So, I don't know what's going to happen here with the, I've been thinking about the stock market, mm-hmm. and I can't see anything regarding the stock market unless there's a, some kind of change in confidence. And since the Federal Reserve has already announced that they're going to uh, raise interest rates a little bit this year. Uh, the market, you know, it went down, it goes up. Sometimes it looks very manipulated, you mm. know. Yeah, but, it is. Uh, well, I w- I'm glad I don't have any stocks anymore. I can tell you that because I would be getting real nervous about now. So, um, <laughs> that's that's. Uranus. Uranus. Venus uh, square the moon today. Coming up on Sun conjunct Pluto. Uh, So that's that's the next uh, worrisome spot. And that's uh, Pluto involved with the sun, it can go either way. It, it can go, it can go to either heaven or hell. Oh. Or it can go either way. I mean, Pluto is the ruler of the underworld. That's right? true. Yes. Right? I mean, I mean, look, look, you got, you got the sun as spirit. And you got the Earth as biology. And you've got the sky as conversation. Right? That takes care of Aries, Taurus, and Gemini. Right? You got fire, earth, air, right? Sun, earth, sky, and then you got Cancer, right? Mm-hmm. And cancer is the result of the combination of those first three, which is the magnetic goo. So that's that's the way that's the way it works. You see, 
Mm-hmm. And then it re- then it repeats itself. You know, then then you go Leo, Leo, Virgo, Libra, Scorpio, and you get another different kind of goo. And it's time to do. So, uh, let's go hear what Typhoxy is talking about. And I'll talk to you Okay. okay. Ready, Rama? Here we go. Kaipacho with a weekly Pele report for January 5th of the great year 2022. Starting off the big one here, and uh, you know, we just had that new moon uh, moving on in Capricorn, and then she went into Aquarius, and today, like, you know, as I am speaking, okay, I believe that she uh, is uh, just gone into Pisces. Look at, I found a sandy beach. How about that? And then, mm-hmm. and, and look at this big rock, just like sitting there. <laughs> this is great. Anyway, gotta make this report kinda quick here, cause gotta get on with business. You know, we have a Sun conjunct Venus. Exact. On Saturday, inferior conjunction. Venus in between the Earth and the Sun. I'm gonna be talking yeah. about Venus, Sun, uh, yeah, it's, it, that's the big event really happening this time, uh, along with Mars moving through Sagittarius is, you know, coming into a square with Neptune, Sag to Pisces, Mars to Neptune, okay, the kind of wild energy uh, balancing out in very many ways, you know, the Capricorn conservative energy, so, you know, it's uh, it's pretty spiffy. Uh, the moon, like I say, comes around and joins uh, with Neptune, uh, you know, just later on, later on uh, today, actually. And then on uh, Thursday, uh, goes into a sextile, basically a midpoint between the sun and Uranus, right? Sun in Capricorn, moon, uh, uh, Uranus in uh, Taurus. Pisces is right in the middle of that. Anyway, I don't need to get too techy with you guys. <laughs> in, in the meantime, you know, Mercury is cruising along over there and is coming into a sextile with Chiron. And then the sun sextiles Neptune on Monday. Moon moves around through Aquarius, through Pisces, goes into Aries on Saturday. And on uh, Sunday, we have the first quarter square. 19 degrees Aries, 27 minutes, the moon over there, into a uh, 19 degrees, 27 minutes of Capricorn. Yeah. So don't forget Venus is retrograde, so she's going down. Sun is coming up. Moving on through Capricorn. Let me find a little spot here to look at the camera. And, uh, yeah. Give you some interpretation there. 
Alright everybody! Ow! Got my little hat. I got this the last time I was down in Peru. I'm getting excited about Peru. There's one spot left. One spot left if you want to come to Peru. There's a link for the Warriors down in the notes. Heading off to uh, Tulum, uh, Mexico uh, next week and uh, doing uh, an event down there with a whole bunch of other uh, people. Uh, there's a link for uh, Tulum, Mexico. Uh, Mexico is open, you know. Like, you don't need anything to get into Mexico. You gotta love it. I know a lot of people are going down to Mexico a lot now. <laughs> yeah, I know people even getting some property there. But anyway, yeah. Uh, for now, yeah, uh, I'm here and this is kind of a, uh, there's a real, little bit of a tug of war going on. Doesn't have to be a tug of war. <clears throat> like I said at the beginning, you know, the Mars square Neptune can be complementing the Sun, Venus, Mercury, Pluto in Capricorn. You know, Jupiter also over there in Pisces. Uh, get, getting a little more uh, wild, but there's a lot of uh, a lot of shift, a lot of change. We are in a big period of deep transformation that has to do with the Sun conjunct Venus, and I, I'm going to have to give you a little astrology background to fully understand, okay, how this works. What happens is, let's say that the Sun is out here. And I'm the Earth. Venus comes in between the Earth and the Sun. This is called an inferior conjunction. Okay? So while she is approaching, okay, she is going to be an evening star. So let's put it that the Sun, you know, the sun is going, and, and, and Venus is, you know, Venus is up above the sun as it sets. This is the horizon. And what she's been doing now is getting lower and lower and lower in the western sky until she comes into this conjunction where she is now. Okay? So she has been setting in the western sky. And, of course, that's what, it, you know... It's kind of difficult to go around. But in general, what we can say is the Venus cycle is a 584-day cycle. Yeah. And she only does this, you know, passing through, right? Like she only goes retrograde like every 542 days. She goes retrograde less than any other planet in our solar system. So if you have Venus retrograde in your natal birth chart, you are special. <laughs> <laughs> and she doesn't she doesn't stay retrograde for very long. Okay, right? It's only like you know, uh, forty days or so, like 40, 40 days, forty nights. Anyway. So what happens now is when she is, you know, basically, when she sets after the sun, the sun rises and she rises after the sun, follows the sun around, and is an evening star. So we don't see her in the morning, we only see her in the evening. 
Dane Ridger called this the Hesperus Venus energy. And you can even notice if you have this Venus Hesperus energy in your natal birth chart, if your son is at an earlier degree than Venus, she was an evening star when you were born. Now, whenever she gets within 10 degrees of the sun, we can't see her anymore. They call that combust. And, and the ancients called that the underworld because you can't see her. The sun is so brilliant that she disappears. And this is where we call she goes into the underworld, okay? Now, that happened. So she, she went up, you know, uh, and started stationing retrograde December 19th, okay? And she's going to, you know, go right on back down until this conjunction. And that conjunction is like we say, it's uh, January 8th. It's on, uh, on Saturday, yeah, this weekend. And there is this period from January 3rd to January 15th where she is absolutely invisible. She is going through her deep transformation from Hesperius, a setting star, into the Luciferic energy, okay, which is that she will emerge as a morning star, okay, when she comes out from underneath the underworld. So you're not going to see her in the West anymore for another, you know, more than a year, okay, and she and she's going to then become this morning star from January 15th until February 4th where she's just going to emerge. You know, you can get up very early in the morning and you will see her rise before the sun. And she reaches her maximum point of brilliance on February 14th. Now, this Luciferic, this morning star energy is youthful. It's the warrior goddess. She's dramatic youthful, acting like like Aries energy. It's like this new burst of this powerful feminine energy. Boom. Okay? And the Hesperus is think before you act, more of like Virgo energy. Okay? So we have been really since, when was it? Oh gosh, it was uh, since May. Since last May, she has been an evening star. So the whole, most of 2021, Venus was an evening star. And it was like thoughtful, you know, thought, and then, you know, then, you know, move on, you know, what you are attracted to and what you want and what you desire. Yeah. And so now in this underworld, there is this combustible time of deep inner transformation and she will emerge coming out of this boom. This is actually a very good time in terms of like ritual 
in terms of ceremony. It's a very powerful time. And of course, this is also even, we're still in the 12 nights of Christmas. If you're into the Steiner anthroposophy, you know, the, the, you have the epiphany happening on January 6th. It's amazing how these things are occurring now at the same time of year. This is a good time to spend some time alone, to go inward, and to really allow yourself. It's almost like the caterpillar builds the cocoon and then dissolves itself. We're moving from the past, and we've come into this. This is a cocoon two-week period from January 3rd to January 15th, where you are inwardly undergoing a powerful transformation and you can emerge renewed, recharged, youthful, <laughs> energetic, once again, as Venus rises in the east in just a couple of weeks. Come to Tulum. <laughs> It'll be just in time, baby. It's so, you know, and it's so tripped out, right, that we've got this, well, you know, Mercury is, you know, doing this, it's retrograde trip is coming here on, on the 14th. Uh, Mercury goes retrograde. And on the 15th, you know, Venus, you know, kind of is seen in the east. There's a whole, so much to explore and go into during this period of time because and, and, and I'm really feeling this energy I'm feeling and you, you may be feeling yourself we are going through a lot of changes and a lot of these changes can create a lot of fear a lot of insecurity a lot of a desire to retract right retrograde retract reflect Go inward, rebel against the past, yeah, reject. So this is a real time of stripping away, letting go of old habits, letting go of old conditions, relationships, property, possessions, belief systems, ideologies, goals, dreams, fantasies. This is just like erase chalkboard and allow, create space, create space in your heart, create space in your mind, create space in your life for the new so that you will be able to welcome in the new, yeah? And, and this is, you know, this is, this is, you know, so much, you know, of what this is uh, really all about. So, yeah. So funny, I, I came up with the, uh, this week's mantra in the middle of the night, two <laughs> thirty, for some reason, man. I just get woken up, so I completely forget the mantra. I went back to sleep after I wrote it. But this is the uh, Sabian symbol for the uh, the 19th degree of Capricorn. And uh, this is where, you know, the exact lineup 
of the Earth, Venus, and the Sun. And Pluto is not that far off. Mercury is not that far off, right? There, there you go. So there's, there's a lot coming to this. But the picture is a five-year-old child carrying a bag full of groceries. Rising to the occasion when asked to assume social responsibilities ahead of one's normal development. That's what we got to do here. Society is like tanking. And maybe we may not feel ready for it, but guess what? We are the ones we've been waiting for. We are the ones that need to create this new paradigm, this new reality, whether we feel strong enough, ready enough, old enough, smart enough, powerful enough to take on Goliath or not. What seems to be implied at this stage of the cyclic process is the value of early conditioning in teaching one how to fulfill the responsibilities of everyday life in our modern society. This 20th scene of the complete process has been entitled Group Performance. And today it is evident that children at an early age are expected to assume a family role which at times will strain their natural capacities. This is part of the accelerated pace of our technological society. A pattern of accelerated growth can thus be established with both positive and negative effects. Aspects. Rushing ahead of one's natural development may be damaging Yet we are living in a particularly dynamic period of our evolution. I am, you know, I'm feeling a little stressed these days. I gotta say I'm feeling a little rushed because I want to put out what seems to me to be my predictions for the next, not only 2022, but maybe the next five or ten years, what I see coming. And I want to do it well, and I want to do it right, and I need to do it before I leave. And so I'm feeling this kind of, like, urgency. We may all be feeling this kind of urgency because we can psychically sense the tension within the collective unconscious, the Watiko, yeah, the mass psychosis, as Robert Malone identifies the Watiko, yeah, in his Joe Reagan interview, we can talk about that later, but you get this whole kind of energy here that things are going to be unraveling, yeah, and we do need to step up. That's why I have today's song, is Bachman Turner Overdrive, (laughs) Taking Care of Business, (laughs) and it's a shame that the little girl 
You know, this little this little Venus within us, you know, has to carry the bag of groceries. I mean, it's like, you know, we have this youthful quality. And all I want to say is let's tap into that kind of innocent, like, like this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity for us to invent new ways of connecting of building bridges, of surviving, goes into, you know, what I talked about in my whole uh, energy around the astrology of 2022, with the Pluto polarity point in Cancer, the North Node going into Taurus. This is very much about, you know, gathering my nuts like the squirrel that we talked about. Yeah? So... And some of that also has to be, how can I say, you know, this transformation is an inner transformation that will change our perspective on what's going on out there so that we are not a victim of the external disaster, <laughs> you know, we are, you know, we're in our cocoon, we're in our space, we are growing inwardly, we are maturing, and we are refining, evolving, getting better all the time. It's getting better all the time because each one of us inwardly is getting better all the time. And our relationships, the quality of our relationships can get better all the time, even in the midst of adversity. Sometimes adversity even brings us together in ways that we would never have come together before. That's very healing. So the mantra for today is through through. Contrast and compassion. I learn what's right for me. So the older I get, the more you can bet what you see is the best I can be. I want to tie that into all of this. Capricorn is the elder energy. The child carrying groceries is responsibilities and these duties. So we're all maturing. And I just really wanted to kind of speak today. My, what, what, I, what I have here as the uh, dynamic. Every year I have come out with what that year is in encapsulated form. <clears throat> Not quite a mantra, but my, uh, what do they call it? Uh, you know, uh, it's not an icon. I forget. You know where you shorten something. Acronym, whatever. The year of 2022 is the a year of polarization. Due to the revelation of the plan for domination, 
of the entire population. This is a big year of transformation and it will be polarizing. You can already see it. The inoculated versus the uninoculated, right? You know, uh, you know the, the 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 different races, uh, uh, the different financial tiers, the rich and the poor, uh, you know, the political left and the right, red and the blue in the United States. We can see there is such a polarization happening now, and yet through that polarization. The third dimensional world is that we evolve through duality, through contrast, through polarization. So the farther we get towards one pole, the more clear and obvious we see the contrast, the difference, how how really different we are, <laughs> you know, and how you know, and how society needs to expand to include an ever-growing spectrum of human consciousness. So we may, you know, it may even be say higher or lower, left or right, darker light. Rich or poor, okay, you know, whatever, you know, green or not green, <laughs> woke or not woke. We've got all this, but this allows us, this contrast and comparison allows us to really choose and decide who we are. Our choices and decisions define who we are. And as we make more decisions and more choices, we mature and we become honed like a sculpture. We get rid of, we get rid of, we get rid of, and we become more us, more true more evolved, more awakened, more, you know, what you see is what you get. Yeah? With with this process of refinement, it's kind of a Virgo kind of a process happening that's going on for us now. So I know this is a lot of material <laughs> for, for one Pele report. Like, whoa! <laughs> <laughs> I'll just let you sit on that anyway, man. Pop that in your pipe and smoke it. Ow! Yeah, baby. One more time. <laughs> oh, my God. Through contrast and comparison, I learn what's right for me. So the older I get, the more you can bet what you see is the best of I can be. Yeah. So, you know, be the best that you can be. Yeah, just learn what's right for you. If it's not right for you, 
This is the time to let it go. Like that, look at that river. Let it go right down that river. Find a river. Toss it into the river, man. Write some stuff on a little piece of paper. Make yourself a little fire ritual. Yeah, I'm going to be doing a little ritual here coming up, you know, this weekend. Fire ritual. You write down what you want to let go of and set it on fire. Let it go. Let it go. Make way for the new. Make room for the new. Find your security in your core, in your center. It's not out there. The outside world is changing. It is not secure. The more that people have placed, you know, and looked for security in the outer temporal world, the more freaked out they are right now. You hear what I'm saying? Because that's what's getting played. We're all getting played. But I'm going to have to save that for another video because, uh, you know, it's really time to go. <laughs> Namaste. Aloha. So much love. Grass and talking stick back to you, Richard. Richard? Yes, dear. We couldn't hear you. Are you talking with your mute uh, button on? Well, you know how it goes sometimes. I've been I've been looking at these charts here, you know. Okay. All right. Well. All right. Welcome back. So, uh, how long is Tanya? Fifteen minutes. Fifteen minutes. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll do her, and then when we get back, we'll take a look at. The uh, chart of Vladimir Putin and the Russian Federation. All right, sounds cool. I've, Go got, ahead. The, I've got I've got those two two charts uh, queued up to uh, take a look at. Thank you. That's yeah. That's very interesting. Well, I gave I gave last week. I said pick one and. Well, I'm going to pick Russia, so we'll look at Russia. Okay. And uh, finding Putin's birthday was uh, 1952. He's a, he's a Libra. He was born anyway, in 1952, did you say? According to Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. There's pictures of Putin in the early 20s, and he's in his 20s. And uh -huh. it said that he's a little older than he looks. Yeah. <laughs> right, we will take that. See, there's probably right. a, a point to the purpose of that birthday. Yes, Rama. Here we go. <laughs> Thank you. 
Tanya Gabrielle, Wealth Astrologist. Welcome to Star Codes. This is the forecast where we look at an upcoming event in the stars and numbers, the astrology, numerology, to gather the meaning and the interpretation, how to navigate. This forecast is for all signs, no matter what sign you are, you are impacted. Now we're going to cover the Cancer Full Moon on January 17th today. And of course, Cancer is the sign of love, of heart-centered awareness. And the number 17 for January 17th governs immortality. So whatever you do, whatever you commit to that day will leave a lasting impact. So this Cancer full moon takes place at 11.48 p.m. Universal Time in London, 6.48 p.m. Eastern Time New York, and 3.48 p.m. Pacific Time LA. And Cancer is such a beautiful sign. It usually begins the summer, and I say usually because in the Southern Hemisphere it begins the winter. Cancer is the crab. Cancer is all about compassion, love, kindness, nurturing. And of course, the crab sometimes hides under the shell if there's something too sensitive that doesn't want to deal with. And so the shadow side of cancer is to dig your head in the sand, to run away from what's in front of you, in other words. But the main aspect of cancer is that it's the sign of the mother. So it governs the womb of love. And the moon, of course, is connected to the feminine cycles. So the moon is very much being the ruler of cancer, an aspect of the divine feminine. So anytime cancer is lit up, we feel more in touch with that part of ourselves, which is very important at this time, especially in 2022, because the number two itself is a very feminine number. It is a number of peace and kindness and unification and compassion. And the number six for the universal year for 2022 is also connected to love, the, the love of family, the love of home, nurturing and abundance. So we have a very beautiful moment here at the onset of the year where this Cancer full moon at 17 degrees is indicating a very powerful rebirth of the divine feminine in 2022. You want to also look at the degree number and it is 27 degrees for this full moon. So the sun at 27 degrees Capricorn opposite the moon, 27 degrees Cancer. 27 is what I call the number of leadership. It's like the Gandhi number, leadership through love and compassion and wisdom. And so it is also about nurturing. Nine and six, six universal year, 27 reduces to nine, are two qualities of love, two qualities of compassion. Whereas the 27, nine is connected to unconditional love, which is the highest expression of love. The number six is the motherly love, the parental love, the love you have naturally for your child, for example. So we have the mother principle here and we have the nurturing principle and we have the moon coming home to its own sign 
which happens once a year for the full moon, right? And we have this sense of empathy, of feeling intimate and vulnerable, and basically feelings being heightened to begin with because of the whole impact of cancer, the home, the family. the And it's not necessarily that it only governs your DNA family. It literally governs your soul family. It governs the sanctuary where you spend your time and the appreciation of that. Now, this full moon is continuing consecutive full moons at 27 degrees, which began in 2021 and continues for the first few full moons in 2022. And so 27 is figuring in a big way. And like I said, it is like the brother and sister are six and and nine, 27 degrees to nine, coming together in the spirit of love. So we have a very big statement of love. Another big statement that we have with this particular full moon is Pluto, because Pluto is conjunct the sun, the sun at 27 degrees in Capricorn, and Pluto is opposite the moon. And so this will really... First of all, it's a powerful, powerful indication how big an impact Pluto has on us in 2022. Remember that Pluto plays a huge role in February for the Pluto return in the U.S. natal chart, which will impact the whole world. This is a very powerful event, which I'll go more into in a future Star Codes podcast. But Pluto empowers after it purges. So Pluto invites you to really pay attention to everything that really is not uh, true anymore for you. It doesn't ring true. And so to let go of that, Pluto rules Scorpio. Scorpio uses the singer to get to the truth, the unconscious, the unseen, and Pluto brings that. It purges and brings it up. And that empowers you because when you're freed from the very things that are holding you back because they are no longer part of your energy, they're no longer vibrationally a match for you, when you let that go, you actually are really empowered because you are cleared, you are you are filled with clarity, you are not um, uh, in a fog in any way. So we want to focus on the empowerment that comes from the release of what is no longer ringing true for us because the opposite, the shadow side of Pluto is disempowerment where you want control over others. So we want to look at both sides, of course. If we notice the shadow side being expressed in any way, we have a lot of clarity on how to rise above that how to see it for what it is, not to battle the other side, but allowing you to uh, just notice it and therefore clear the air, in other words, because it's of the purging impact. So you can really discover deep truths. You can discover listening at a very deep, um, resounding, profound way. And you're not pushing away what you're seeing because you don't like it. So this empowerment is very heart-centered. It's, it comes with a lot of compassion because of the cancer impact. So you, when you're uncovering the unknown, the mysteries, the secrets, which Pluto does, 
and the sun is conjunct Pluto, um, you, you, your personal empowerment is that you embrace through the compassion. It is not that you push away and fight. So there's, uh, there's really a, a big sign of acknowledgement through the release, right? The acknowledgement of the truth without the pushing away of, oh gosh, I just found this, uh, you know, this, uh, very dark secret, whatever the case may be, or uncomfortable, uh, truth. And I really would not like to uh, partake in that energy. And that is a very intense moment, right? And Pluto is very intense uh, because it allows you to go into the root of the matter. So as it brings things to the surface, many things will unfold. So you don't want to push it away what you see. You want to stay with it and not partake in the energy, but stay with it. Don't judge it. Don't, um, you know, don't disempower yourself by saying, oh, I don't want to deal with that. So there is a rebirth component, a, a true initiation component to Pluto. And the rebirth, rebirth is the, the allowance of living only in this moment. So not to backtrack to the past, because whatever you uncover most likely has to do with something that happened pr- prior to now. So you don't want to then um, allow the past to define how you feel now or to get attached in some way to that story and again, uh, avoid what is right in front of you. So it's really a major inner awakening of awareness and connection. And Pluto is very intuitive as well. So the other thing that Pluto is very good with because it purges is to clear clutter. So it's a really good time to purge negative energy, negative people, things in your life that you'd rather not have around you anymore, objects, furniture, paintings, whatever the case may be, things uh, that are disorganized too, that distract you. So it really transforms your life in a very positive way. The other lovely aspect in this full moon in Cancer is that the sun is sextile Neptune and the moon is trine to Neptune. And Neptune is another planet that plays a very big role in 2022. So, With Neptune, we're focusing on unconditional love. So it's very connected to the number nine. And we're focusing on our spiritual brotherhood and sisterhood with other beings of light on other, in other planetary systems. And it is very galactic. It is very much about our spiritual origins and that we all originated from source energy, that there's nothing uh, that has not originated from source energy. And We're also not denying that we are divine beings of light. We have a divine spark, each one of us. So it's helping us to understand our destiny and awaken our intuition. And just like with Pluto, there is a connection to other worlds. So where Pluto purges uh, what is preventing us from that connection and brings it up to the surface, uh, Neptune creates the connection itself and that bond in a very beautiful way. And it also helps uh, the unconditional love, the sweet, tender bond between you and your loved ones. It is connected to dreams and visions and your imagination and creativity. So you definitely want to dive into your creative side in January because this will help you to instantly connect to the divine. And that is very much available to you 
during this full moon. Now, 2022 is an amazing year and it is meant to really shift us from a perspective of love. So the frequency of love is very, very, very active. So when you acclimate to that energy, which has now begun, you will no longer feel inclined to separate yourself and to judge others. And though, of course, there are always moments where we're pulled back into our old ways and the ways of separation and judgment, these will remain few and far between as you learn to manage and navigate and acclimate and digest to this new way of acceptance. And it truly is acceptance, the acceptance of others. So when two, the number two, when two come together, the energy of oneness is deepened. So that creativity that's epitomized also by the Neptune contact to this full moon and Cancer, these are water signs, right? Neptune rules Pisces. That divine spark of creativity is going to seek to express itself in greater ways. And in this way, people will connect to the sparks of light within each other because each will resonate and vibrate in its own way. And that yearning for connection to other sparks is very, very strong. So this sets you on the path of connection and love and compassion. And this compassion then nourishes your deep desire to, to feel passion in general in your life and to appreciate that you are part of this glorious experience on earth with others that is happening at this time. So I want to thank you for joining me on this journey and being here in our beautiful family and have a beautiful Cancer full moon and definitely go check out your own Star Code as well at starcodeclass.com, a free masterclass I created for you where you can discover the meaning of your birthday and your astrology, your birth name, and it also helps you to have compassion for others. So enjoy that at starcodeclass.com and have a beautiful Cancer full moon. the talking dick back to you Richard alright alright now let's start with the uh, formation of the modern Russian Federation 
for the Russian Federation. And Southern Scorpio. Next, what you have is you've got a stellum that runs like this. Now, the north node is in early, early Sag there. Looks like about three. But then you've got moon, Mercury, Venus, Sun, Mars. And these are seven Sag. Mercury, nine Sag, Venus, 11 Sag, Sun, 21 Sag, and Mars, 25 Sag. Holy macaroni! Yeah, Mercury is right up there, uh, nearly conjunct galactic center. But you've got, you know, that, that, you know, even if you, you uh, however you want to do it, you've got all the personal planets there, Sun, Moon, Mercury, Venus, and Mars, all the inner planets are right there in, in Sagittarius on December 12th, 1993. But even for... What's even a little bit more interesting is at that time, Uranus conjunct Neptune in Capricorn. Now, Uranus is ahead of Neptune, but we're talking uh, 20... <sighs> Two, 21 degrees for Uranus and 20 degrees for Neptune. So uh, shortly before 1993, we had uh, Uranus conjunct Neptune, and, and, and Uranus had pulled a little bit ahead of Neptune by December. And then Saturn is kind of out there all by itself at the other end of this chart. At uh, at 26 Aquarius, so all the planets for for Russia is between seven Scorpio with Jupiter and 22 Aquarius for Saturn. So that's only that's four signs. So it's very very. Uh, Lopsided in the Sagittarius zone. All right. Now, mm. Vladimir's, Vladimir's chart is as given by Wikipedia with no birth time given. So I just, you know, plug in noon. This chart is very interesting. Let's see. Start with Jupiter in Taurus opposite. Venus in Scorpio. And there's a, uh, it's almost exact. It's, no, it's 20, 90, yeah, 20 degrees Taurus for Jupiter and 12 degrees Scorpio for Venus. And then 
that Venus is trying Uranus and Cancer, which is sextile that Jupiter. Now, Uranus at uh, 19 Cancer is square. Saturn, Neptune, and Mercury in Libra. So, Vladimir's chart has Sun at 15, Saturn at 18, gives him good discipline, Neptune at 22, and Mercury at 24, all in Libra. <coughs> Cardinal, air, masculine, Sextile Pluto in Leo, Pluto at 23, Mercury at 24, that's a sextile, and Neptune at 22, that's still a sextile. So Pluto sextile, Neptune conjunct Mercury. Neptune conjunct Mercury uh, could go, could go uh, either way. Uh, High idealism or psychopath. <laughs> because he's got, this would have a moon, a moon in Gemini trying this, uh, what do they call that? Four Gemini? Okay, so that's trying, trying the sun, moon trying sun going on there. And then there's another triangle of energies, Mars, 27, Sag, Trine Pluto, 23, Leo, and then both of those are sextile that Mercury conjunct Neptune. So you've got a, you've got two, mate, you've got two powerful triangles. Say that last one again, would you, Richard? Neptune, Mercury, yeah. Mars, Mars, Trine, Pluto. Sag, Sag to Leo. With those two are sextile, Mercury, conjunct Neptune in Libra. Sextile. Pluto, sextile, Neptune, and Mercury. Mars, sextile, Neptune, and Mercury. See, now that's Mars. His Mars and Sag supports the Russian Federation Sagittarius collection. Right? Mm -hmm. So you got one, two, three, four, five. You got five planets that are Sagittarius and Mars. His Mars is at 27 Sag, and the Federation's Mars is at 25 Sag. So he energizes the Federation through his Mars energy. And with, with Jupiter, his Jupiter opposite his Venus, that's you know, that's, a, that's like, which way, you know, which way 
does his compassion manifest? Does it manifest through his Venus and Scorpio trying Uranus in Cancer? Or is it blocked? I would consider it to be blocked. I mean, he's got Venus on the, on the one hand and then Jupiter on the other hand, and he's sitting there in the middle. Which way does it go, right? Jupiter in Taurus, he goes for wealth, right? Jupiter in Taurus, which is the this, this sign of what we think is valuable, He's going for valuable, and of course, by now, you know, he's probably got, you know, a billion or two hidden in various places around the planet, anyway. Oh, so wait, tons more than He's got, like, something like a hundred billion deer. Well. Yeah. And in, in any case, he, he, you know, he ought to, he ought to do something for his people. See, the problem is, this goes way back to my studies of government. Uh, governments sometimes try to practice benevolence, and ideally, Confucius made of uh, that was like the whole point of his whole philosophy was government should be benevolent and and help the people. So government ministers need to be of high integrity and, and good moral fiber. Well, mm-hmm. that's, you know, among politicians today, that's very rare condition. You know. So there's very little practice of that and one practices partially benevolent or benevolent only for a small group. You know how it goes. Yeah. Anyway. So it's there's your list. After eight, your... Richard. Okay. Two minutes um, where you are. Yeah. Maybe next week, I, we, next week, I think, maybe we'll take a look at India and Prime Minister Modi. Mm, boy. And see, see how that works out. All right. Uh, Time to go. Namaste. Have a great week. Um, and I'll uh, be hanging out here in the woods. <laughs> Bye for now. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. Namaste. Much love. Namaste. Okay, everybody. Rama's got the phone number here for us to go to a conference call. Uh, 720-716-7301. And the pin. 353-863-POUND. Okay. Okay, everybody. Well, everything's in the divine plan. Uh, we're here uh, with our creative intelligence figuring it out right (laughs) (laughs) okay 
We'll see you on that conference call, everybody, for the next hour. And then we'll be back here at the top of that following hour at BBS Radio, Station 2, the best radio in the galaxy. <clears throat> Keep it galactic, as they say. See you in an hour, everybody. Namaste. Welcome back, everybody. Life is changing very rapidly. Uh, and stay on that path of the higher, the higher path. And it doesn't mean you don't keep your feet on the ground. But this is our responsibility now, the ability to respond with love and not go to bed, uh, you know, with an image of Sleepy Joe in our consciousness. That's not working. But let's keep the, uh, the beautiful, uh, sharings that we had today in, in our hearts. Oh, it's a, it's, it's such a joy to be able to have this time together. So Rama's gonna play something next here. Accepting miraculous Say it loud, nice and loud so everybody can hear you, Rama. Accepting miraculous change. Nobody can hear you. Accepting miraculous change. There we go. Oh, we played this already. We did? Yeah. We did. George it Nury. says January 5th. It was George Nury. We just played it. Oh. Yes. That's right. I'm going to go to... Okay, so what about... I wrote something down in my book, and I don't have a piece of paper for it. Uh, let me just read it to you, Rama. Um... The man with the cosmic memory. Yeah. Let's do that one. Okay. How long? That's 55 minutes, right? Yeah. There we go. Is there a a little subtitle there where you can read it to everybody? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mmm. I I like the title. The man with the cosmic memory. Um... In this interview, I am speaking with Matthias about his memory from previous incarnations on Atlantis, Egypt, and other star systems in other dimensions. Matthias is also going to, going deep into the purpose of humankind and his perceptions on how the universe operates. His passion is for people to wake up to this knowledge and to our individual purposes. <sighs> Matthias was born in Venado to... Vanuatu? No, how spell it? Um, it's in Argentina. Venado, T-U-E-R-T-O, Turtle. 
Tuyendo. Tuyendo. What's the first part? V-E-N Venado. Venado. Okay, Argentina. Go on. In 1987, from the moment of his birth, he remembers everything he did before this incarnation. I could understand how the universe works. He says he has been reincarnated with a specific mission on Earth. And to fulfill a mission that he could not complete thousands of years ago. Matthias' mission is to help us find our purpose mm -hmm. so that we can collectively break through to powerful new experiences and build a new world. <clears throat> okay. And this is, again, 55 minutes. Let's do this. Everybody together. Mm. Here we go. Hopefully there's no commercials. Oh. Mm. Might be, honey. The human body is actually not a thing, but a process. Humans were healing him. Yeah, that's commercial, sweetheart. <laughs> A warm welcome to another interview on Wisdom from North. I'm Janneke, and today it's such an honor for me to be here with Matthias Stefano. At a very young age, Matthias was able to remember his connection to the Arkashic records. And this information gave him a powerful understanding of the universe and the different layers of reality that we all exist in. And his dream is to help everyone understand how the universe operates and the different purposes that each and every one of us has. Hello, Matthias. Welcome to the show. How are you today? Hi. Good. Thank you for inviting me. Sure. Now, I'm really excited about delving into your knowledge because you've lived quite an extraordinary life and I'd love to move into dimensions today to understand more about how the universe operates because I've never met anyone with that knowledge. And from what I understand, this has been with you all your life. So you kind of felt that you were different. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience being a human with these extraordinary memories, uh, cosmic memories, you can say. Yes, um, I, well, uh, I, I was born with this. For me, it was always normal. It was all the time like that since I was born. Um, but the first 10 years of my life, I had this um, connection with all the beings that were in other dimensions that they used to explain me how to be a human. They used to explain me how to understand other people, how to understand nature. Um, they, they would teach me about emotions and the cosmos and everything. But um, uh, they usually used to say, uh, then you will remember, then you will remember. So when I was 12 years old, um, so, uh, there was a day that one, uh, two of them came and said, you will stop seeing us, you will hear us, but you will not able to see us anymore because next week you will start to remember. So, <clears throat> so, so, uh, seven days after that, I, I start to remember, um, like past lives, but, um, suddenly 
it was not just past lives, it was everything, even in between the lives, in different realities, in different situations. And um, So it's been like many years, uh, my whole uh, teenage, teenage, it was like um, constantly, every day, remembering a little bit more about my lives, the universe, dimensions, realities, but <laughs> it was not information, it was all emotional. Oh. And I was lucky to have a family that uh, that was not religion, they didn't have any ideas, so they thought I was a very creative person, until my mom realized that um, there was something weird going on too, <clears throat> so she started to look for, for help, um, to understand what, what was happening. So suddenly we met some people that helped uh, as psychologists and so that helped me, helped me to understand that what I was remembering was something that they were looking for their whole life to understand. So, um, so they, they helped me to understand, um, uh, my memories and, and so, and when I was 17, 18 years old, I kind of, uh, well, I did um, a therapy that organizes everything within me. Like it was like an instant, and I could understand why I was here and everything that I have come to here uh, to to do here. It was like order or ordering, like putting order to a library, <laughs> something like that. Yes, because I can imagine that it can be confusing <clears throat> having access to a, a memory from all these realities, in a sense, trying to be in this reality, in the physical reality. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I had help from my family, and I had help from my other family. For me, the, the other beings were not spiritual beings. They were like brothers, like people that that my, my, my family that... Uh, brought me here, and so for me it was natural. Uh, so I had help from both sides. <laughs> so this other family, um, how do you perceive them? Did they look as physical as <laughs> me right now, or is it more like they had another quality to their energy? Or could you try to explain how you, you know, would interact with them and what they are in a sense? Well, the first, the first beings that I saw that were talking to me were seven monkeys. So it was really weird. And I, <laughs> yeah, I don't usually explain that, but, um, uh, there were seven monkeys until my six years old. Then I start to see ele- uh, um, elemental beings like, uh, gnomes and fairies and so. And then I start to, I, I began to see, um, angels like people that dressed like normal walking around and talking to me. And then uh, the next step was like being very, very tall uh, with no face. Uh, they were all shiny, very long, like bulb. And and they didn't talk with voice. They talked here. The voice were resounding here. And I told them, why did I see all these creatures? And they said, we don't want to scare you until because you were a child. So, so they, they, they were choosing like images in my brain to be more accepted by a child. So, so I understood that in the fourth, fifth dimension, they have not a shape. So they just project the shapes that we can understand. Yeah. 
Fascinating. <clears throat> so is this your family in a sense? Does that mean that you feel like you're coming from a place where your family is? And is that so with every one of us that we kind of have a cosmic family out there? Do you think salt will make your blood pressure shoot over the normal limits? Think again. According to Dr. Marley Merritt, salt is not the culprit. Well, it's, um, it's not like that, that we have a cosmic family, but uh, it is like, for example, I'm, a, I, I'm an Argentinian, but my family comes from, from Italy. So I am like bounded to Italy, even if I am not from there, but my whole DNA, my whole soul is bounded to Italy in somehow. So this, uh, but th this doesn't mean that my whole story comes from Italy. For sure, some people from Italy, from my family, they came from Greece and from Greece, from Turkey, or who knows? So, um, so in the cosmic realm, it's almost the same. So, I am bounded to Sirius, to the constellation of Canis Major. Uh, I used to live uh, two or three lives there in, in two different planets. So I am related to the family of Sirius uh, people, as many others with Pleiades and Arturus or whatever. But this doesn't mean that they are our family. It means that we, our soul went through that experience before coming here. So that's why we are more bounded to, to them because it was the last uh, spot when we were before Earth. Right. Okay. So you had a, a life there. I know you remember several lives, but, uh, but let's talk about that one. I've always wondered how it looks like there. Do they have like, uh, physicality like we do uh, or is it not even possible to explain because our human minds cannot understand how things work there in serious yeah where it yeah no no they are they are physical oh, okay <clears throat> well it was physical yeah it was uh, 3d matter but they they used to the the way of traveling was in the fourth dimension so it was different so um they were able to go into the into the fourth dimension also, but normally we were in the third dimension. Uh, for myself, um, uh, my my body was like three meters tall with a long head, like elongated, like a cone, and dark eyes, like brownish gray skin. Uh, um, long fingers, um, small mouth and nose, uh, like a typical uh, alien, but some stuff were different. And we used to dress uh, not much stuff. Um, and we used to talk, communicate more telepathically uh, because we, we were like three races in the whole world. Um, and we accomplished like a, like a government for the whole planet because we were we had like three brains, like not uh, right and left. Uh, we had these two and other and one more. So we accomplished to to talk with the mind, and that changed our way of, of society because there were not lies because we could hear everything, uh, every thoughts. So so the evolution took us to a different 
<clears throat> kind of um, civilization in which we were we were like ants or like bees, uh, but uh, we were known as the architects of civilization. We we understood very well the geometry of creation, so we were the ones like um, helping other planets in evolution how to create um, quantum machines to to connect with the whole and. But it, it was, compared to Earth, it was very boring. <laughs> compared to what? Sorry? Co compared to the planet Earth, it was very boring. Oh! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was no much culture. Um, here is too fun. <laughs> so, uh, this uh, planet, uh, would you say that these were higher um, evolved beings in a sense that, that is assisting, for instance, us? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so mm -hmm. are they then, um, is that, would you say it's a past life or is it actually that you would say perhaps that you are existing there as well right now in a sense? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, uh, for me, it's like a past life because we are, uh, bounded to this uh, third-dimensional world in the system of the sun, uh, but um, according to the laws of gravity in different systems, um, some of the things that for me happened yesterday, there may be happened uh, thousands of years. Uh, for just just to know, the first life I had there when I was in charge of a neighborhood. Um, uh, to solve problems of a group of people like uh, like that, um, uh, there there were dinosaurs here. Oh, so but <clears throat> yeah, but but um, after I died, um, well, before I died, I read that there was there was a plan of seeding seeds of Arturian systems that we didn't call it Arturians, of course. Um, to plant seeds in three different systems, and one of them was here. We used to call this planet Anglusaha, and 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 I, I knew before I was dead in that life. It was like like I knew that there was a plan <coughs> of coming here. But the thing is that that plan uh, took took place like really shortly after my death in that time. But even though um, at that moment there, there was human here, that there, there were human here. So in, in in a short period of time in Sirius, it's been like 60 million years in Earth. So, so uh, I don't know exactly how it works, but, but I can tell that. I mean, when we speak about time, it's just impossible almost to speak about time. Um, yeah. What I got curious about now, <clears throat> sorry, uh, was that, okay, so these are the lives. You still have birth and death in a sense, because you said you died. Yeah. Uh, so that means that this is kind of a bit similar. They also have birth and death uh, on other planets. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Okay. yeah they, they have. Uh, there, there are planets way behind in evolution that, that that we are, and and there are of course planets that they are way ahead of us. Uh, uh, one of the, uh, for example, uh, Pleiades, the system of stars that is in in the constellation of Taurus, um, uh, they 
they had too many sons in the system, like uh, they're related with, with many sons. So there's too much radiation, too much energy, uh, so I can understand. And that made the evolution of them into light beams uh, because of radiation. So that's why they became like eternal because they don't need food to to keep the bodies going. They just use the energy of the suns, um, like plants. But they transform constantly the the atomic uh, system of their bodies. So that's why they kind of are like angels. You can see them like angels. Oh, that makes sense. So when you then die from this other incarnation and then when then you became a spirit again, um, then I get curious, the spiritual world, uh, I, I, I mean, I guess that's, that's it's a huge question also. <laughs> uh, but is it like, you know, all the different uh, species in a sense kind of connects uh, in the spirit world? Uh, I guess I'm wondering. Spirit world, you mean? Yeah, when you died from being like on Sirius, mm -hmm. where did you go then? How did the spirit world look like? And I assume then that you meet spirit from all kinds of planets, in a sense. Oh yeah, yeah. It's uh, well, it, when you die, of course, you are not related to other planets. You are related to the fifth dimension or fourth dimension of this planet. Um, uh, because no, normally, um, normally the, the um, spiritual world that we call, it's the vibrational aspect of reality. So when you die in a planet, you are bounded to the vibration of this planet. You can stand the vibration of other planets. So, <clears throat> so, until you don't get rid of all the vibration of this planet, you will still be attached to the systems of this planet. So that's why the fourth dimension for humans is really like if you had another life here. Uh, it's very similar. The fifth dimension is very similar because the beings in the fifth dimension, they look like humans because they are also bounded to the planet. So the... <coughs> the the whole system of the spiritual world, uh, it's like talking about organs and chakras. So every organ is the physical aspect, and then the chakra is the energetical aspect, and then they have a different vibration aspect, but they are still in the same level. So the heart chakra is bounded to the organ part. The vibration of the of the rhythm, which is the law of the spirit, rhythm is attached to the heartbeat. Uh, so, so that's why when you go into the spiritual world, if you wear a cell on a heart, on one heart, so you're going to be part of the chakra of the heart in the fourth and the fifth dimension. You're not going to be a part of a feet, of the feet, <laughs> you know? Um, so it's, it's like a big body. The cosmos is like a big body. And it's all bounded by vibration. <clears throat> so you cannot be in Pleiades just like that. Even in the fourth and the fifth dimension, you need to be prepared uh, energetically to stand 
the vibration of Pleiades, for example. So, but in the, in the, in the fourth dimension, space is relative. Uh, and so, so does the time. So you can go there. You can, uh, be there if you have worked in order to accomplish a vibration according to that system. Okay. Yeah, because uh, I got a bit disappointed there because I've always felt like I belong to the Pleiades and I will go straight back. But I assume perhaps. That oh, you can, you can, you can go, of course, but you have to work. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll work hard. <laughs> yeah, it's it's well in other dimensions. It's it's like here, for example. I don't know you're in Norway, but maybe I don't know you you want to go to Brazil and. Well, you have to to take an airplane and to work to buy the ticket or take a boat. It would take longer. Um, there's many ways to go there, uh, but the energy is different there. Of course, there is too cold and there is and Brazil is too hot, so you need to be prepared. You cannot bring a coat to Brazil. You have to, you know, it's kind of like that. So um, even though it, I've been there before, like even though I've had past lives there. Yeah, yes, because um, this is not, when you die, it's not like you are free, because uh, uh, we had a weird concept of what life it is. Um, life is not what you have now and then you die. Life is a constant in the universe that has some moments that stop and gone, stop and gone, stop and gone, but it's a whole life. So what you call death is just a low vibration of the body and then being born is like high vibration of the body. So that's life, the complete process. Okay. So when you, when you are not, uh, uh, even if you have been there, you have densified your body and your soul in order to be here. So <clears throat> your soul now is related to this vibration here. So when you die, you still hold that vibration. So <clears throat> the, your life didn't end. Your life is, is still going on. So what you have to do is to, to work in your life in order to be more light, to not to have so much heavy, uh, to, to have a coherent life. So when you die, you will be more light. So that allows you to go wherever you want in the mind of the universe. But normally it's, it's, we don't do that because we have so many things to work with. <laughs> so uh, that's why the fourth dimension of Earth is really full of people. <laughs> it's really full of people that are waiting to reincarnate once and again, once and again, until they find a way out. But it's not because... It's like a prison. It's because we don't know how to change our vibration to be free from the system. Okay. So, uh, Thank hmm. you for explaining this uh, in such a detail. I really appreciate that. Um, we get help, right, from these benevolent <coughs> higher beings. So we can ask. I'm just working with uh, uh, a man I just interviewed now. Uh, he's an angel intuitive and is helping me with connect with angels. Is that a way that we can then raise our frequency to work with these things? 
Well, angels, for example, they are in the fifth dimension, uh, and they usually are really bounded to us because they, we were, uh, we are the projection in the three-dimensional existence from their uh, existence in the fifth dimension. So uh, that's why we are, they are similar to us, is because we are the program. Uh, the experiential program of them. <laughs> so, um, so that means that if they are in the fifth dimension, they know the whole plan. So that's why they can help us to, to know how to use the system. So that's why, uh, asking, uh, help or, or having help from beings from the, um, from the fifth dimension, it's, it's, it's really good and really nice. Uh, uh, but also, um, one of the things that they would love us to do, um, is to figure out for ourselves. <laughs> because, it's, uh, this is part of why we are here. We are in a school trying to understand the systems that we have created. So we need to kind of, uh, look for different ways because the way of the fifth dimension, <coughs> Uh, is very different from the ways of the third dimension. So there are many things that maybe they say, you have to be ready for this, but you don't have the tools to accomplish that. But they see the potential that you have because they they can tell that you already have done it in the future. Uh, but you say, how? I don't know how. So that's the experience that we need to to work with this, uh, that's something that they cannot help us, is something that we have to do. So, Why do you think that you remember, and not all of us? It would be so easy if we could remember. Well, it's not so easy. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not so easy. Um, and it's not that someone decides it. It's not like there's a God saying, okay, you will remember, you know, you see, you do, you know, you know, it's not like that. There, there's nobody deciding. It's about the preparation. It's about what you have done in your system, in your life, in your, in your existence in the universe, your preparation, your kind of job in the universe, um, the missions that you had in the past lives. Um, all this related to what is happening. So, so, um, every, every one of us has a mission. And if we could remember everything that we have done, it would be impossible for us to concentrate in our own mission in this moment. So, uh, uh, not remembering, it's like a, like a help, a biological help to concentrate on what you have to, to do. Now, imagine, for example, for me, it was really hard because when I was 12 years old, I remember uh, everything that I have to do in this life, in the future, and I got really nervous because I, I said, I, I, I can't do it. Um, and I, I hadn't the tools. I had no idea how to do it. I was really nervous. Um, it was too big for me. Um, uh and when you don't know everything that is going to happen, <clears throat> you kind of enjoy the preparation for what is going to happen. Because you can learn specifically 
what you have to learn now because you think this is the most important thing and then suddenly it's not but you now have the tool and then you go to do another thing so um, it's all about concentration it's all about to be focusing in in specific times for me for me uh, uh, this life is like the concentration of many things that I needed to accomplish in this specific moment. So that's why I needed to remember specifically some of the spots of the, of the history so I could do it. But also, uh, we all are going, are going to remember it sooner or later because it's not just about people, it's about the planet. The planet is the one that is remembering. So, uh, soon, uh, the whole population will remember many, many things and stuff. Um, yeah, let, let's go there. Because uh, I saw a video where you were speaking about, I, I think it was a previous life, life that you had, that it was actually the planet uh, that had the thoughts. It was something about that you were a result of the planet in a sense. It was like a totally different perspective that I've ever like, you know, seen before or heard. Uh, so Gaia, let's take her. So it's, you're saying that she, when she remembers, then we will kind of be influenced by that and remember. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because, um, our spirits has a story. They had a story. Our souls, they have a story, but our bodies has a different story. And um, our bodies are not um, beings on earth. Our bodies are earth. We are her. We are she. We are part of her. We are not something from outside that came inside. So we are not earth and humans. It's not Gaia and humans. Is us. I am. It's the whole thing. So when spirits and souls come to this planet, they need to um, to adapt to the process of the of of Earth. So one thing is our own path through evolution in a spiritual uh, systems, and a totally different is us as humans on the planet. So we um, we are not here being individuals. We are here being a whole being. So whatever happens to us is what is happening to the earth. Whatever that happens to earth is what happens to us. So if a lot of people is now aware of us being like a different consciousness, it's not because humans are awakening, it's because the planet is awakening. And we, as a result, remember. Wow. So, <clears throat> so, um, we have to imagine ourselves like if every human is, like, is a neuron in the consciousness, in the brain of the planet. So, uh, there are some neurons that hold some information, some other neurons that bring other information. Uh, so we are all different. But we are neurons in a whole system, in a body. So when the body changes its mind, the whole neurons start to work in order to balance with that change of mind or change of reality. So what we are living right now, for example, is like a 
like a reaction of the planet saying, wait a moment, I'm crazy? <laughs> because uh, I say that every culture we have, every country that we have created, everything that we have done in this planet right now, it's like a, uh, it's not like a mess, but uh, it's like a schizophrenia for the planet because the planet is just like trying to figure out who she is. So humans have awakened, uh, awakened in, in the moment of awakening of the planet. The planet is saying, who, who can I be? That's what she started to ask. So all the humans, all the cultures, all the countries are trying to figure out who we are. So, but now that we accomplished the whole picture of the planet and we have globalization, the planet says, oh, I am all this. So what is the truth about all this? So now every country is trying to be aware of the truth and so on. So it's like a process. It's like a kid that looks in the mirror and, and says, oh, that's me. Uh, what can I do with me? <laughs> so um, then it's a process of evolution of the planet. It's wow. not just us. I Thank you for that. I've never, ever seen it like that. And I, I'm noticing my whole body. It's like I'm having some reactions. Like it, It's really touching. It, it, it touches me. Uh, I, I think I just felt connected to it. Uh, mm. And it resonates. It makes sense. And also then I'm thinking that, you know, how man or humans have this conflict inside then I can understand this conflict in a sense between body and spirit. Um, oh, yeah. In a sense, pulled in different directions and awakening here and the understanding there. Wow. Yeah. Uh, would you say that there are any coincidences or is everything like uh, cosmically planned, like there's an order in everything, or do we have a free will where we can, in a sense, mess things up? <laughs> um, well, we are very conditioned by many systems. Um, everything is very, very conditioned. Um, so it's not that everything is written, but everything has has uh, patterns. So um, the patterns that that we created are like something that is almost impossible to change. Uh, the only way we can change realities is from the mind that created those realities. So that's why it's so important to connect with the spiritual uh, consciousness that we have, because the only one that has free will is the spirit. Everything, the rest, doesn't have real free will. It has just an aspect of the free will, which is uh, the decision of how to use the tools that we have. So, yeah, we have to imagine this. It's like uh, if we um, if we were um, ourselves, like uh, I'm a free spirit that says I I know everything about the universe. You know, I know everything. I I can be related to any dimension. I can be everywhere in every world, any time. I can do anything. So, what is challenging for someone that is eternal? The, the limits. So, for someone that is 
constantly eternal that has every answer for everything, limitations are the challenges. So what uh, what the spiritual beings did was to challenge themselves in evolution to seek for different answers to solve problems, to see if they can improve their own truth. So imagine yourself saying, okay, I will prove my limitations, so I will make other beings to build a house with no windows and no doors, and they have to put me inside of it, okay, um, <coughs> inside of it, and they will cover with a roof that house and no way out. And and they will they will tell they will tell me oh but we are gonna give you we're gonna give you two tools to to go through the walls and they give you um uh, um how do you say a, a a pencil no not a pencil like um oh a brush or yeah like a brush yeah like a brush and some colors like oil colors and Okay, do whatever you want with that. And they close it. So, um, now you have too many walls and you have to break the walls with a brush. So, how do you start? So, the thing is that we are all like that. We created a system to link ourselves to prove the different ways in which we can open the doors of that reality that we have created. So it's not a prison, it's a proof. It's a test for ourselves. So whether you can take the brush and start to heat the wall, or you can paint a door and paint windows to see something. You know, so, <clears throat> um, so what is free will? Free will is what do you want to do with the tools you have? But, you have conditions. Only two tools, and you're locked. <laughs> so, so, um, so the free will. What, what was the free will? That you created the brush, you created the paint, <laughs> and you created the house, and you decided to go inside. <laughs> that's, that's the free will. <laughs> right. Um, I want to go a little bit back to Atlantis. I'm very fascinated by ancient history, and I just had another interview with, I don't know if you know Jordan River. He has created spirit science on YouTube. We spoke about ancient Egypt. And mm -hmm. uh, from what I understand, you have, uh, have had a life in Atlantis, and what I saw in the video where I spoke about it, uh, you said it was 15,000 years ago. And I'm curious, curious to hear, I mean... Time is interesting from one perspective, though. So uh, I've heard that Atlantis is even much older, like 200, 300,000 years ago. Uh, yeah. And here I heard 15,000 years ago. So I'm curious, maybe did it last that long? Or can you tell us like a little bit about Atlantis? Yeah. Uh, most of the things that I remember from that civilization was because of my grandfather in that life, 12,000 years ago that he told me how their grand-grandparents moved into Egypt at that time. Egypt didn't exist. It was a colony of Atlantis. And why do I say 12,000 years ago and 15,000 years ago? Because of weather. Uh, I have a really, really big problem saying numbers. I'm like dyslexic 
dyslexic with numbers, but I can tell the weather and the geography, how it was, uh, what I remember of how everything was. And according to my memories um, and how it was all distributed in the, in the land at that time, um, it was the warm, uh, uh, the warm, warm glaciation. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> um, I did maps when I was a child of how the world used to look, look like, and it matches with that glaciation that took place in between uh, 17,000 years ago and 10,000 years ago. So uh, 10,000 10, years ago, it, it ended. Uh, and I remember that we were in the last period of the, of the final um, glaciation. So that's why I used to say it was 12,000 years ago, because it matches with the weather, with the geography, and what was happening in, that plan- in the planet at that moment. So um, 200,000 years ago was the time when the fathers and mothers of Atlantis arrived to this planet. We were humans, <coughs> but we had also some people that modified our way of living, our civilization, everything. And they came at that time. So, um, Where did they come from? Do you mean like uh, beings from outer space came? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so they came and they, they made some tests and proofs to 200,000 years ago because it was the moment when the Homo sapiens sapiens appeared on the planet. So that mean that that was the sign for those beings was the sign that says, oh, this planet is getting aware of itself. So I remember that plan from Sirius. Whenever there's a species that can say I am and reflects it, it, itself, it's the moment to recognize that the, that that planet is being aware of itself. So it's going into the direction of creating a portal in between dimensions. So that's why we choose this planet. It's 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 not because humans, <laughs> but humans was like were like uh, we were like a sign of of awareness of the planet. So um, <clears throat> so that brought them to this system, and they start to to uh, we say seed the seeds of their own civilizations to see if they were able to live in this planet and create a civilization according to what they were expecting. So it took like 150,000 uh, 150, years yeah, to develop a civilization that was, uh, no, a, a being that was able to incarnate the souls of those beings from other systems. So uh, we could say that uh, the civilizations that we usually call Lemurians and Atlanteans, um, also the ones in the north and other other groups that were all around the planet, they were tested uh, for many years until we could be the perfect species to download the information that they were willing to to download. So um, so the last period period of that civilization, of Atlantis civilization, was during the age of, uh, of Virgo. 
and the age of, of Virgo was around 15,000 years ago. So. Okay, I think I almost got that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so in a way, are you saying that we are actually these other beings? Like we are a result of them? Like we are like a combination of them? Yeah, it, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm curious about Egypt and uh, the pyramids and Sphinx and all these major colossal structures. What was that knowledge that came from these beings and why did it disappear? Like this knowledge. <laughs> yeah, uh, this, um, the system of, uh, pyramids, uh, was, was a system designed and downloaded during the period of Atlantis. Because um, the goal of the structure was something that some planets designed. For example, in, in Gludok, the planet of Ceres that I used to live, we had pyramids too, but they were not with four faces. They were with three faces. And uh, the structure of this uh, of these pyramids, what what they <coughs> what they uh, taught us about. Why do we have this? Uh, why do we have to build these systems? Is because in the three-dimensional three-dimensional realities, in order to 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 get into the network, which is the core and the void, um, to connect with the whole divine, you need a structure that represents the sphere in three dimensions, and the structure that represents a sphere in three dimensions. Is like an octahedron that holds the whole system, and these octahedrons should have also uh, a bending faces, creating like wave. So that's why the pyramids doesn't have uh, four faces, but they have eight faces, uh, down, up, down, up, like creating a wave. So they are space and time at the same structure. So. What they created with this pyramid was a network, like a computer system, that uh, helped the civilizations to download or upload any information from the evolution from any system of the galaxy to the core of the planet, and from the core of the planet to any system of the galaxy. So this was like um, a place to... Um, in Atlantean times, we uh, we used to call to name the 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 the, the system uh, like creating humans into gods <clears throat> something like that because um in Atlantean times we didn't believe in gods and goddesses um that that's uh, misunderstanding uh we understood the divine in every aspect so uh, we call the divine of the nature, the divine of this and that, that. And we, and the priests and priestesses were the divine of knowledge. So that's why in Egypt they related the priests and priestesses with gods. Uh, and they put animal faces like attributes of those gods. But, um, but they were priests and priestesses working in the divine. And the pyramids were like the last test to connect with the divine within. So they were like machines, like quantum machines, to connect with the core of the planet and the core of reality. Um, and as many we have, 
according to every portal in every constellation, we were able to download more information to, to the core system of the planet. So we understood at that time that the planet was like a spaceship. We, some people used to call it like that today, uh, like a spaceship, a living spaceship, because uh, it helped us to, you know, the, the, the people that wants to, that looks into the sky and they want to go to the heaven, uh, they are going, um, how do you say, they, they are going away from the goal of the main consciousness. Because if you understand how the universe works, is expansion, is chaos and um, and experiences. But contraction is integration. Okay? So the better way to go into the real core of reality is if you go to the core of the planet, not to the stars. And that's why they created a system to download the stars into Earth. And we used to call that system Atartunti, that, that means bringing heaven to earth. And that was the plan that I remember when I was 12 years old, um, how to download the stars into the planet. That's why how to be, how to become ourselves like gods, how to download information from all these alien beings from the different aspects of the divine and the pyramids, the structures were machines to help us accomplish that 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 thing and and the reason why uh why it stopped uh well the things that you asked about the things the the pyramids were all the pyramids most of the spirit of the pyramids were built uh before or a bit after the glaciation time so the the egyptian pyramids has like 10 to 12,000 years old and and the things is a bit uh older um, and it didn't have the face of a, of a person. It was a lion. And, um, it was all painted in red and the face has many colors. And the chambers below, we storage information in basins of water. Because in Atlantean times, we didn't write much. Uh, we shunted the information. <clears throat> so all the books were written in water. So whenever we wanted to learn stuff, the priest was singing and we were drinking water while doing that. So that's why it's nothing written, not even in the walls. <laughs> because this, it was all about vibration. That's why it's lost. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for explaining this. This is, oh my goodness. How fascinating. Um, I know you got to go now. Uh, just tell us, how do you work now? I, I know your mission is really to help people understand this. Uh, are you, you know, is it a dream to write books? Are you tr uh, traveling? Not right now, but like, tell us a little bit about how you work and how people can, you know, learn more from you. Um, well, I'm, I'm trying to be every day a little bit more human than I am. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, according to my plan, in 2022, uh, my mission, according to the 12,000-year story, finished. So uh, I had only two years to do it right. <laughs> so, um, so all information about what I'm going to do in these next two years is 
is to uh, to reconnect the network of IAM. Uh, so um, since the time of Atlantis, when the the glaciation uh, ended, um, the whole the whole system like shut down, uh, and it's been like twelve thousand years with nobody going to the spots where these keys and doors are in the planet for the network of consciousness. So what um, what I am going to do in these next two years is to go to all these spots uh, in a trip that will take two years, and that's my 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 mission for now. Um, so in my social media, in uh, in everything, well, I have a foundation that it's helped me to 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 well with all the people that follows me to raise money to do the trip because it's a difficult trip <laughs> and um, and uh, what I'm trying to do is to help people to understand that we are Earth that um, that if we are balanced and coherent with ourselves with her we evolve uh, so my goal by now is to to help people to understand how the systems of dimension, of co-creation, of uh, soul, spirit, body works, and how all this evolution system of the planet, when it gets, like, um, not perfect, but working a little bit more in, in a network of consciousness in the planet, which I am to, to, to work with in these two years, um, what I'm willing to do is to, again, download these systems from the other dimensions here so we could download new information for economics, education, politics, architecture, and all these systems that we uh, that a lot of people is channeling, but that the planet is not holding it because we the, the network is not is not strong enough to, to hold a new system. So uh, right now I'm trying to do that. Wow, powerful. <laughs> um, and just yeah. so you can say, what can we do? Uh, do you have any advice? What can we do to help this process? Well, we have to be more coherent. Uh, and coherent means we need to ask ourselves if what we are doing in our lives is exactly what our emotions want, what our body needs, what our spirit or mind uh, are creating. So, um, thinking. <clears throat> so, uh, it's it's so simple that it's difficult. Um, uh, it's, uh, the simple is, uh, think if what you do, what you feel, and what you think matches. If it doesn't match, so you are not coherent. And, when, and first that, and then if also it's coherent with the environment, if the people that you meet, the people with you, who you work with, um, the whole system around, if it doesn't match, it's because you are not coherent. Coherent is not to be moral, like not to be in a cultural moral, you know, like moral. Mor- um. Um, it's, it's not to follow a line. Mm. That's be, being coherent. Uh, uh, so coherent is if you are coherent with yourself, with the line of yourself. And uh, it's not about spirituality. It's not about 
that. It's not about how much we meditate. It's about how much we uh, we deal with ourselves and we are coherent with the environment. The, the, I, I think that uh, there will be a lot of people that are not spiritual, that doesn't believe in what I'm saying, that are most useful for the system that many of the people that is working in spirituality. So it's all about to be coherent with the system, with the system of the earth, not the system of humans. <laughs> so, um, so I guess that's the most important task to do. And uh, my guys used to tell me that to, in order to put order to that, uh, <coughs> we need we need to take care of what we eat, eat better, uh, to breathe better, and to laugh more. That those are the three main things that we have to take care of. I love that. Really tangible tools. That's yeah. great. <laughs> you know, uh, I just got to say, this is one of the most profound interviews I've had. Uh, it was such a pleasure, such a joy to be here with you today. Um, thank you so much for showing up and sharing in such detail um, all this knowledge. Uh, wow. Thank you for your work, and thank you so much for today. Thank you. And thank you so much for watching, everybody. Much light from here. Bye-bye. Bye. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for watching this video. If you liked it, please subscribe and click the thumbs up. And click the bell in order to get notifications of my new videos. Now, I also have a free gift for you. If you want to become a conscious co-creator, you can click on my free meditation below called Meet Your Future Self, where you have the possibility to co-create with the highest future version of you. <laughs> the future version of us, everybody. Uh, this came out yesterday. Rama's going to prepare Teresa Ballard for us. It's one we had from a long time ago, but it got pulled forward, so it's appropriate. Uh, I can't get enough Teresa Ballard. But um, this is from yesterday, from His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. The ultimate source of happiness is within us. Not money, not power, not status. Some of my friends are billionaires, yet they are very unhappy people. Power and money fail to bring inner peace. Outward attainment will not bring real inner joyfulness. We must look inside. Absolutely, totally. We all have different gifts. <clears throat> Dougie was just talking to Richard and Ramantara. We're having a little, just a little listen to that. And he just was saying that he loves to fix things. So he's going to take fixer-uppers and he's going to fix them and he's going to make them in a way that brings him joy. And then provide those spaces for people to choose to live in. And the most important thing is that with this change and everybody coming into more than enough to 
to live continuously without needfulness and imbalance, etc. I mean, it's just going to bring a creativity to everything that's we're just going to have to experience it, I think. And, of course, it's it might be even more challenging to find a way to be in the balance with that. Uh, yet the challenge is a good one because it's not based in slave, slave, slave state mentality. Hey, Rama, what's this one about, Rama? Multidimensional awareness. Is there a sentence or two about it? Solving life's biggest mysteries. What does that say? This is the final showing of the mystery teachings with Teresa Boulard. Oh. Okay, here we go. About 36 minutes, right? I'm Dr. Teresa Bullard, and this is Mystery Teachings. Could our universe be just one in a vast sea of the multiverse? If so, how does it have any bearing on our lives? In this episode, we begin to grasp our infinity and discover ways to actualize more of our full human potential. Scientists and science fiction writers alike love to toy with the ideas of multiverses and parallel realities. But usually when they do, they invoke it as a way to explain away the anthropic principle, namely that our universe is fine-tuned for life, as if by design. Or alternatively, to eliminate the quantum interpretation of a participatory universe, meaning that we have a role to play in creating this universe. Often when we hear scientists or media reporting on mysterious topics, especially ones that are gaining a lot of attention or that seem to be paranormal, they like to use this phrase, mystery salt. Is it really? Or is that just a way to get people to think that there is no mystery? Science has solved it so we can stop wondering, stop asking questions, stop believing in higher powers or aliens or whatever mystery, and just go back to life as usual. Perhaps we might want to all be wary of this phrase, mystery solved. Life is one big mystery. Our universe is an even bigger one. And the biggest mystery of all is us. Who are we? What is our potential? Exploring the mysteries is what brings meaning and curiosity and a desire to seek more knowledge so that we can grow from it. Rather than trying to explain away the mystery, let's embrace it. Let's welcome a bit more magic and mystery into our lives. When we do, life becomes a lot more exciting and interesting. That is why this series is called Mystery Teachings. And that is also why mystery schools are called mystery schools. Rather than trying to explain away the mystery or hide the mystery, as some suspect, it's about exploring the mysteries of life, the universe, the soul, the nature of spirit and of the self. 
Despite the way that scientists interpret this idea of a multiverse, it too is a mystery worth exploring. Why? Or because it helps us to touch infinity and expand our mind to remember who we are as eternal beings. Metaphysics also works with the ideas of multiverses and parallel realities, while still including consciousness and spirit as vital ingredients. Let's explore what both science and metaphysics have to say on these ideas and how they can be used in a way that actually empowers our lives in the here and now. We've learned. I discovered that eight immortal kings of Samaria lived a total of 241,200 years. I've discovered through my research that these type of. We've learned that string theory provides some exciting and beautiful possibilities for discovering a unified theory of everything. And string theory is what has opened the door to the multiverse idea in science. How did it do that? Well, it goes back to the issue that string theorists are grappling with. The challenge of identifying the exact geometry of the superstrings and extra dimensions hidden within our universe. They have many candidate shapes allowed by the math over 10 to the power of 500 possibilities, which is a massive number. Each geometry theoretically corresponding to its own universe with a different set of physical laws and tuning. But rather than saying there can be only one right answer, resulting in only one universe, namely ours, string theorists have instead proposed that all of these possibilities are equally probable and likely exist somewhere within a multiverse meaning there are at least 10 to the power of 500 differently tuned universes out there in the multiverse, maybe even infinite numbers. But this part where they say they're all equally probable and all exist, this is the part where some scientists then claim that this means that there is nothing special about the fine tuning of our universe. We simply find these sets of parameters in our universe because we can only exist in a universe that is fine-tuned for life. But there are many other types of universes in the multiverse. We are just one possibility in an infinite sea, nothing special, therefore mystery solved. Or not. Really, all of this is speculation based on assumptions, not evidence. How about we explore another perspective? What does metaphysics say about this? Well, to answer that, let's first take a look at hermetic teachings. In the Hermetic Teachings on the Principle of Mentalism, which says the all is mind, the universe is mental, it later goes on to say that the all creates universes in its own mentality. And there are millions of millions of such universes in existence within the infinite mind of the all. There it is. Hermeticists have been talking about the idea of a multiverse long before modern scientists. But they can see that this multiverse is within the infinite mind of the all. They then go on to say that you are dwelling in the infinite mind of the all and your possibilities and opportunities are infinite, both in time and space. In other words, we are evolving within the all and there are infinite possibilities and ways in which we can evolve in our journey through eternity. 
Rather than rob us of the spirit or divine source, the hermetic approach to the multiverse empowers us to realize our infinite possibilities and eternal being. Is that it? Or is there more to be gained from the metaphysical perspective? By Mystery School Kabbalah, we explore the concept of the multiverse as well. And we use it to expand our consciousness to touch infinity. For example, we explore the Kabbalistic concept of Ensop, the infinite source that is without end. Ensop is that source of will that initiates the Big Bang of creation of our universe. How does Ensop do this? Well, first of all, Ensop being truly infinite is beyond our universe, which means that Ensop's home is the multiverse or the infinite sea of universes. One version of the story says that the infinite mind of Ensop devised a plan to manifest a universe that was conducive to life, consciousness, and its progression, one in which eternal spirits could come into and inhabit to express and thrive in as living beings. And to create this universe, Ensof summoned 144,000 rays from the multiverse. Each of these rays carried different ingredients or aspects that could fulfill parts of the plan. Ensof, as a source that creates universes, had already created other universes within the multiverse. But each universe has different components, different laws and tuning. To create this new universe, Ensof needed a specific set of ingredients, or we could say information, or even better would be to say a specific set of blueprints that were needed to succeed at fulfilling this plan. Each ray holds a blueprint. To get the right blueprints that would work, Ensof first sent out 144,000 feelers or messengers out into the multiverse. And their mission was to scan, communicate, and gain insight from amongst the trillions of universes and possibilities to figure out what works. As these messengers went out all over, they then each returned with one ray or blueprint that would work. As the 144,000 rays with the correct blueprints then came back together, they collided into one point. That collision resulted in what we now call the Big Bang. That place where these 144,000 rays united is what we call the Great Central Sun, which is like one central mainframe that holds all the blueprints. From there, the 144,000 rays are then sent out into the logos of the newly created and expanding universe. Each ray holds the blueprint for a different density level. There is a master observing or overseeing each ray with a host of angelic beings to support them in now carrying out the blueprints and manifesting the plan. Swish this sour liquid in your mouth before bed to regrow your teeth and gums before you sleep and never need a dentist again. Scientists at the National Institute of Dental Research It's a cool story, but what does it reveal to us? Kabbalah is saying that there are 144,000 density levels on the vibrational spectrum between the great central sun or origin and us here in the physical. 144,000 is regarded as a very magical and sacred number in Kabbalah. There are all kinds of numerological reasons for why, but for now, let's stay with this story and what else it reveals. 
According to Kabbalah, this physical density is the densest level, the 144,000th ray. That obviously then also tells us that within each density level or ray, there are sublevels as well. We know from science that in the physical, we have a full spectrum of vibrational energies that we can interact with, such as light, sound, materia. All of this that we can detect in the physical is part of the sublevels of the 144,000th ray or density level. Remember that string theory says there's just one string with a particular geometry whose vibrations manifest all the different particles, forces, energies that make up the physical universe we know. Kabbalah is saying the same thing, but it calls that string a ray, and in particular, it is the 144,000th ray. What does this also imply then? Well, it says that our universe is not just physical. Within our universe, there are 144,000 density levels, with this physical level being just one of them, the last one. Not only are there many places within our physical universe to explore and learn from besides Earth, there are also many levels beyond this physical density to learn and grow from. And that is just within this universe. Beyond this universe, there is an infinite multiverse to also explore. So now, why are we so stuck on this idea that we can only learn and grow in this physical density of Earth? As the Hermeticists say, our possibilities and opportunities are infinite. The only thing that limits us is our mind. Our mind, our concepts, our thoughts create our reality, meaning the box we put ourselves in. By stretching our mind and our concepts out to touch infinity and consider all these other possibilities and opportunities, we can free ourselves from limited thinking and limited ways of being. We can realize that this life in this universe offers us a smorgasbord of opportunity. And that is the purpose of this universe. That was Ensof's plan. That is why our universe is so finely tuned for life and consciousness to evolve and progress in it, even in ways beyond what this physical realm can offer us. With this expanded awareness of the possibilities that lie before us, we can hopefully let go of getting so caught up in the drama and minutia of the human game. We can hopefully remember our eternal being because we too came from the multiverse. We are some of the spirits that Ansoff planned this universe for so that we could inhabit it and express ourselves at all the density levels, not just the 144,000th level. This level is the densest. As the light from source flows down from the highest vibrational level of the great central sun to us here in this physical density matrix, its vibration gets slowed down. What does that mean? It means that this vibrational level of matter is the bottom speed of light and is therefore the furthest away from the source that we can get. That is why it is so hard being physical. And that is why this reality is not the true reality, because it is so filtered and distorted by the low vibrations of this physicality. But at the same time, we are here to experience this density, to learn to manifest at this density, and find joy in living here as well. 
realize too that our spirit has already traveled and explored through all the higher density levels while en route from the multiverse to the great central sun, out through the logos, across the cosmos. And after eons of time, we are now here exploring this physical life on earth. Our spirit has been on a cosmic journey through eternity. And this physical life is just our final pit stop before we begin the journey home. This physical life is but the blink of an eye compared to our spirit's eternal life. How's that for beginning to grasp our infinity? Some people may get a bit overwhelmed with this idea of how much more there is beyond this physical life to learn and grow through. But usually when that happens, it's because we're projecting our pain, our fears, and attachments from this life onto those other realms. But have no fear, it's only up from here. Once we transition out of this physical density, we then begin the journey back towards higher vibrations of light, and things get better, less veiled or filtered, more true to who we really are. Now, why do we come into this density at all if we have so many other levels to learn and grow from? Well, in short, we're here in training. We are here exploring all these levels in order to evolve and transform into something more than just pure formless spirit. We are here to actualize our potential. Mystery School teachings say that we are here to learn to become creators so that we can contribute to this grand symphony of creation. And here, at this physical density of the 144,000th ray, is where we learn to manifest. This density level of the physical is where the pure spirit potential can have its ultimate expression. To do so, we need to learn how to harness the subrays of this density. How do we do that? Where do we begin? We begin with ourselves because we are the key. All these rays and subrays funnel down into us. They form our blueprints encoded within our DNA. They form every atom and subatomic particle of our bodies because we are the microcosm of the macrocosm. Not only do we have all the physical ingredients within our body, we also have all the various energy levels that connect us to the higher rays, such as our chakras, our aura, our etheric field, our soul, our astral dimensions, and more. All the powers of the universe are within us, just waiting for us to learn to tap into them. So we start with ourselves and just being aware of the greater potential that is available within us. This is why above the doors to the ancient mystery schools were written the words, Temet Noske, or thine own self thou must know. In other words, know thyself. Then as we enter through those doors, we gain greater access to the deeper mysteries and learning tools and methods for harnessing the keys within us. What tools and methods? Well, there are many because we are multidimensional and different methods help us access different levels and dimensions of our being. Meditation is, of course, an important tool, as is the right use of toning or chanting words of power. Ancient mystery school traditions also hand down rituals we can use to harness the rays of creation and various energy body activation methods that empower and awaken us 
to more of our greater potential. Building our chi or life force energy is also important. Prayer is Have you ever wondered what happens when you pour hot water over a banana? Well, the end remedy not only helps. <laughs> Prayer is good for maintaining an open and clear connection to spirit. An initiation in an authentic lineage is a spiritual technology for catalyzing and accelerating our progression. Yet the place where we must do the most work is on our mind and soul. Not only by quieting the mind through meditation, but actually reprogramming it to eliminate the subconscious backlog and all the limiting beliefs and ego attachments from various indoctrinations or early traumas. Now, in saying this, we're not just talking about reprogramming through psychology or hypnosis or talk therapy or other such techniques. Those can be useful tools in the right context and with the right practitioner. But what we are talking about here is alchemically transmuting the blockages and raising vibration from ego to spirit. It is a process of spiritual alchemy. And alchemy is both an art and a science, meaning there is a formula to it, a step-by-step -step process and precise art that we learn to harness so that we can speed up our progress. And the best system I know of for doing that at an accelerated rate is a combination of ascending the tree of life through universal Kabbalah and being on a path of initiation in an authentic mystery school lineage. How so? Well, Kabbalah gives us this map called the tree of life, as well as a vast system of awakening and understanding ourselves to repattern our mind and soul using that map. And the reason it is so powerful is that the tree of life is the very structure of our DNA blueprints, of how our mind works, as well as of the rays themselves. When we work with this geometry, we are in essence using the multidimensional communication system that directly connects into our DNA and to the rays of creation. To get a sense of this, let's dig in a bit deeper into the mystery teachings of Kabbalah And take a look at how the rays of Ensof are structured, remembering also that these rays are similar to the concept of superstrings. Could Kabbalah provide further insight into string theory and the geometry of strings? Let's find out. Now, the source of these insights comes from an expert on metaphysics, Kabbalah, and quantum reality, Frederick Goodney Goodnison, who is a master initiate and key holder in the lineage of King Solomon. I really have to credit him here because the most mind-blowing teachings I've ever learned on my path have come through him. Where do we start in understanding the structure of the rays? At the top, of course. If we were to unfold a ray and look down the primary axis from above, we would see that each ray has five parts, arranged kind of like a medicine wheel or equal arm cross with four quarters surrounding the center which is the fifth part. What's fascinating is that so many ancient spiritual traditions around the world have some kind of symbol that uses the same arrangement. So all 144,000 rays have these five parts, which brings the total to 720,000 sub rays. What Kabbalah reveals to us is that this arrangement is the axial view of the three-dimensional tree of life. 
The tree of life is thought to be the master blueprint or DNA of everything, from the cosmos to our mind to our physical bodies and biological DNA. When we look at the tree of life from the side view, we see that not only is each ray made of five parts or sub-rays, which here become the five pillars, we also see that each of those five parts has several levels to them. On the two-dimensional view of the tree, there are 10 plus one spheres if we count the hidden one called the Ot. But on the three-dimensional view, there are a total of 16 plus one spheres, including the Ot. Then, in addition to the spheres, are the paths that connect the spheres. So we can begin to see that there is an intricate structure here. What if we considered each sphere to be akin to the process of space being braided up into a quantum loop, as is proposed in loop quantum gravity, while each path is a string as seen in string theory, and around each of those are wrapped the membranes from M-theory, akin to how the myelin sheath wraps around our nerves. Then, similar to the way our DNA twists into a helical structure, and then is from there curled and folded up to form the chromosomes, could we imagine this foundational structure of the three-dimensional tree of life as the inner structure of the rays from Ensoft, then curling and folding in upon itself to form what scientists are now calling superstrings in hyperspace. And through all of this structure flows information from source. And as that information passes through each part of each ray, it is set to vibrate and move at different frequencies all governed by this geometric structure and all together creating a complex symphony of creation. This is then happening fractally within every atom of our body, within every cell as our DNA, within our central nervous system as the structures of our nerves and spine, within our body as a whole and how our energy fields flow and so on from the microcosm to the macrocosm. And even though this physical density is created by just the final ray, all the higher rays flow down into this final density. This is why this physical matrix is the best place to learn to harness all the rays, because they are all here. This is also why in Kabbalah we say the kingdom of spirit can be embodied in the flesh. So all these 720,000 sub-rays, that flow into us are the integration points that we have to work with here. How do we work with them? Well, to begin working with them is simple. It starts with just being aware of them. Just be aware that there are 720,000 access points to infinity right here. Before bed tonight, enjoy a half teaspoon of this tropical drink and boost metabolism by over 728% while you sleep. Next, we must move beyond just awareness into action. What kind of action? Well, any action is good so long as we are learning and progressing from it. But there are certain kinds of actions that will also help us access that full potential faster especially actions that bring us into greater coherence, which we've mentioned before. 
Now, let's approach the same idea from a new and more expanded perspective. This approach relates to our multidimensionality and coming into awareness of parallel realities. What's meant by parallel realities? How are they different from alternate universes within the multiverse mentioned earlier? Well, to answer that, let's return to some science and then compare it again with metaphysics. In quantum physics, while scientists all agree on the experimental results and findings, what they don't agree on is the interpretation or more philosophical implications of quantum theory. For the last hundred years, the most widely accepted approach to quantum mechanics was called the Copenhagen interpretation of Niels Bohr, Werner Heisenberg, and colleagues. It says that of the many possible realities that could exist, only one actually exists in the physical, and that one is the one we choose to observe. In other words, it says that observation creates reality by collapsing the waveform. This implies that the universe is participatory and requires a conscious observer at some point. But in more recent years, many physicists have started gravitating towards alternate interpretations known as decoherence and many worlds. One of the primary reasons for this shift in interpretation is that materialists don't like the philosophical implications of the observer effect or a participatory universe. Why? Because it opens the door to consciousness and the spiritual source. What approach then do the many worlds and decoherence interpretations take? How are they different? Now, decoherence says that interactions from even the slightest disturbance in the outer world environment can disrupt the wave function and cause it to decohere or split into two distinctive waves. So rather than an observer collapsing the wave function and forcing it to take on one possibility, this says the environment, such as interaction with a molecule of air or a cosmic ray, is all that's needed to collapse the wave function. This interpretation alone, however, does not account for all the quantum phenomena we see. Uh, the many worlds interpretation then takes it further and says that both or all possible realities physically exist, but at each quantum juncture, a single reality splits into multiple parallel realities, meaning there is no wave function collapse. Instead, this gives rise to a never-ending sequence of the physical universe splitting itself into parallel realities and therefore creating infinite parallel universes. Now, physicists claim that these parallel realities are not imaginary. They are real, concrete, and objective. And our parallel self in one of these alternate parallel realities would equally argue that theirs is the real thing. What this is implying is that either there is no choice, or rather all choices are made, each in a different parallel reality, and thus the concept of free will is an illusion. Even stranger is that it says that all these parallel realities coexist with us in the same space and time. Mm -hmm. They're just existing on slightly different frequency levels of energy, which is just a thin membrane separating them. But scientists say that because these parallel realities have decohered, we can no longer interact with them. We don't see them for a similar reason to why we don't hear all radio stations being broadcast at once, because we're only tuned in to one frequency station. Has science fiction become science fact? 
Maybe, although the verdict is still out on this one, because again, it is all conjecture. And as one of the granddaddies of quantum physics, John Wheeler, has said about the many worlds and decoherence interpretations, it requires too much excess baggage. Even if it is true, it still isn't sufficient to explain away consciousness and spirit. Metaphysics also works with the idea of parallel realities, while still including consciousness and our participation into the bigger picture. And within such a framework, there is a purpose to fulfill. That purpose is to first become aware and then to restore coherence by our use of will and consciousness and taking the right actions. How does this work from the metaphysical perspective then? Well, the science of universal Kabbalah limits the number of parallel realities we might be in based on the pattern of the tree of life. Rather than a potentially infinite number, as in the many worlds interpretation, Kabbalah organizes them into 22 pathways on the tree of life. These 22 pathways define the archetypes of life or the ways of living life. Have you ever wished there could be two or more versions of you to accomplish all you want to do in life? <laughs> or that you could have become somebody different? Well, Kabbalah says we have 22 distinct parallel realities or versions of ourself in this physical world. There are 22 different aspects of our total self, each one being very different and living out its own physical life. In each one of them, the brain and the nervous system are programmed differently, giving us 22 unique perspectives and experiences of life and how things are. Altogether, they cover everything we need to learn in this physical life. Now, science often uses the terms of parallel universe and parallel reality as referring to the same thing. It all exists as different universes in the multiverse. But in Kabbalah, these terms are used differently. Realities are the ones we are consciously connected to and aware of. So the question in Kabbalah becomes how many of the 22 parallel worlds are we actually living on a conscious level? Becoming conscious of all 22 aspects of the self is what we strive towards. How is that possible? Are you still interested in a solar-powered generator? Because uh, pay special attention, because I'm going to do something that, until recently, we've never done before. To get a better sense of this, we can use an analogy of a cineplex. Think of each life as being one of 22 different movies, or perhaps holograms playing in a grand cineplex. From the perspective of each life playing out in one of the theaters, there's only one script and set of actors encountered. And while our consciousness is focused in on that one theater, then all we are aware of is that one movie or reality. But from the perspective of our spirit or true self, it is in the center of the cineplex or a central viewing room that can see all 22 movies simultaneously. Our goal is to get our conscious awareness to the center where our spirit resides rather than having it dispersed through the 22 theaters. 
This would equate with fully realizing and awakening to our spirit's multidimensional existence. When we consciously achieve this oneness with our spirit, then the 22 distinct movies merge into one movie, and we live all 22 archetypes of life in a single physical reality. Another way of saying this is that we bring our 22 parallel realities back into coherence and reunite them. How do we do that? Well, by becoming aware of them, by awakening to our multidimensional being. One tool we have for this that gives us a window into each of these 22 archetypal lives is the 22 major arcana of the tarot. When we study the 22 archetypes of the major arcana, not as a method of divination, but as a window into the self, we can become more aware of those 22 lives our spirit is experiencing. We can ask, who would I be in this archetypal life or that one? What would I be doing? How might my experiences and perceptions be different in each life? We are connected to all of them already through the higher consciousness of our spirit. So first we become aware of them. Then we start to merge them into this life by putting on those hats, so to speak, and trying them out in this life. Be the fool, be the magician, be the high priestess, be the lovers, be strength, be temperance, be the world, and so on. As we awaken all 22 archetypes in this life, then the 22 movies become one movie, one unified and full life. Once we've merged all 22, then what? Is that it? No, we are eternal beings on an evolutionary journey. After successfully completing each step on our journey, then we spiral up to the next higher octave of our evolution. Once we unify and assimilate all 22 archetypes of the physical life, our reality then splits or decoheres again. But this time it becomes 72 parallel aspects of our soul's evolution. So we move beyond the physical into the levels of soul and continue evolving by learning to integrate a new set of expanded archetypes. As we successfully merge those 72 archetypes of the soul into one whole, then we spiral up again and our parallel realities now split into 144 archetypes of spirit. Then we begin the evolution of merging these into one and so on out into our eternal being in the infinite multiverse. By becoming aware of our multidimensionality and the parallel realities of our human potential, we begin to touch infinity and find our way back to reuniting with our eternal being. Our purpose through all of this is to first become aware and then to restore coherence by our use of will or consciousness and taking the right actions. With each cycle of our evolutionary journey, we learn to play more musical compositions in the grand symphony of creation. We learn to use new instruments and techniques. We evolve, transform, and grow. And hopefully, by the time our spirit returns to the multiverse, we have added some new notes to the symphony of possibilities. Join me again as we explore other forms of life in our universe and beyond. I'm Dr. Teresa Bullard. Thank you for exploring the mysteries of the universe with me in this episode of Mystery Teachings. My, my, my. 
been a long time since we listened to Teresa Ballard, hasn't it? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We're going to play a piece of music from New Year's Eve. We're still here. And I just want to get the music in. So enjoy, everyone. We're ready, I think. Here we go. Hi, Bernadette Peters joining me tonight for a celebration of Stephen Sondheim's music performed by the New York Philharmonic with guest vocalist Katrina Link. It starts in just a moment on Live from Lincoln Center. Live from Lincoln Center is made possible by the family of Robert Wood Johnson III, dedicated to enriching... New York City. I'm Fred Child, glad to ring in the new year with you live from Lincoln Center. The New York Philharmonic. One more time, everybody. Up tuning up. Guest vocalist Katrina Lang will make the New York Philharmonic debut in just a few minutes. Dr. Alexander Geminati also making his debut. Let's begin the music of 1962. Okay. All right. All right, Rainbird, you're on in these last wee hours of the morning. I thought that was good, good, good concert music. So hope you're still here. Pass this talking stick. All the angels, fairies, feathers, rainbows, crystals, and hobbits, and minahoonies are here. Here it comes. Yeah, good. I got it. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed that music and Happy New Year with that last one. <laughs> it was, it was, but it, yes, and uh, I think this is going to be a very strong healing year. Oh my gosh, I can't, I can't believe it's only been a week. It feels like it's, it's just been feeling so good all week that it felt longer yeah. than that. <laughs> yeah, and I don't feel sad about. Um, Harry Reid, I just, I feel filled with um, good vibrations from his service. Yeah. He 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 gave his all every moment, so I'm really happy about that. And oh, I'm so glad you played that uh, Obama, and that yeah, that's that was just like one of the best parts of the day. Listening to that, it's great. Oh, well, it's fantastic, and. Nobody's going anywhere. Nassara now. Yeah, Nassara now. Nassara now, Nassara now. Yes, yes, yes. 2022, we'll get to do it all. And did you know that February the 22nd, with all those two, is on a Tuesday? (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that's very good. Two. Yeah. Two, Catch two. pointed that out to us. I two, thought it was great. Two, two. That's six twos plus Tuesday. Seven. All right, yeah. Saint Spain, you sneak in there the last minute. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with that, you know, I pass this talking stick over to you, Rama. Okay. And thank you both for tonight. So much fun. Okay. So much love. Okay. Okay, Dougie, can, we got just about four more minutes. Hope you can last. We will make it through the night. Here we go. 
teaching we human being uh, one way create a lot of good things but at the same time we create a lot of problems Okay, I thought that would just be a good word, but we love everyone. Omniva Shivaya, and may we find beauty in every step we walk on this sweet earth. Namaste, everybody. See you on the bridge. Kapwa. Namaste. Satnam. Satnam Ki. Ah, yes. Thirteen thank yous, honey in the heart, no evil, live long and prosper. Aloha. Namaste.